everyone, and welcome to the 100th episode of the podcast. Before I start this episode, I figured I would hop on and say a few words. So first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has supported this podcast, all the listeners. Um, you know, the motivation for me to continue doing this and do 100 of these was because I was getting feedback and, um, you know, the support from you all telling me that they were, you know, you were finding value in these conversations. Because for me, I've always just kind of viewed this as a great way for me to just learn on my own and learn in public and to know that this resonates with you is uh, awesome and so I want to say thank you and of course thank you to all the guests that I've had on this show I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share all your wisdom and bear with me as I kind of incoherently ramble sometimes but just wanted to say thank you the second thing is, as you'll notice, this episode is a beast. It is a behemoth of an episode. And the reason for that is I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break. Um, my wife is pregnant. Uh, we're expecting twins here in August. So my life is uh, going to change dramatically. These will be our first children and uh, can't. I'm, I'm super, super excited about it. But uh, regardless, I wanted to leave you all with... Um, something you know to, to tide you over until the podcast does resume uh, later this year or, you know sometime into the future so enjoy these 15 conversations that I had with 15 past guests of the future ear radio podcast cheers everybody Okay, so we're joined here by probably the, uh, the most frequent guest that's been on the podcast, Andy Bellavia. The most recent time, though, was a year ago. I just looked it up. It was episode 76, uh, where you came on as a solo episode back in July. And prior to that, you were on a number of other times. So uh, welcome back to the podcast, Andy. Thanks a lot for joining me. Episode 100 here. Um, Andy is a longtime commentator uh, and kind of insight expert of everything that's been going on, uh, particularly around the hearables and the hearing health space, both from a, a technical standpoint, but also from sort of like a ov overarching thematic standpoint as well. So uh, thank you for joining me. Just wanted to have you on to ask you, you know, in all the different areas that you're interested in, um, the things that you're sort of observing, What's on your radar? What are you excited about with uh, what's on the horizon? Well, first off, Dave, congratulations on 100 episodes. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on and being a part of it. I mean, you've really done a lot in, in this space in 100 episodes. And it, it's amazing. I'm looking forward to the next 100 episodes. Thank you. Appreciate it. In terms of uh, what's the most exciting thing that I'm seeing happening in my area, it's the imminent release of the over-the-counter hearing aid rule here in the U.S., but not actually for the reasons you might think, because in the near term, I don't believe OTC will make much of an impact in this country, because it doesn't address one of the key issues that drives the low uptake of hearing loss treatment, and that's the stigma. Or maybe to put it another way, it's the, uh, the fact that people don't do anything about it until it gets so bad. Whereas over-the-counter is really gonna be most effective in the earlier stages of hearing loss. What I'm really excited about is that OTC is driving a conversation and it's driving developments. This process has gone on for a long, long time and a whole lot of things are happening around it. Really, people are becoming more aware of hearing loss and different ways of treating hearing loss and the importance of treating hearing loss. And a lot of that came out of all of the discussions, even going back to the PCAST, on the need for an over-the-counter hearing device. 
And what I, what I see today actually is that there are two parallel paths running, uh, both part of this process. And one path is the increasing availability of non-regulated hearing features in true wireless earbuds. We've talked about this before. I mean, take hearing personalization. That's just simply giving the user a hearing test and then personalizing the sound of the music. And so now it's a non-threatening way to introduce people to taking a hearing test, learning what their hearing is, and then immediately getting you know, positive feedback in the form of better music quality. And so now you have a very non-threatening way of introducing people to the benefits of better hearing. And then not behind that really is uh, other hearing features outside of amplification, like beam forming mics in the speech and no extracting speech from noise algorithms and the like. So Apple really is ahead here, I would say. And they've got what they call the conversation boost and they've got noise reduction, all these things. And so you imagine now a person who isn't thinking much about hearing at all, they've personalized their music and they realize the music sounds better. They go to a loud place and they flip them into restaurant mode and they can hear better in restaurant mode. So now they're getting a lot of positive and rewarding feedback by addressing their hearing without really thinking about addressing their hearing. They haven't said, I have hearing loss, I must go to an audiologist. They simply exploited the modes of their earbuds and start to realize the benefit. I think that's gonna have a much more positive impact on people's attitudes towards hearing loss than OTC hearing aids specifically, but they're all coming out of that same set of conversations. Realization that hearing loss has to be dealt with at all levels. Yeah, that's very, now, very well said. Once you start thinking about hearing personalization and beamforming mics and all that, it's really just a small leap, except for the regulatory process. But other than that, it's a small leap to actually offering OTC and consumer level devices. So you could see things really starting to evolve. And of course, the end benefit of all that is that you're going to be able to reach more people in more places. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with all that. And I, uh, I probably should have mentioned too at the, at the top when I introduced you is that another thing that I think really makes your perspective valuable and unique is that you are a hearing aid wearer. And I think you kind of fit that archetype of someone who waited too long, like self-admittedly, um, you would say that. And part of that, though, I think was that, you know, you sort of, in a sense, came from an era where these solutions weren't fully formed. And so let me ask you, you know, Andy, from 10 years ago, if you were presented with what's available today, how is that different from what you were presented with even five years ago or however long ago when you did take the plunge and decided to get hearing aids? Yeah, you know, it's hard to play revisionist history, especially right. with yourself. But I, I could see myself trying one of those devices first when my hearing loss was milder. I mean, I was working right about the time, if I go back and try and think, when I first started to realize I was having difficulty in a restaurant situation or whatnot, was probably about the time I was working with the likes of Doppler Labs who were for dipping their toe in those waters. And so if I put myself five years further forward, I might very well have tried those Dopplers in a crowded situation and said, hey, you know, this is pretty good. 
but the technology just wasn't mature enough at that particular time, you know, for me to take advantage of it. But I'll tell you what, what I do tell people, and this is a little bit off the topic, I just had a conversation with one, one of my colleagues uh, a few days ago who was saying, uh, he was actually talking with another person. I happened to come in on the conversation and saying that, uh, yeah, you know, I really need to get in and have my hearing checked and this and that. And I, and I looked at him and I said, I'll tell you what, I waited about seven years to do it and I regret all of them. I said, just go get it done. Yeah. But I'd like to think about this OTC in global context as well. Uh, if you take top level numbers, the WHO and their uh, hearing report last year, they said that there are more than 1.5 billion people with some level of hearing loss and 430 million of them are debilitated by it. So now let's see how many hearing aids are sold annually, about 20 million. So that's 10 million people with hearing aids against 430 million people with debilitating hearing loss. It's 2.3%. Right. So it's really impossible to argue at any level that today's system of hearing care delivery is capable of addressing the global need. Absolutely not. And given the impact untreated hearing loss has on quality of life, productivity, risk of comorbidities, I mean, something has to be done about this. So like I said, you're in a position like me, I tell people, go see an audiologist. I mean, I'm the first one to say, I'm now seeing an audiologist who uses best practices and I'm hearing better than ever before. It's perfect, but I'm the top of the pyramid right. in global hearing loss, right? Yeah. And, and because of that, because most people don't have the means and they don't have the access, then it becomes much more impossible to service people in the same way that I've been serviced. And I'll go to the WHO again, the WHO again, okay? Uh, they, in the same uh, World Hearing Report, they uh, reported on the density of audiologists in 102 countries, okay? 102 countries, 65 of them have less than five audiologists per million people, and 38 of them have less than one. So the audiological model doesn't even work in a significant portion of the world. And even in the US, uh, I had seen several of these sorts of surveys. Uh, in preparing for this, I ran across one by a researcher named Ariana Marie Planey. Uh, she published the paper, I haven't read the paper yet, but she had tweeted a map of the state of Illinois, which is my home state. And in that map, for those of you listening, you'll have to trust me on this, in that map, it shows vast swaths of Illinois that don't have any audiologists at all. It's a big state. It's about 390 miles or 628 kilometers long. And it's mostly rural outside of the Chicago area. It's mostly rural. And there are big patches of the state where there are no audiologists. And that's in the US. And there was also an article written uh, in Hearing Tracker by Scarlett Lewitt. You might've seen it because it just came out. And it's called, Where Are All the Audiologists? A UK Perspective on the Scarcity of Hearing Care Services. So even in countries like the UK and the US, there's a scarcity of audiologists, okay? And that's not even counting the developing world. So that's really a key issue. The, the, the global pandemic of untreated hearing loss doesn't get solved on the model we have today. And so what I believe is that 
for people who don't have access or the means, a 70% solution is better than no solution at all. And insistence on best practices, audiology is the only solution worldwide just isn't going to work. But on the other hand, you can't just throw some OTC devices on the internet and expect that to solve the problem either. It's not gonna solve the problem at all. Because in many places in the world, people have no access to those devices, don't know what they are, aren't capable of properly using and fitting them on their own. It's just not going to work. So what I see is the second stream that goes parallel to OTC is alternate ways of delivering care. I'll use as an example, a UK company called uh, Timpa Health. This is on their website, they define their mission, and, and I'm quoting here, to empower allied healthcare professionals to provide ear and hearing healthcare diagnostics and treatment to local communities. So it's allied healthcare professionals. And they manufacture a handheld device that has an otoscope, uh, microsuction, and hearing screening all in a nice little handheld, looks like it's a smartphone-based device. And they also can link to an ENT or an audiologist if the local clinician you know, needs a second opinion on a complicated case. So let me use uh, Honduras as an example. I travel to a rural area in the southern part of Honduras uh, periodically, and we stay at a small town called Nakayome. It's got a few thousand people in it. And a lot of people live in the countryside around the town. It's, it's pretty rugged and the most common form of transportation is either on foot or by horse. And goods are often moved uh, with carts pulled by horses or oxen. So not a lot of cars and it's away from everything. There's a, a few audiologists in the country, but they are by car hours away. And so people who live in this region have no access to hearing care at all. Uh, but there are local health clinics in the region and so imagine a clinic in a town like Nakaome, where they've got a TIMPA device and the healthcare providers there have been trained in using it. Now imagine also that they have access to OTC-like devices. And I'm not actually thinking about the kind of devices we're seeing today. They would really have to be less expensive hearing-oriented devices, which is actually possible. There is in, in India, for example, a large earphone manufacturer called Boat, and they do a lot of true wireless devices. Their cheapest device in US dollar terms today is like $13 manufactured in India, okay? So now a hearing device, which isn't doing all the bells and whistles that we expect, it doesn't necessarily have to have the best ANC and top music quality and all that, but it does have to have hearing related functions as an OTC device. Those could be manufactured relatively inexpensively and therefore would be much more serviceable in a place like Honduras for treating people with mild and moderate hearing loss, which is the bulk of people anyway. And conceivably that could even extend into the lower end of severe under that idea of being a 70% solution is better than a 0% solution. So you could, you know, you could, you could uh, refer out the most severe cases if people were capable of you know, traveling and getting a full on hearing aid, but you're gonna see, serve a large portion of the uncorrected hearing aid population just at the local clinic with these kinds of tools. And so that, that to me is what's really the most exciting thing about what got kicked off with OTC and is now leading in a lot of different directions. And now we have both the means and the technology 
to start to service the world's population. That's what excites me more than anything else. Yeah, no, I love that answer. And I share the same enthusiasm as you about this, uh, because you're absolutely right. I mean, so much of what's discussed on this show and um, just in the industry, broadly speaking, uh, in the hearing health industry is so American centric or European centric, you know, maybe a little bit of an Asian focus, but there's parts of the world that what we're talking about isn't even applicable to. And so I agree with you that, you know, when we look at the more macro level trends that are occurring right now, you know, you have the world is being connected to the internet. Um, I think it's somewhere like 80% of the world now has, has some level of internet access. Um, don't quote me on that. I can't, I can't remember verbatim what that statistic is, but you know, there's obviously this big effort by companies like Google and Facebook and SpaceX and all these different mm -hmm. companies that are really attempting to provide internet access to every single portion of the world and all these different people. And you combine that with, you know, just the smartphone adoption, um, whether it be in the U S you have, you know, the iPhone is the dominant, uh, handset, but then in other parts of the world, like you mentioned, India or parts of Africa where it's a, you know, it's a $20 Android device. And so, you know, what I'm getting at is I think that a lot of the building blocks are there for, um, for these self self fit solutions, um, to be much more, uh, I think broadly, um, uh, applied to large portions of underserved people. And that's, I think, only going to create a positive effect. And the other thing I think it's going to do is, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's all that much incentive in the U.S., for example, to develop these types of solutions. They very well might be developed in other parts of the world and then make their way over to the U.S. where there's a real market in these more impoverished parts, but then it sort of gets fleshed out and it's not necessarily just the device. It's a lot of the diagnostics. It's, you know, you mentioned Tipa Health where the first company that came to my mind was like, you know, like what uh, Herex is doing or Kudo uh, Wave or Shoebox, yep. you know, having these tablet screeners um, and diagnostic tools that can be performed by a nurse, an occupational therapist, you know, all these allied professionals, like you mentioned. So it's not necessarily, I think, just the, the innovation and the um, proliferation of the hearing devices per se. It's also everything that goes along with it in terms of determining where you fall sort of on that spectrum. And the last piece to this is, I think, the um, basically the iOS and the Android uh, carriers having profiles and a history logged. I mean, I think Apple's out front in a big way here. I'm, it'll be interesting to see if Google follows suit with everything Android's doing in the Android health. But, you know, with Apple health, to your point, and uh, in, in the colleague that you were speaking about where, you know, go and see an audiologist today, would it not be more beneficial to not only be able to go see an audiologist, but have that information logged and then be able to use it as a benchmark so that when you go and you maybe you choose not to pursue anything that first time, but you go one year later and you can see how it compares one year from time. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm getting at like, we're going to just, I think, become way more informed of what's, um, you know, everything about our hearing health, I think is going to be part of our, um, you know, mindset of, of all things overall in our health and, and have a better understanding of where we all, I think, individually fall and how to make sure that we maintain um, the levels that 
that we all kind of have and, and not let them just completely deteriorate. Yeah, I completely agree. We're going to have the infrastructure, the services and the devices to serve everybody up and down the socioeconomic scale. So anything from what you just described, where you're using the Apple Health ecosystem and it's monitoring your hearing health along with everything else, down to a hearing device for a person who doesn't have a smartphone. Okay, and I've seen plenty of people without phones in this area of Honduras. So like, we'll take two representative people, a farmer up in the hills doesn't have a cell phone, okay? But they go to the clinic and I envision in, in this, in this setting, it's mostly going to be clinician fit, not self-fit, but it's going to be a self-fitting device, but supervised by a clinician. So they don't need all the programming tools and that sort of thing, right? And they will link up to their mobile phone and they'll have the client supervised, run the fitting software after they've checked to make sure they have the right ear tips and so on, give them education on its use, fit the device, and they're often running as a hearing device not necessarily connected to a phone and internet connected, but it's a hearing device. Now you take, say, a shopkeeper in the town. Well, in all the shops, their mobile phone is their business phone. So they all have mobile phones. So that hearing device, it has to be Bluetooth connectable anyway for the, for the programming. But then it's also Bluetooth connected so the shopkeeper can answer the phone and hear better and talk to people who call on the phone and also be able to interact in a better way with their customers in person. Because when you have untreated hearing loss, it really places a big burden on your productivity whenever you have to talk to people if you can't understand them. That's if you're working in a production facility or you're, you're working in a shop where you're interacting with customers, you have to be able to hear them properly in order to be successful. So in both of those cases, you would have this sort of device but not necessarily self-fit, clinician fit, but not necessarily audiologist fit. And of course, even in a local clinic in their tablet or what have you, they can be keeping records of their clients. And thanks for mentioning the other companies. I use Timfa just as one example, but there are a lot of people approaching this problem from different angles. And that's what, that's what makes me believe that we're finally at the cusp of being able to really do something here. Yeah. It takes the political will also Right. The local governments who are providing healthcare services, they have to be willing to support hearing health. But when it becomes more affordable, you have a greater chance of them doing it. And of course, there's also the opportunity for NGOs to get more involved in this activity as well. But until now, none of the infrastructure devices existed to even think about doing it. And at least now that is rapidly coming into place. Yeah, couldn't agree more with everything there. I mean, again, just to reiterate, I think that this whole like diagnostic piece is so fascinating to me where you're kind of seeing the, a lot of what the audiologist does today is being extended and made available by other allied professionals. And I think it just broadens the science of audiology. And I think that's a really positive thing. I really think that we're, um, short-sighted to think that there is a finite, uh, you know, limited of opportunities or something like that. I mean, there's so, to your point, there's so much, uh, there's so many people out there that need some level of, of amplification. And I think that what's really, really exciting is this convergence of like some, like I said, some really major macro trends like internet connectivity and uh, smart device proliferation. Um, but you tie that with a lot of this uh, you know, 
what's happening, I think, is OTC is more of just kind of a catalyst of like opening things up. And, you know, I think that's going to just there's going to be some really cool dividends that are uh, realized, I think, over the next few years as we really see parts of the world, in a sense, come online um, in this space and in, I think, a big way. And it becomes just even more top of mind of how important hearing loss is to address at scale. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Fantastic. Well, Andy, thank you for being such a big part of Future Ear for this first for our first 100 episodes. I hope to have you on for the next 300 episodes. <laughs> so uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate all your support and uh, all the really great insight you've shared on the podcast so far. Well, you're welcome. And thanks for that, Dave. And yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to put in my calendar episode 400. Be ready. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, so we have Liz Femler here. Liz was on the podcast uh, episode 94 back in May. Really great to have you back here for episode 100. So just wanted to bring you on and get a sense from you what's sort of on your radar, uh, what's exciting, interesting to you um, in the areas you're focused in. Yeah, so I think I had talked about this on the last episode too, but one of my biggest interest in audiology right now is in the realm of vestibular and even more so in concussion. So we all know that in the past 10 years, there's been increased focus on head injuries in society. Most, mostly, um, I think that the news anchors were mainly focused on football related head injuries, but head injuries exist everywhere. And there's, I've been really interested in audiology related impacts from a head injury. And that's really where I found a lot of, um, you know, my research interests and clinical interests. So that's what I'm most excited about moving forward. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, going back to this episode, and I definitely would encourage anybody that's maybe interested in this topic uh, to to check it out, because, you know, as has been the theme on the podcast, kind of exploring some of these new opportunities, new areas that audiology can move into. And this one, is so interesting to me because I think that it uh, concussions are obviously very pervasive. And I think more and more research is coming out that like, you know, it's not just football, it's hockey, it's uh, soccer, you know, it's like all these different sports where you make contact with your head, but it's not just sports too. It's like yeah. all of these different workers compensation and stuff like that, that, you know, might, might flow into this. So for me, the way I see this, and I'll be curious to kind of get your take is just, it allows for, um, I think, just a bigger, uh, it, it creates a bigger platform for audiology that is more visible. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, because concussions are, they're not a new thing, but I think that it's becoming really widely uh, known that these things are really, really serious. And so it feels like they've been elevated in the in the narrative, in the conversation over the last few years, like you mentioned. And so what isn't really well-defined yet is like exactly how you treat these. I think it's sort of in the, we're in the midst of figuring that out. And the fact that audiology might play a role in that is I think just a really exciting way to, to help showcase uh, the broader scope of audiology and move away from just the uh, perception that it's only limited to hearing aids. And so I think that's really exciting to me is like, this is part of a bigger thing, but concussions feels like it's really on the frontier of, of new areas that this field can move into. 
Yeah, I think what's one of the most interesting parts of vestibular in general, and why I was drawn to that in the field of audiology is it's so interdisciplinary. So I feel like I truly am operating at the top of my degree because I've had to learn so many things that I would not expect to learn as an audiologist. Like you have to get comfortable with like taking blood pressure and like realizing what blood pressure related, you know, changes can happen to cause dizziness. So like that would be something that if I was dispensing hearing aids, I probably wouldn't ever get a blood pressure cuff out or like ask questions about that. And I think that's really neat because it makes audiology an integral part of the medical community. Um, and I think concussion takes a step up on what vestibular does, because again, I love how interdisciplinary it is, but every single day you're working with physical therapists, optometrists, neurologists, like you are part of that team. Um, you know, in concussion in general, and anytime I talk to whether it's like patients or professionals about it, Concussion, the biggest challenge right now is it's hard to diagnose. And usually the neurologist or the primary care physician, they're focused on the patient's reported symptoms to say, yes, you've had a concussion or no, you haven't. And they really don't have objective data or objective tests to help them determine if it's actually happening uh, or if it's happened. They usually guess. They make sure you don't have a skull fracture with a CT scan. And then we say, yep, you have a headache because you hit your head. You probably had a concussion. So it's very a lax diagnosis process at most places. Um, and a lot of times, either the neurologist or the physical therapist, they feel, uh, you know, kind of isolated as they're making treatment decisions because they have to use a lot of the patient report to make those decisions, which is hard. And so I think that's where, you know, vestibular audiologists play a special part because we've got objective testing where we can record eye movements and measure it and, you know, compare it to someone of their same age and tell them whether it's significant or not. I think that's so interesting. And it does go back to the, it just jarred in my memory, what we talked about last time, which is this idea that like, you kind of already have the equipment. And so yeah. the audiologist is the vestibular audiologist is extremely well positioned to handle this. And um, so I'm curious to just kind of get a sense from you, like how, how are you kind of exposed to the whole opportunity of concussions and audiology? Yeah. So my exposure came from my fourth year externship at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. So they have a clinic called the Return to Play Clinic, and it's um, mainly focused on sport-related concussions. And it's super cool because Jamie Bogle, who's the audiologist there, the vestibular audiologist, she's part of the diagnosis team. So she works, you know, when someone comes in for a concussion, she's there on the first day helping evaluate different reflexes and eye movements. And there's some things that's been reported in the literature as far as certain things that are typically abnormal when you're in that acute head injury phase. And so they use, you know, information from the audiologist to determine, do they need to go to physical therapy? Do they need to go to optometry or none of the above? And I think that's so cool because it's not always that audiologists are part of the decision-making process for what the patient gets next medically. Totally. That's really, yeah, that's a really good point. And I feel like, um, you know, with, did, did you kind of have like this, uh, aha moment where you said like, oh, you know, we can do these kinds of tests and that would help to, um, you know, it, it would like lead us to this conclusion. Um, like basically, taking all of the knowledge that you already have with vestibular and then being like, all right, I actually, this is very transferable over to what the science and all of the research coming out about concussions is, 
suggesting? Like almost was this obvious to you as you started to get further and further of like, wow, we really do have a role to play in this, uh, this part of the scope or the new scope. Um, I, it's so challenging because every concussion is so different. So I definitely think some things have gotten easier to establish as I've seen more patients. Um, I was actually talking to an audiologist today who is meeting with a concussion, uh, clinic to see if audiology should even be a part of that. And I told him that the way that I got started with concussion is with a neurologist. I said, if your patients don't get better in physical therapy, send them to me and I'll do an evaluation and try to figure out why. And it actually over time, he started sending them earlier and earlier because he realized there's a reason, you know, people get eight months into physical therapy and they stop improving. And sometimes it was vestibular um, and sometimes it wasn't, but regardless the information that I provided help him determine, no, they don't need to continue in physical therapy. It's something else or yes, but we need something different. And so I think, um, over time, just evaluating so many patients like that, you kind of determine what's working and what's not with patients. Um, I think there's a huge need for more published research, um, in concussion. And I, I hope that a lot of audiologists get interested in this realm just because, we need more data to determine what tests are the most useful in testing these patients and what's the most sensitive. What's difficult in concussion realm in general is nobody really knows exactly what gets impacted with a head injury and everyone's is so different that it can change. And so, um, you know, it may find, it may be difficult to find the actual origin of every issue every time, but I think if we can find reflex pathways or, you know, processes that get impacted, that can really help the patient and save them time and money. I love the whole notion too, of like kind of having a seat at the table with some of these allied medical professionals. Mm -hmm. And it's just, again, it strikes me as like, what an awesome opportunity audiology has here to elevate themselves in the standing, not only of the uh, broader medical community, but with the patients. And it just seems like this is a harbinger of like, I think the future of this, of this field, which is uh, I think that what, what currently exists will always be a mainstay, but I think that there's so much opportunity around helping to basically contribute a puzzle piece uh, mm-hmm. of like, here's what's going on. And the fact that I think you're already seeing, like you mentioned there with the neuroscientist that sees real value in, in, and it's almost as if there was skepticism initially. And then it's just like yeah. s- sort of eroded over time. And, and the neuro- neuroscientist was like, this is legit. Like, this is a really important cog to this intricate wheel here that we don't even o- fully understand yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just think that's really exciting that audiology has this opportunity. And I hope that everybody, I hope others like you are, are, are kind of gravitating toward this and seizing this opportunity. Cause it seems like it's a really important aspect to what could be a big part of the future of this whole profession. And I think, you know, one thing that could be of encouragement to those that are not interested in vestibular, because that used to be me, is I really think there's a big place and, you know, a seat at the table for the audiologist that focuses on hearing related issues post head injury. So, you know, general rule of thumb, I've talked to a ton of physical therapists that treat concussion and a lot of people report sound sensitivity, tinnitus, hearing changes or difficulties, and they don't know what to do. Like PTs are trained in dizziness. So a lot of times they can like take a stab at that, but they don't know what to do with ear related concerns. And that's where an audiologist is. I mean, that's our expertise. And so even if you're not in the vestibular realm, you can still have a big seat at a concussion table because 
tinnitus is like one of the top reported issues post head injury. And in my clinic, you know, I saw like auditory processing disorder, about 80% of my concussion patients had APD and that's treatable. And that's treatable by an audiologist or a speech language pathologist. So there's a lot of opportunity and it's not just in vestibular. And I think, you know, from even a business perspective, it's really beneficial to market our services to every, like lots of different disorders outside of just hearing loss and age-related hearing loss. Wow. Could not agree more with you there. And I, that's uh, just really well said because I love how you, you brought that back around to the relevance of like what I was referring to as sort of the, the status quo, which is treating the hearing related issues. But again, it's like, as you start to pair these things up um, and, and to your point, like maybe uh, on an individual basis, like you, like the, a specific audiologist might not feel equipped to do the vestibular side, but it might, it might really serve as a catalyst for more people to build inroads with one another to say, I need a, I need a better referral relationship with a vestibular audiologist that <clears throat> I can compliment on the flip side of, with yeah. everything that you mentioned there, which is, again, I think is really exciting as more of the scope gets um, pursued that I think yeah. it's just going to lend itself to actually, it's gonna, it's actually going to increase the value of like the hearing aid side of the market too. Right. I think. Yeah. And I, you know, I, there were so many cases where people who are like, like a 60 year old gets hurt at work. And all of a sudden they notice like a bunch of ringing tinnitus that's super bothersome after a head injury. And they have a hearing loss when we test their hearing. And it's not like the hearing loss was probably caused by that head injury, but even just the fact of your brain going through that type of jolting can bring tinnitus to the forefront. And all of a sudden they're a hearing aid candidate because they're super bothered by their tinnitus. They're noticing their hearing loss. And so, you know, I think getting into the concussion realm has really opened up what areas of medicine and even just public health that audiology can be integral in. And, you know, I had a lot of patients who said, I never thought I'd see an audiologist after my head injury. Like I didn't even know what an audiologist was. And I'm like, right. that's fair. Like when I went to school, I had no clue what an audiologist was. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't know one you and you haven't had hearing loss, then you probably don't. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's another good, you know, public health you know, way to take for audiology, because we, we can have a say in a lot more medical disorders than we do right now. Yeah. And head injury is one that I found that's really cool, but there's probably even more that we aren't a part of and really should be like, for example, all the diabetes focus lately. Um, you know, that's been a huge avenue for people oh. to start focusing on their ears a little bit more than they have been. Optometry has done very good about this with other medical disorders. And I feel like we're just getting into that. So I think the, you know, options are limitless. I, oh man, that's a really cool one that I need to touch on in future episodes because mm -hmm. that is, and again, like the, the cool thing with this whole thing is it's like, I started to um, understand more about the whole vestibular side and then like, boom, you come along and it's like, I'm actually doing this stuff with concussion related things. So there's like tangents within the tangents that yeah. are like, whoa, this is a lot bigger than I assumed. I, it's not just a handful of new diagnostics that can be performed. It's like, no, like literally being able to be a much broader, uh, medical professional. And the exciting part is, it's like this, there's the scope exists, like it's, yeah. it's already there. So I think it's like, again, part of what's going on right now. And, and you're such a good, like testament to this is it feels like there's this, um, maybe the, everything that's happening with the hearing aid side of the market is serving as like a, a collective, like soul search. And it yeah. seems like a lot of people are kind of like 
wait a second, like getting back to some of the old roots and being like, why don't we, why don't we double down on this uh, particular area? And, and that would then lend itself to like, we can have a seat at the table in some of these bigger discussions, which again, it all comes full circle to like, you're then treating people diagnostically for their conditions, which ultimately might lead to a hearing aid sale. And as you shepherd them along that way, where you're like, okay, look, we've gone through this battery of tests. This is the conclusion we've come to. It's a totally different sale than if you just initially right off the batter, like, you know, thinking that like the solution for this person might be just a hearing aid. Yeah. Well, I think especially, you know, coming from a private practice, the I think the greatest benefit towards private practice audiologists is getting integrated into the medical community because, you know, even like going to my, like, I think everybody feels isolated and wants a medical connection because like I went to my eye doctor and was talking about how I did concussions (laughs) and I got like five referrals from him in the next few weeks because I was like, if you ever get any like weird eye movements and you have questions about them, like I do that all day. And he's like, yes, like people are we are all just looking for somebody to refer our patients to when we don't know what to do. And people feel the same way. Like primary care is like, I don't know what to do if somebody's like ringing in the ears. So, you know, I think networking with our fellow professionals and allied health is huge because like, for example, a big one dentists, when they lay their patient back and people get dizzy, they don't know what to do. They're like, yeah, we just go slowly. Like I would talk to dentists and be like, Hey, if anyone gets dizzy, when you lay them down, it's probably the inner ear, like send them to me. And it's nice because, you know, for that dentist, they are also caring for the whole patient because they notice, you know, their other complaints, even if they can't help them, they can help find somebody. And so I just think that's really where audiology can move forward is by connecting with those other allied health and concussions, a great example on how you can easily do that. But I think there's a lot of other manners in which you can. Yeah. That's really, really cool is I'm, I'm just continually blown away by, um, you and you're a very impressive person and it's been really cool, uh, getting to know you through the podcast really, yeah, for sure. um, you know, over the course of the first hundred episodes and, and even before that. Um, so thank you so much for being a part of this and I yeah. look forward to connecting with you, uh, post episode 100. I know maybe at episode 200, we'll <laughs> episode 200. That's right. All right. Thanks, Liz. You're welcome. All right, so we are joined here by Amin Imlani. Amin was with us for episode uh, 89, I believe. So thank you for coming on then, and thank you for being here with us for episode 100, Amin. Um, So wanted to just kind of bring you on. At the time, we talked a lot about kind of the evolving hearing healthcare landscape and some of the changes that are underway, and wanted to get a sense from you of what's on your radar right now? What's something that you're either excited about or pretty interested in seeing uh, how how it unfolds, if you will? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, congratulations on your 100th podcast. That's uh, really exciting and looking forward to more. Um, you know, Dave, as, as you had sent out the invitation, I, I could have gone a number of different ways. And I think For me, what's near and dear to my heart has always been adoption. And I think the whole adoption, not only to technology, but to the services comes down to access. And uh, so I'm going to go down the road of access uh, to audiology services. And I've got a couple of things that I jotted down here uh, just to kind of to keep me uh, on on track here. Um, You know, and, and to me, the ability of the consumer 
to gain access to the audiologist and for the audiologist to have access to the consumer has been a barrier to the whole adoption process, right? Um, so just to give you a, a quick example, if we look at it from a consumer standpoint, you may have an elderly individual who is constrained by the fact that they need um, cerumen management, but they're tied up in the whole Medicare Part B component of, of the current healthcare system. They can't get the help that they need and they get frustrated, they shut down, and then they become socially isolated, not realizing that, uh, you know, uh, there are ways for us to get help to them, but they have to overcome barriers in order to get there, whether it's their children taking off time to get them to the appointments, transportation, or whatever the case may be. And then from the audiologist side, uh, you know, this this whole access uh, to, to care is, is, is an issue, not only from the legislative side, uh, but, you know, we have a we have a ton of, of patients who are rural and uh, the audiologist can't always service these individuals. Uh, you know, in pre-COVID, you know, telehealth wasn't such a big deal. Uh, and now that we're able to have telehealth, uh, we run into the issues of they may not have Internet access. So, uh, you know, the whole access thing to me, I think if we can solve that, we can help more and more individuals. And, and that's what really gets me excited is. I think the opportunities are just on the fringe. What is it going to take for us to kick that can over so that, uh, you know, we can help these folks. So what do you think are, you mentioned telehealth there. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of making those services more accessible or expanding those services to um, maybe other professionals like allied medical professionals that you can triage in a sense? Um, what What's going through your mind in terms of, what might be some of the breakthroughs in terms of how this is administered uh, more broadly? Yeah, so I'll start out with, with internal. I think the most important thing right now is for the profession to get MASA passed. So, you know, MASA is the Medicare Audiologist Access and Services Act. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, being an Academy of Doctors of Audiology board member, we were just at uh, Capitol Hill last week for our board meeting. Um, you know, we've got uh, it's a bipartisan uh, bill that's being supported uh, by about 50 ish. I'm doing this from memory, so forgive me, but about 50 ish uh, representatives and roughly 10 senators. Uh, so we were there uh, campaigning, trying to get uh, more folks uh, to engage in this. And then eventually, uh, you know, this bill will attach to something else and hopefully get passed as part of a, a larger uh, process. Uh, but just, you know, to refresh folks' memory, um, you know, Medicare uh, access, what it improves uh, is the ability for those beneficiaries who have uh, Medicare Part B to be seen directly by an audiologist instead of having to uh, go and get a physician's referral first. Um, you know, it also reclassifies this. This bill will reclassify audiologists uh, from being uh, just uh, diagnostic other uh, into also providing services because we don't get reimbursed for services. And that includes the room and management, which was one of the examples that I gave earlier. Uh, and then, you know, it's also going to elevate us into this practitioner status, uh, which is similar to what physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners, and social workers have. And by elevating us to the uh, practitioner status, it's going to take away this temporary hold that we have from the COVID Emergency Act uh, on telehealth and give it to us permanently. 
So it's a win-win for all of us. So internally, I think passing NASA will allow us to see these beneficiaries uh, in a way that we haven't been able to see them before. And I think it's really going to help them. Uh, to add on to your other piece, just really, really quickly, you know, I think we have to engage in other opportunities. Um, and that is through assistance and even through automation. Um, you know, we have a shortage of, of providers uh, in the United States. Uh, and the growth of the uh, hearing impaired population is growing at such a rate that we can't keep up. And so we have to find other tenable ways that are valid and reliable to give us information so that we can get these folks into the pipeline so that we can help them. And some of these things truthfully can be done by other professions. You all just have to be willing to give up a little bit of that space in order for that to happen. So do you think with, uh, with massa in particular, um, you know, if that gets passed, do you foresee there being, um, you had mentioned, you know, it would allow for more, reimbursement opportunities for various services um, and this practitioner status, um, will that, what other things, just kind of walk me through what that will afford uh, the pri provider for in, in terms of, does that open the, any other doors in terms of what they can do and expand their scope in any way? Um, or is it primarily just monetizing the current scope with, in terms of the government? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So, you know, the way that Masses is set up right now, it's not expanding scope. It's basically allowing us to practice within our full scope. But because we are designated solely as diagnosticians, we only get reimbursed for testing, you know, diagnostic testing, pure tone testing, and so forth and so on. But if somebody needs a therapeutic service, let's use cerumen management as an example, you can't do that unless you have a physician's order to do it. And if MASA passes, that is now lifted and you now have the opportunity to play within the box that's already there, given state guidelines, um, and perform these tasks and get reimbursed for it. So it's going to open up opportunities for rehabilitation, for real year, for cerumen management on all these things that we're not being reimbursed for now. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think for me, the thing that comes to mind here is that, you know, we know for a fact that there's a lot of underserved people out there. And I think that by making the services aspect of the providers day to day um, more financially incentivizing, I think that it's sort of, uh, it doesn't necessarily like detract from the hearing aid, but I think that it sort of re-elevates everything else to being on an even playing field, um, which I think is a very net positive long-term for the provider of today. But in addition to that, I think that it will, over time, the hope would be that more people, especially if you do start to reduce some of those current roadblocks, if you will, like you have to go and see a provider, I'm sorry, see a uh, physician to be referred to a hearing uh, professional, um, if you can start to remove some of those uh, those barriers, more people not only will have access, but I think that it will over time change the perception that the public even has about what an audiologist is designed to do. No, one hundred percent, and and I think we then you know uh, to your point, we then have a a different spotlight on us in the public health forum, uh, which then could you know. Um, help us with, with reimbursement rates. They typically drop a lot more for us because we are only servicing a small piece of the pot. Um, you know, opening it up 
there's more monies that have to be allocated uh, within within the pot. But we're not asking for an increase in in uh, uh, in fee structures or anything like that. It's just you know whatever Medicaid uh, is offering at this point in time. So um, I think it's going to open up a lot of opportunities. It's going to allow these individuals who have been serviced but haven't been treated, so have been diagnostically assessed, but haven't you know had gone through the treatment uh, intervention component, uh, will allow for that. And again, Masses also does not, uh, it, it, the, the bill itself uh, does not have an inclusion clause for hearing aids. So as we have OTCs and all these other things come into the market, I think it's ripe that these individuals who can't afford a hearing aid will be able to at least get some technology, but then get the help that they need in order to use the technology and make sure it's fit appropriately for their hearing loss. Because again, the system is going to allow for the, the provider to be reimbursed for that. And the patient can then you know move forward with the treatment that they need. That's awesome. So I guess just to close this one out, uh, with regards to MASA, where do things stand? What's the next vote? Um, what can we expect on that uh, for for folks that are are keeping a close eye on this? What what's coming next? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, so um, right now with the way that Congress is set up, everything's kind of on hold uh, with with all the things that are going on with reconciliation and and the Ukrainian war and so forth and so on. So the hope is, is uh, as Congress goes to, to recess here in the next couple of weeks and they come back, uh, someone will actually take a look at this and, and apply it to, uh, you know, as, as part of another bill. Uh, what that's going to be, I don't think anyone really knows at this point. I don't want to speculate and, and, and start any rumors or anything. But the hope is, is that they'll be able to attach it at this legislative session Again, we were there to to get some sponsorship and at least get it on people's radar, uh, and then uh, you know hopefully it'll pass as a function of this other bill and uh, it'll go into play here. But uh, we're really really close to having this thing uh, uh, be a part of our our uh, our scope uh, and expanding uh, you know our our opportunities to serve individuals within the scope of guidelines that are already here. Um, it's just a matter of time, my friend. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Amin. Thanks for coming on this time and being a part of the first 100 episodes of the Future Ear Radio podcast. I appreciate it. Man, thank you so much. Take care. Okay, so we are joined here by Angela Alexander. Angela, thanks so much for being on the podcast twice already this year. And thanks for joining me here for episode 100. Uh, what is up? What is on your mind? What's kind of on your radar right now with regard to the world of hearing healthcare? Awesome. Um, thanks a lot for having me. I love having our conversations. Um, I love that you see me as more than just auditory processing, even though that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I love the work in auditory processing and I feel like I am constantly having epiphanies. And what I'm most excited about for this episode is that you're just taking in all of our epiphanies for people to marinate on. And the epiphany that I would love to discuss is being comfortable with the gray area. So audiologists love black and white results. There's a lot of things where we have a lot of evidence-based data and information, and we can say, okay, this person has 
a type C tympanogram, it's negative 100, which by the way, there's also a type C2, which is negative 200 decapascals. Anyway, we love black and white in audiology, but I think that we need to realize that we have a lot of job security. If we can get more comfortable with gray areas, things that are not, not as easily quantitative because the more quantitative something is the more likely that a software, a technical device, um, a large corporation can take that over. And I think there's a lot of job security in auditory processing disorder because it's where that ear meets the brain and where the ear meets the brain, it constantly requires creativity and evolution and learning. And I think audiologists really enjoy learning more and meeting the client where they're at. And this is a great opportunity to do that. I love that. And I like what you said too. I am like a, I'm an epiphany aggregator right now. I'm just taking all your epiphanies and I'm compiling them all together, piling them up back to back. Um, but I, I think that's really cool. Like uh, I, I, you know, I really wanted to have you on because obviously APD is like in this vein of where are these additional opportunities that the profession as a whole can gravitate toward. And you're obviously at the forefront of auditory processing disorder. And so I wanted to kind of bring you on today and maybe give us your, like your bull case, your argument for why you think this is something that is so important to the future of this profession. And I love what you said there too, about like, if, if it can be quantitative, then chances are it can get it automated away. You know, it's just like job security is in that gray area. I think that's a really well weighed, really well said way to put it. Thank you. I'm a fellow collector of ideas, so I totally <laughs> appreciate this. And I'm going to love listening to this podcast, but yeah, I think that <laughs> for me, um, I am working with a lot of interesting case studies. And one of the epiphanies that I had last week is that I am never afraid to see a client. I think it can be easy to get afraid when you haven't done something before, but the way that I was taught by Dr. Jack Katz, he basically would see anyone with any kind of problem. He would assess them, get as much information as possible, and then see how many problems that were auditory in nature that he could fix. And so I feel the same way. Oh, you've got a person who's missing a part of their brain. Awesome. I'm into it. Oh, that person is nonverbal. Let's try. So I think the problem is that sometimes audiology, we, we get so stuck within our boundaries that we forget that the main thing we care about is helping people with their hearing and helping them live their best lives because they're able to connect with their loved ones. Right? So something that I'm finding interesting, I'm currently mentoring 140 audiologists on how to diagnose and treat auditory processing disorder. Okay. That's amazing. It is actually phenomenal, but part of that process, the very first thing I do is I evaluate these audiologists over telepractice and I check to see how their own auditory processing is because auditory processing evaluations are an auditory processing evaluation for the person doing the test. So we test them first. And I will not lie to you. A majority of audiologists, including myself, have at least one area of auditory processing difficulty. So then after that person's finished their test, I see, Hey, are you happy to try some treatment? 
and we create a treatment plan for that audiologist. And they, I mean, it's always important to treat yourself. Am I right? <laughs> um, so for me, my epiphanies are get comfortable with the gray area. Don't be scared to try to help a client. Right. And if you, you only do what you've always done, you always get what you always got. Right. <laughs> and, and I think it, a lot of times we think that the only way we can help a person is through amplification. And like, honestly, I think we should be doing a lot more with auditory training and Matt Hay, um, has an auditory brainstem implant. He's an amazing guy. Um, he taught himself how to process what he was hearing. He has a brainstem implant and over 16 years, he taught himself how to hear and understand speech based on music he remembered before he lost his hearing. And he has hearing and noise test scores of like 60% as of 2019. And then we started doing auditory training with him. Now, normally we'd be like, a person has an auditory brainstem implant. They're hearing through 12 electrodes, literally shocking their brainstem. And they're able to understand 60% of speech and quiet. Are you kidding me? Right. High fives, job done. We are amazing. This guy is amazing. Walk away, right? I am not that smart. So I was like, let's try auditory training. Um, and my favorite quote from Matt is he says, you know how it sounds like you hear, like most people's hearings, like a box of 64 crayons with a flip top lid and a built-in sharpener. But my hearing is like those three generic crayons that you get with the Applebee's children's menu. <laughs> right. So we started doing auditory training with him last year and we did 12 one hour sessions of basically helping him understand speech sounds because he, when he heard a speech sound, it sounded so distorted and his brain didn't know what to do with that input. So we slowly trained how he could hear each English speech sound. And we did retesting and found that his Im scores improved by 20 to 30%. That's insane. Like insane, like unheard of. In fact, he's just contacted Nina Krauss and he's like, Hey, Nina, I think you should hear about this. So literally the best thing that ever happened in my life happened last week on my birthday. I got an email from Nina Krauss and Matt Hay. And she's like, Angela, we need to talk. That, I mean, this whole thing is giving me chills. I know Matt personally. I know that, you know, he was on the podcast like 50 episodes ago talking about this story of him losing his hearing loss. Like it's like an NPR story. It's, it's a really sad story. Um, but he's an incredibly inspirational person. And I had seen from a distance, the stuff that you two were doing. And I was really hoping that we could touch on this. Like, I didn't know if that delved into too much of personal details with Matt, but it is so fascinating to me. And this gets at like, what I agree with you, it goes back to this whole notion of like, what can't get automated away. And this is so sustainable is whatever it is that you're doing with Matt seems to be like, so there's so much opportunity there. Yeah. And I would never talk about a client who doesn't give me full permission. Right. I figured. Um, and Matt is so awesome. I like, I tried to change his name to Mac for some of my, <laughs> some of my presentations. And he's like, why are you doing that? Stop, stop, just stop. 
Um, but no, he, he is an amazing human. We entered into this and it's another one of those times where I was like, you know what? I'm brave enough to try something. I had not worked with a person with an auditory brainstem implant before, but I'm like, what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? We're going to learn something from this. So, and you know, the first person, the man who came up with the idea for a cochlear implant was laughed out of the room, yeah. you know? So everyone has to be brave enough to try somewhere. And I recognize that a lot of the things that I'm doing revolve around instincts that I get from anecdotes, but we have to research has to start somewhere. So it's starting from these individual cases. And I want to tell you about an individual case right now that is currently blowing my mind. Let's do it. Okay. And this can be Mac. This can be Mac. This is Mac. We're going to call this guy (laughs) Mac. No, hilariously enough, my research assistant, Fatima and I call this man Norman lights. Um, because when my, when my daughter saw Fatima for the first time on zoom, she had the Northern lights behind her. (laughs) And Isabel said, I want to go visit her. What are those? I said, the Northern lights. And my daughter having a decoding error said, I want to see the Norman lights. (laughs) So this case study is called Norman lights. Okay. Um, he is a medical doctor who developed, who came down with COVID-19 and post COVID-19, he had brain fog for 11 months that was not going away. And he felt like what he was experiencing with brain fog was consistent with clients that he might refer for an auditory processing referral. He had never had an auditory processing concern prior to COVID-19. And he, um, so he actually went to one of my mentees for testing and sure enough, red flags for auditory processing disorder all over the place, like off by three standard deviations on most measures, like really severe auditory processing disorder. He then went through 12 sessions of auditory training. And normally when I'm talking about auditory training, I'm just like, and then he had these hours of hours of auditory training, but at the beginning, he's like, yeah, this is too easy. This is not going to get me anywhere. Can I get an app? So then the audiologist finds some apps says, okay, yeah, you could get these apps. So then into the therapy, he's downloaded the apps, doesn't open the apps, doesn't open the apps. Oh my goodness. Halfway through therapy, he's able to sit into in zoom meetings for hours and he's actually doing better hearing in the ICU. And it just keeps slowly improving more and more. And at the end of his first round of therapy, he tells the clinician that this has resolved his chief complaint. He no longer feels like he has brain fog post COVID and his auditory processing test results were within normal limits. So that's all through therapy training. And, and is this, I, cause I'm, I'm a pretty blank canvas when it comes to this. Like, I'm not that aware of what goes on with this. Can you just paint me a quick picture of what this entails? Yes. So what auditory training is, it's systematic training of the brain in order to understand auditory inputs. So let's say, for example, prior to treating Matt, if I said, repeat this sound back to me, b, 
he would say, ah, you know, he wasn't seeing my face. He was getting auditory only. And then what we were doing is systematically, we would do something called phonemic training. So the first step is at least help him get to know all of the sounds of English because, all right, each person has different problems. But if I say D, I want him to find a card that has the D sound on it and tap it. I want him to recognize it. And because we were doing all of this over Zoom, he would tap it and say D back to me. Okay, now B. Can you hear the difference between D and B? They're different sounds. One's a D and one is a B. And we want you to hear the difference between them. So we're slowly teaching them to not just be aware of sound, but to be able to hear the differences between sounds, to be able to identify them. And we need all of that to get to comprehension. So the first part is phonemic training, hearing the differences between D and B and A and E and M and N. So we train that for first. And you can think of it like circuit training, right? So we start with phoneme training. Then lots of people have difficulties taking speech out of background noise, right? So then get this, we have people practice repeating words back in different levels of noise. What? Amazing, right? Then we work with some short-term auditory memory, repeat these numbers back to me, five, eight, two, right? And then the person repeats that back. And then we end with another phonemic exercise. Let's take words and break them down into their individual parts. Let's bring those together. Let's take them apart. And so that is like a one hour training session. So it's like arm day, leg day, arm day, leg day. Right, right. Um, and, and you keep mixing up the tasks and, um, yeah, it's kind so, of so. So with Nor- with Northern Lights, uh, with this gent, um, what was so? How long did it take for if he was pretty uh, religious about this, doing this all the time, like every single day? He was actually doing his homework. How long did it take for him to say, like, I you solved my chief complaint? So he was actually doing one hour of work per week. Oh wow! Okay, for three months. And he was able to still feel like that was enough. Now he was doing this work one-on-one with the audiologist. Gotcha. Tested him. So this audiologist has just, this was actually, this is hilarious. This was her first client. Wow. Like how mind blowing is this? Like, I, I don't know. I was absolutely dumbfounded. I was so stoked for her that. Yeah. This is her first client. Stakes are high. It's a medical doctor. They don't have a lot of time during their week to do this work. Um, We are writing this case study up for the hearing review with Bob DeSogra, which is really exciting. Um, And so you will see other things come out about this. But once again, anecdotes aren't a high level of research, but it's at least where we can start our inquiry. And to me, if COVID-19 and auditory processing may have connections with each other through brain fog, holy cannoli, mm-hmm. that is job security unlike we have ever seen before. Right. That's just what keeps going through my head is that this is a great way to fill one's calendar every single week with things that people can't seek elsewhere. I don't know, like to your point, the problem wasn't necessarily amplification. <laughs> and so that's job security. Um my question then is, it's really exciting to hear that you're 
imparting your wisdom onto 140, I think you said, students. How how did this come to be and, and how is this progressing? Because that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it's really <laughs> crazy. Um, this part, um, so I call it Auditory Processing Institute, kind of embarrassing that I'm a little bit of a one-woman institute, although I do have some cool employees now. So nice. I'm a three-woman, I'm a three-woman institute. <laughs> um, Tom Goyne, um, I don't know if you know him out of Pennsylvania, um, and Megan Thomas, both Dr. Dr. Tom and Dr. Megan contacted me on the same day about three and a half years ago. And they messaged me and they said, Hey, do you teach a course on how to evaluate people for auditory processing disorder? And one 24 hour period, those two messages landed in my inbox. And I was like, okay, universe. Yeah. Um, right. Here we go. Let's do this. So I started it. Um, I started with a therapy course first. Then I did the evaluation course second. Um, and I've been kind of slowly building my own skills. And I've actually learned probably even more from the students than the students have learned from me. But we've got this cool, tight knit online community where we work together on cases, we throw ideas around. And I'm hoping that we can also be a centralized hub and resource for collecting data in an ethical way to find out which interventions are really moving the needle in auditory processing. Like my, I believe in what Jack Katz has taught me and that's where I start off with everything, but that's not where I end. I am absolutely happy to do any intervention that is going to bring improvement and results for our clients. And I think we have to be open-minded like that um, in order to take these clients on a journey that leads them to better processing. I just think that this whole thing is, it's really exciting for all the different reasons we've outlined here, job security. And I just look at this and I'm curious, like how has the, these 140 students, how have they responded to this? Are they looking at this and saying, this is really exciting and I want to pursue this. And I want, cause I look at the, the experience that you mentioned about your, the one, you know, men, mentee, mentee, I guess yeah. that was their first client that's like, that's so profound and life-changing that she knows it works. There's success that comes with this. So that will forever shape the way that she views this. And I hope the same for these 140 audiologists. That's really exciting. Our perspective audiologists. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I told you that like, I evaluate them online. So I actually did group auditory training for a group of audiologists with auditory processing issues. Um, a few months ago, I just completed and now I'm doing the retesting and finding improvements that happen from group work together. Nice. Um, so it's really cool. It's a really cool collaborative environment. The audiologists are saying to me, some of them are saying, oh my gosh, like I look forward to the day in my clinic where I actually get to do auditory processing. I wish I could do this full time. I had one audiologist who came to me and she said, okay, I'm going to come in. I'm going to do the testing. And then I'm going to hire a speech language pathologist to do the auditory training because either of us, it's, it's in both of our scope of practice, scope of practices. However, insurance can make that complicated. So it's way easier as a private pay. But what she said to me, she said, I'm going to bring on an SLP. She'll do the treatment. And then partway through, she was like, nope, nope, screw this. I'm going to hire a dispenser to work with the hearing aids and I'm going to do the testing <laughs> and the treatment because this stuff is so interesting. It's 
doing auditory processing work is a commitment to constant learning and evolution. Like when I do hearing aid work, I plateau. I'm not going to lie to you. I just do day in, day out. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not learning much other than when the manufacturer comes to teach me about their products. But what I love about APD is it's like each client is a different story. Each client, like every time I meet someone, I'm like, oh no, I need to write this up too. Like (laughs) Fatima, get your pen ready. Here we go. Um, So so, and by the way, I'm mentioning Fatima Abbas and she is in Lebanon. She is my research assistant, absolutely legendary human. <laughs> I just, I think this is so neat that, um, <clears throat> you know, almost like if, if you want to know how to be successful as a dispensing audiologist, then you should probably lean into all of these other, uh, ancillary peripheral things because like they ultimately might come and circle back to the solution is hearing aids, but it's, it's a much different conversation that you're having when you're like, we explored, it's not APD, you know, it's not something linked to your cognition, whatever, like you can run the gamut and that's so different. And this has been like, I think the reoccurring theme on this podcast is like, how does audiology survive into the future? Chances are the best possible way to do it is just simply adhering to audiology and like tripling down on all things audiology. The future of audiology is in the brain. Yes. I love that. The brain has the biggest amount of gray area. The brain has the biggest amount of potential. I mean, like I started a map back in 2008 to, to find where all of the audiologists were doing auditory processing work in the world. And there were 250 of us worldwide. And an ASHA survey showed that 1.4% of audiologists routinely do auditory processing testing. And then I updated the map in 2019 and expected a huge change, but it was still 250 audiologists. In fact, like some had like retired, some had added on, but like there weren't a lot of people still doing the work. And then, um, we're now up to 400. My goal is 500 by next year. Um, I want to have more people doing testing for children under seven years of age, because we know that auditory skills underpin reading and we want all children reading by seven. Why would we wait to test their auditory skills till then? That's just dumb. What, in what field are we like early intervention? Not for us. Terrible. Um, so I want more people doing testing the weird and wonderfuls. I want more people testing the young kids, more people working over telepractice, more people giving auditory training. Like I am excited because finally there is some way that audiologists can get out from underneath the burden of the somewhat boring sometimes amplification and get into the real good stuff. Like there are days where I get like goosebumps where I'm like jumping up and down excited, you know, like and these clients don't have denial. They'll come to me and they're like, I have a problem. Totally. No one believes that I have a problem. Yes. And, and compared to like a person who has a profound hearing loss where they're like, I, I, I can hear all right. Yeah. Right. But uh, that you're really getting at, I think like the, the heart of the whole thing, which is the narrative of like audiologies under siege, um, completely dismisses all of these new opportunities. And I think that like the, the, the blueprint for audiology is actually very straightforward. It's like hearing aids can still be a part of it, 
But I think that we need to elevate all these other things because to your point, the audiology, whether I think we want to admit it or not, has a bit of a perception problem in that it's very pigeonholed into just being synonymous with hearing aids. And I think that as soon as the, the, like the profession as a whole can reclaim the entirety of what it's intended to be for and, and really get into treating, like you said, every kind of person, there's job security there, there's profitability, there's in, you know autonomy, independence. You go down the list of like, it will solve everything that people claim to be sort of like under attack. Absolutely. We have been operating at just the tip of our scope of practice for so long. And yeah, we kind of have to go back to our roots because there's some good stuff in there and we, we've kind of forgot it along the way. But, um, I, I heard a quote once about tinnitus, um, and, it's from Richard in Iowa. Come on, come on, Richard Tyler, Dr. Professor go. Richard Tyler in, in Iowa. And he said, if audiology doesn't own tinnitus, another profession will. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's exactly the same about auditory processing disorder. There are other professions that want to take this. They want right. to be the ones like audiologists are the only ones who can diagnose auditory processing disorder, but occupational therapy, psychology, neuropsychs, they want to be able to test for this. And if there's only 400 of us in the world doing this work with more than 300 million potential patients, that is job security, my friends. (laughs) That is job security, my friends. I agree with you. Um, this has been so awesome. I mean, really seriously, like the coolest thing about this first 100 episodes has been getting exposed to really smart people that have a totally different like mentality and philosophy on how this whole thing can take shape. And I feel very strongly that everything that you're saying and everything that you're doing is at the heart of a, it's a big part of, I think, how we can move forward and be, and feel confident that, like we're going to be fine for the long term. We as the industry that supports the hearing professionals, you know, and all the audiologists. And I just, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's extremely exciting to think about like, while that number is really low and it needs to come up, that also means that there's only 400 plus people doing this. So it's like, if you're an audiologist, what an amazing opportunity. There's so much, so much potential there in terms of the amount of people that need you. Yeah. And it's not like dizziness. I mean, like Richard Gans is doing amazing things with the American Institute of Balance. Like, and that is a great way to diversify. And if I'm honest with myself, the person who made me think about diversification to begin with was Richard Gans back in 2007. He was like, hearing aid companies don't want us. They want to get rid of the most expensive part of the hearing aid process. Like they want to go direct to consumer. He was saying that like the wisdom of Richard. Yeah. Nostradamus (laughs) over here. Can I just say that? I think that auditory, there goes my dog. Auditory processing is a perfect way to pivot. If you are doing dispensing. Because it's the same kind of skills and abilities that you're looking at. You're just going a step deeper than awareness. You're looking at, can they discriminate sounds? Can they identify sounds? We we're just trying to pull them all the way up. Erber's model of auditory skill abilities. And I think the main thing I want people to come away with is do not be scared of the complicated patient. 
do not be afraid of the gray area. The gray area is what's going to give us comp. It's going to give us the ability to be creative in our profession, to solve other people's problems. And when we are creative, not only are our clients' lives better, so are ours. Boom. Mic drop. Angela, thank you so much. For real, this has been great getting to know you through the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on here for episode 100. And uh, we'll have to have you and your dog back on <laughs> for, for an episode in the not too Every time. Bigger. <laughs> He's so hilarious. He's like, I'm pretty sure I should get brunch right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been you great. are so welcome, Dave. Cheers. All right. So we have Brian Taylor here. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Uh, you were with us for episode 75. Great to have you back here for episode 100. Um, so real quick, just wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself again and tell the audience who you are and what you do. Yeah. Thanks, Dave, for having me on. Uh, my name is Brian Taylor. I'm the uh, director of audiology at Signia. I also am the uh, editor for Audiology Practices, which is the ADA publication, comes out four times a year. I've been doing that for about 15 years. And then uh, along with you and a lot of other great people work at um, uh, Hearing Health and Technology Matters. This Week in Hearing, I write some things from them as an editor at large. So uh, a longtime audiologist, and uh, it's great to be with you. Um, thanks for inviting me back. Absolutely. Yeah. This week in hearing has been a lot of fun. I know that um, I just recorded one of these with, uh, with Amin and Lani, and that's just been a lot of fun building that channel and bringing more and more um, people into the mix of, you know, having different hosts and different topics covered. So if anyone's unaware, um, there's another podcast that uh, myself and others do called This Week in Hearing. So be sure to check that out. Um, but wanted to just bring you on, like I said, for episode 100 and get your thoughts on kind of what's top of mind for you. Um, you've been having a ton of really interesting conversations on This Week in Hearing. So I'm sure some of that might dovetail into our conversation today, but just share with us like what's on your radar right now. And, um, you know, in terms of kind of like what's kind of getting you excited or at least uh, just coming top of mind for you? Yeah, sure. I can think of a, a few different things. Number one, um, I think that uh, automation is starting to really change how we practice audiology in a big way. Automated testing, uh, self-fitting hearing aids. Uh, I think those are some really interesting areas uh, that take may, away maybe some of the, uh, the mundane aspects of, of, of uh, what we do in the clinic. Uh, puts them in the hands of the patient, maybe with some clinician oversight. You know, I think about an audiogram uh, and the, the, the traditional assessment can take about 30 minutes. Well, I think we have tools out there now that not only shorten the time, but uh, provide a test that's just as accurate as what comes from an experienced audiologist. So I think you're going to see more of a ramp up around that. I think that the same thing with hearing aids, when you go to, when it comes to programming and adjusting, I think, you know, if you can put those tools in the hands of a patient and they can do it uh, just as, or maybe even more effectively than what a clinician does, uh, that's great. That frees up time for us to spend it uh, empowering our patients, uh, guiding them through the process of change, all those really important things that are needed for somebody to be um, a successful hearing aid wearer. Um, anyway, that's one area that I think is really exciting. Yeah, let's uh, let's actually just pause here. We can keep going, but uh, let's 
unpack this one a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I do think this whole point around automation is really interesting. Um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts. So as we move toward a world where, like you said, some of the day-to-day tasks that have uh, historically been a part of the hearing professionals day-to-day, um, as more of those potentially get automated, it seemingly would free up more of their time. So where do you think that time can be spent? Yeah, well, I think uh, you think about people that have had a hearing loss for a long time, for an example, take an average 75-year-old person who's maybe been dealing with a hearing loss for 20 or more years. Uh, it gives you more time to talk about uh, all the why they've acquired some of these maladaptive behaviors and how you can go about trying to uh, more effectively change and improve upon those behaviors that they've acquired because they haven't been able to hear for a long time. Um, I think when it comes to helping a person wear new devices, there's all kinds of opportunities to make it more customizable, uh, you know, focus exactly on what's uh, getting in the way of that person being a successful hearing aid wearer. Um, I think those are helping, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm starting to really wrap my head around this whole concept of empowerment uh, what it means in the clinic, the process of empowerment, the concept of how what an empowered person looks like. I think there's all kinds of opportunities for audiologists to um, help a person become more empowered, um, help help paint the picture of what it looks like to be an empowered individual that wears hearing aids. Uh, and that's completely shifting away from the X's and O's of the audiogram and all the programming that's needed I mean, obviously all the X's and O's and the programming is important, but if you can automate it, put it in the hands of the consumer in an easy to use format, uh, why not do that and uh, let the audiologist uh, practice on the individual and some of the uh, characteristics, behaviors that drive that individual. I love too how you said that, um, you know, with this, you're going to have... you know, empowering the patient. And the first thing that really comes to mind with everything that you're saying is like this trend that's underway right now where you have these, you know, like platforms like iOS, you have in Apple Health, you can upload your audiogram. And, you know, I think about how it's such a black box uh, today. You know, you go into the audiologist, chances are you're going to get an, uh, you, you know, you're going to get a test, but then you're going to get like an audiogram, which might be a little bit not so user-friendly, might be kind of confusing for them to read. So they're sort of at the, they're at the whims of like, I need to come in periodically and, 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 and hear from you in terms of what's going on with my health. And I would challenge like that whole approach. Like if you actually provided the patient with a clear understanding of <clears throat> here's exactly where your hearing sits today. And I think the promise of, of something like Apple Health having like these audio, this ability to upload audiograms and maybe down the line, you can consistently repopulate that doing an online test or something like that is you can start to compare sort of like a year over year analysis of like, okay, maybe I can start to visibly see some of the deterioration in my health. And none of that, in my opinion, detracts from the role of the professional, which was never necessarily just to provide the test. It's to make sense of it. It's to provide that assessment. And I think that's Mm -hmm. just one real small example of this, of that empowerment, like you mentioned. 
Yeah, no, that's a great example. I'll just tell you, there was a study published like a month ago. Um, Judy Dubno, research audiologist, University of North Carolina Medical Center, was the lead author that looked at uh, uh, hearing screening. And it, it, it really, I think, showed in a compelling way that uh, you can have, there's a number of really well-designed, many of them automated hearing screening tools out there that show a person, yes, I have a hearing loss, but what if you don't have a person involved in explaining and getting and helping the person kind of paint the picture of why they need to take the next step, why it's important to go in for a more elaborate assessment, why it might be important to acquire hearing aids, if that professional is not involved in the equation, equation the uptake of moving to the next step is really low. Uh, most people, a lot of people will take the test, they'll get the results, but without the professional involved in it, explaining the why, they just don't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, and again, I think that that's like uh, the exciting part about this is that if ultimately, you know, you're focusing more on um, freeing up time to focus on the why, uh, you know, whether it be through more time in a consultation, more consultations in general, because you're not having to spend time doing the what more or less like executing the actual test itself and all of the man manpower that goes along with that. Uh, I just, I think that it ultimately um, allows for the provider to actually free up more time on their pure value proposition to begin with, which is their consultation and expertise. And mm -hmm. so I think that, again, it's like, this is just one specific example is the hearing test itself, but I can see how there's a series of this uh, will apply as more forms of the day-to-day -day gets automated. Um, it's not as if that time just evaporates, that time will get reallocated. And I think that's what's really exciting now is that we kind of have a little bit of a blank canvas as an industry, I think, as to, I think a lot of providers are sort of grappling with this right now is like, okay, so if you're telling me that in a 40 hour work week, I'm going to get six hours back, you know, over the course of the next one to two years, beat through automation, through a variety of different automations, like what would I do with those six hours? And I think that there's a lot of people at a crossroads right now trying to make that decision. Um, you know, do you go into a more ancillary part of the overall scope and, and you kind of double down in that area? Do you broaden, you know, the, the services that you provide? Um, so it's a more holistic offering and that's going to be part of the way that you differentiate your market. So all of this, I think, is to say that there's not like a real clear definitive answer. I think there's a variety of different things that you can pursue, but they all sort of are culminating, I think, around this fact that you're going to have um, more time freed up in the clinic. I hope so. And I think one of the dilemmas, and I don't really have the answer to this, is you got this extra time freed up. Now uh, you can see patients and do different things. Are you going to be reimbursed for that? I think that's an issue right. we have, that we have to tackle as a profession. Um, you know, it would be at lobbying at, in Congress or working with third party payers, but uh, they have to be able to see the value of our provision of those counseling like services that it's more than just fitting a hearing aid or doing a hearing test. And that's going to be a real challenge, I think. So you had mentioned before we jumped in and kind of unpacked that one, it sounded like you were going to continue going. So what else is on your radar? Yeah, there's a few other things. Uh, I think that it kind of along the lines we've been talking about here, I think that uh, you're going to see the, the elimination or at least the, maybe the easing of some of these silos around uh, cochlear implants. Uh, that's the one I think about the most where, you know, now we're since implants have been around for 30 or so years, 
there's been audiologists that have kind of specialized in that uh, very small select few of audiologists that were only involved in implants. And I think now, maybe because we're forced to because of some of these market uh, changes in the market, but um, I think audiologists, hearing care professionals in general really need to take a more holistic approach and be involved in not only the day-to-day -day of routine audiology care, but also cochlear implants, uh, especially for adults. Uh, the, candidacy, the candidacy requirements have broadened. A lot of people that have severe, profound hearing loss that really struggle with their hearing aids don't even know that they're cochlear implant candidates. And uh, that shows you there's kind of a disconnect between uh, what the experts are saying around candidacy requirements and what's happening in the field. Um, and I, I think we just have to broaden our scope of practice and make sure that we're in, involved in that. Uh, and that's one end of the equation. And I think on the other end of the equation, it's our involvement in uh, OTC and self-fitting hearing aids. Um, the way I look at it, uh, it, it's a great opportunity to um, broaden the number of people out there that would uh, need our help with having OTC as part of your, in your toolbox. And uh, I think of the world, you know, OTC happening, self-fitting hearing aids happening, that you can kind of divide patients into two categories. People that want good enough and they're willing to maybe buy it off the shelf, maybe buy it off your website. They're okay with it not being, uh, you know, optimal benefit. Uh, they get by, it helps them in situations where they really need it and they're, they're, they're perfectly okay with that. And then I think there's another category of patients that want customizable, optimal benefit they want to spend more time. They're willing to spend more money to get expert care and attention uh, from a licensed professional. And I think having OTC in your toolbox allows you to work in both of those buckets, people that want good enough and people that want customizable care. I like all that. I think that it's, uh, you know, focusing on the two, you know, bookends, if you will, of the spectrum, um, because I do think that there's a lot going on there. I mean, the... I have never mentioned it on the podcast, but the whole, um, you know, uh, I'm blanking on the word here, uh, for cochlear implants, the, um, the new rules more or less, can you speak to that really quick in terms uh, of, cause this is a really big deal. Well, I, I, I think it's important to remember that pediatric guidelines are different than adult guidelines when it comes to cochlear implants. And, uh, I think pediatric uh, audiology is a different, almost a, a separate uh, set of expertise, of, of a separate set of skills. And uh, so I'm not going to speak to that. But when it, with respect to adults, um, it's called the 60-60 guidelines. Um, if the peer tone average is uh, worse than 60 dB, if the word recognition score is worse than 60%, that would be um, two uh, indications that the patient is a candidate for a cochlear implant evaluation, and that would prompt a referral uh, to a center that does cochlear implants. And uh, so if you're a professional, if a patient meets those two criteria, they should be referred somewhere in your area where they can get an, a, a CI evaluation. It uh, doesn't mean they're going to get a cochlear implant, but it means they would go through the process to see if they're a candidate. Um, and then I know that Cochlear Americas has a really interesting program where the referring audiologist is actually still involved in the fitting and, or the, the, the mapping, the programming and the follow-up. Uh, they have uh, an interesting program that I think uh, audiologists 
I think more and more of them know about it, but uh, it's a really good program that kind of keeps them involved in the process. Uh, but the bottom line is there are a lot of people, a lot of adults out there that struggle with their hearing aids that are in this category that don't even know that they might be a cochlear implant candidate. And it's really imperative for the profession, for the professionals to be aware of those new guidelines and make the necessary referral for the CI eval. Yeah. I mean, like, again, the thing that's going through my head here is uh, how do you differentiate in this increasingly crowded market? And one I think pretty effective way to do that is to uh, basically practice the full scope of audiology. And um, because you know that you can kind of go down the list of your competitors and there's few competitor types that would be able to check all these different boxes. And in that in and of itself, I think is a strong point of differentiation um, is that you sort of are a one-stop shop that can treat any variety of the people that come through your doors. And to your point, you know, so you have the, the most sophisticated end of the spectrum being cochlear implants and the highest degree of, you know, basically medicalization um, necessary for that. But then on the other end, you have a lot of the OTC offering. And I think like with, with that, the big question is like, how do you make it work financially? I think a lot of people are are excited by this prospect of getting, uh, establishing the relationship early, knowing that this is usually a progressive thing that people are going to just increasingly warrant your services over time. So it might be best to kind of like lock down that relationship early. But I think a lot of where the rubber meets the road is like, how do you actually make it so that you can charge for this in such a way that it's not only financially viable for you as the professional, but it's something that's compelling enough to where people will look at this and say, oh, okay, yes, I could go and I could do all this myself. And I could go into whichever name, big box retailer, whatever, or online retailer and uh, do this myself. There has to be some sort of value proposition of why you should go and see the professional, whether it be customization, like you said, and programming, something like that, um, consultation. So it seems to me that the, in, in all practicality, like these things make sense, but it's a matter of how do you actually iron out the details knowing the devil's usually in the details with how do you make this work. Um, but the, I think exciting thing is like everybody's kind of in this boat uh, to a certain degree. And so I think that you're sort of seeing um, some of the early movers figuring this out. And I think that probably will ultimately kind of cascade down into the profession writ large. Yeah, no, that's the that's one of the real benefits of the free market economy is that there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of potential disruption going on, and then uh, folks need to pay attention to podcasts and webcasts like yours so they can kind of see what works, and then um, implement that in their own practice. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with uh, with all those points. Um, but anyway, Brian, thank you for coming on. Thanks for being a part of episode 100 here. Appreciate your help. Uh, in getting me up to this milestone. And uh, I'm looking forward yeah, to- Yeah, congratulations, David. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. So I'm looking yeah. forward to all the upcoming yeah. uh, This Week in Hearing episodes that you're going to be doing. They've uh, they've been yeah, very entertaining good. and enjoyable. <laughs> Thanks Take for care. the invite and uh, best of luck on the next 100 episodes. <laughs> Thanks, Brian.
All right. So we are now joined by Ashley Hughes. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast thus far. You were on with me on episode 71, you and Natalie Nelson on uh, collaborative negotiation and also some tips and tricks around student debt. Um, that was an awesome conversation. And, and the thing that really stood out to me, and I'm excited that we're able to have this chat today is I think you're such a good um, example of somebody that has really prioritized career development. And I know that you were recently accepted into the JFLAC class of 2022. So huge congrats to you on that for real. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe share what JFLAC is, um, some of the reasons why you were pursuing that, and then just kind of how it ties into the broader theme that we talked about on episode 71, which is like really um, pushing yourself to do more and, um, and, and prioritizing career development and some of the benefits of doing that ultimately. For sure, definitely. So I'll start off with your first question. And first of all, thank you also for having me back. I love talking with you and I love being on your podcast with you. So any opportunity, you know, I'm in. Um, JFLAC, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the Jurger Future Leaders of Audiology Conference. And it's put on typically every two years by the American Academy of Audiology. Naturally, the 2020 class was canceled um, <laughs> along with the rest of our lives as we knew it at the time. Seriously. <laughs> Um, so JFLAC is a leadership weekend um, that's it's hosted in Reston, Virginia at the Academy headquarters, um, and it's designed, the program's a little bit different from my understanding every two years. It's in September, so I haven't yet participated in it, but the goal is to help us grow our leadership skills, our confidence, and then build these long-lasting relationships and network with other peers in the field so that we can continue to provide benefit to our profession um, as we are no longer future leaders, but actual leaders of audiology. Yeah, totally. Um, and so what made you want to even pursue this in the first place? Honestly, I think a lot of really great role models. When I was a graduate student, I remember as a grad student, um, and I apologize to anybody's name that I miss because every audiologist that I've come across has influenced me in some way or another. But I remember seeing names like Jason Galster, Lindsay Jorgensen, Lori Zatelli, things like that, who popped up as past JFLACers. And I remember wanting to make an impact on our profession the way that I felt like they made an impact on our profession. I personally feel like it's our responsibility, each of us, to make sure that we leave the profession the profession in a better in a better space than we found it. Um, and so I saw what this class was doing and, and everybody graduating and the impact they were having on the field. And I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And so I know I've shared this with you, Dave, before, but on my graduation date in 2014, I went six years forward on my Google calendar because you have to have six years of experience at least to apply. And I set a reminder um, for myself to apply in 2020. And then in 2020, I did get all of my materials together and then <laughs> it was uh, canceled. And so some very lovely people had the opportunity to write me not one, but two letters of recommendation for the same thing. That's really cool. And I think that um, it's just neat to have a chance to meet people throughout this podcast. Like I've been doing it since 2019. So three years have passed and to see kind of like some of the milestones that these people that I've met throughout the podcast have achieved is really fascinating to me. Um, it's just kind of like I get to cite back to when I met you the first time and then like, here we are. And now you're part of this new, uh, you're, you know, your new class of, of JFLAC. And it just strikes me as like, you're going places. And I think that what's really cool about like in the information age we live in is 
you can share this stuff pretty easily and, and communicate it out. And hopefully somebody will listen to this and be inspired by you. And I think that's really neat is like, you might not even be aware, but somebody might be listening to this right now and being really motivated by what you're doing. And so do you want to just speak to that a little bit about like kind of this idea, like you said, leaving it in a better place and this idea of like, just kind of like pushing yourself a little bit to, 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 to just keep moving yourself out of the comfort zone. For sure. Um, first of all, I'm a person who has a lot of anxiety. So when something is out of my comfort zone, it does, it does make me very uncomfortable. I'm sure we have some listeners who can relate to that. I have found that for me personally, forcing myself into those situations eventually relieves that discomfort. Um, so as an example, public speaking, something I used to be really, really scared of, I would practice my speeches so many times that they sounded like I was reading them. But as I've just forced myself to do public speaking more often, I have become more confident in my skills and honing in on the way I want to present on stage. Um, recently, I read something about work-life balance and how it doesn't exist. And I am, as you know, I'm a big proponent of setting boundaries and work-life balance and finding, you know, yourself outside of who you are professionally. But the thing that I read actually said something along the lines of, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's all life. We need to find balance. And it's true. We're going to be working until we retire, um, if we're fortunate enough to be able to retire. And so if I'm spending, on average, a third of my time in audiology, realistically more because I am a, a volunteer addict, um, I want to enjoy that. And so I'm going to do what I can to make audiology a better space, not just for me, but for my colleagues as well. Um, so I, I think a lot of times we'll see on social networking and things like that, people will talk about our national or state organizations using the terms like they, they should do this. But that's our responsibility. This is our profession. And even though those organizations have staff, we should be leading the direction of those organizations. And so um, I, I truly feel like it is our obligation to do things like that. And I know we can't force anybody to volunteer, but for me, it's a passion of mine. Yeah. I love that whole notion too, of like, if you're already going to be allocating a third of your life to your work, you might as well do something that you really enjoy. And that probably comes off as like, wow, you're so privileged to say that. And I am, but I'm, I think that, you know, there's uh, a lot to be said about like, just trying to you know, feel as if what you're contributing is part of something bigger. And I get that from you uh, in a big way. Like, I feel like a lot of what you're doing is like a lot of your motivation is for the betterment of those that are going to come after you, because it seems as if that's something that was instilled in you maybe is like that. It's like the idea of like, you know, uh, clean up the, clean up your trash, you know, like for the next person that comes along. So you don't leave that, that space dirty or something like that. There's just a lot to be said for this idea of like, um, you know, kind of like making it better for the next generation. I know something we talked about last time was like the idea of if everybody um, kind of comes and does some of the collaborative negotiating tactics that you outlined in that episode, it actually is sort of behoovement. It behooves all of uh, these, this type of profession, because it's like you said, the rising tide lifts all ships. It's, um, you know, it helps to establish a new, a new like average of what people get paid. And that's exactly. just one example of it. Um, but it seems like that's very indicative of the broader theme here. And I feel like there's, 
professional benefits to that. Like it helps you to climb the ladder and you can get, I think you can um, achieve more and you get noticed more, but it seems like it might just be more fulfilling. Um, I was going to say that, that I think that to me, at least professional growth leads to personal growth, personal growth leads to professional growth. If I'm working on my leadership skills, which includes communication skills, I would say, then I think all of my relationships professionally and personally will benefit. If I learn how to be a more active listener, um, all things that lead to good leadership, but also in a lot of ways, just being a good person. Um, And something else that you touched on that I really thought was interesting is the being able to volunteer is a privilege and you're right. I'm lucky that I don't have to work two jobs to pay my bills or um, the fact that I'm child-free by choice gives me more time to give to these organizations. I also think it's important for all of us, myself very much included, to remember that volunteering isn't a competition. Um, just because somebody else volunteers on five committees doesn't mean that your one one committee of volunteering isn't giving just as much to the profession. I don't think it's about hours or number of committees or how long your CV is or anything like that, but really just making sure that you're trying to give back in some way. Do you think that um, sticking on that point a little bit with, you know, just giving back in some way, like for, I feel like sometimes I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody that is like, they hear this, they're interested in, but they don't know where to start. What are some good places to go to even kind of understand what kinds of opportunities exist? Um, You know, is it all like within the Uh, I guess it's all up to you in terms of what you want to do, but do you have any uh, advice for somebody that would come to you and say, I'm, 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 I'm kind of picking up what you're laying down. I want to, I want to do what you're saying here, but where do I, what, what kinds of opportunities exist? Maybe outside of just the run of the mill, like you can join your um, state chapter or whatever that might be. Um, So state organizations obviously are a great place to start because a lot of those decisions that impact our scope of practice are made at the state level um, and just ensuring that, that your membership is getting what they want out of it. But you could also reach out to the local AUD programs and see if there are students looking for mentors or um, if you can guest lecture in somebody's class. I know that there are professors who post on social media when they're looking for audiologists to help with practice interviews for students. Those are just some of the examples. I, I love I love both those. I mean, mentorship in particular, I think is so big. Like I, I wish there was more of a, like that seems to be an opportunity, maybe even a commercial opportunity is somebody could create a program that's all about like, um, you know, basically matching people to a mentor. Um, because it seems like so much of this is, there's a lot of wisdom to impart. A lot of people are like, the, you kind of learn through experience and it's like, that would be really beneficial, I think, collectively uh, to the profession if some of that wisdom can be imparted rather than people have to like, you know, just go through the exact same experiences. Um, so that's a really, really good one that you touched on there. And I love the idea of guest lecturing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, again, kind of like where in today's day and time, like what's really exciting. Um, I'll go back to the episode that we did together. That one came to be because you approached me and you said, like, I have this topic, you and Natalie both were like, we would like to basically um, do an episode and and on this topic. And I think that's really exciting in um, from a macro view is like, you can kind of develop your own uh, thing that you want to be branding as like you can kind of this is the thing that I'm really passionate about whatever that might be and it gives you the ability to kind of establish a little bit of a platform for yourself of like you know uh I'm 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 trying to kind of build expertise around this particular subject matter 
And maybe it's like, I want to go on a podcast or it's, I want to do something on audiology online. Um, so I think there's like some really cool avenues that you can pursue for that initial building block. Agreed. And I also think, um, that it's something important to keep in mind is your mentor doesn't have to be an audiologist. If you're looking at starting a private practice when you graduate or you're 20 years in and looking at starting a private practice, find find somebody with a business degree if you're unable to find an audiologist who's able to mentor you. Um, or if you're really interested in the marketing aspect of it, find somebody in marketing who can mentor you. Um, because audiology, we always talk about how small it is as a profession and it is, but it's also really big and there's space for all of us to carve out you know, our, our specialty, our subspecialty, and it doesn't necessarily have to be directly related to audiology. We talked about how negotiations, mentorship, um, inclusivity, all of these are parts of, of healthcare that we should be addressing as a profession. Could not agree more. Um, well, Ashley, this has been really great. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been really cool getting to know you through this and uh, kind of following along with what you're focused on and what you're doing. And so thank you so much and congrats again for, uh, you know, making it into JFLAC. That's just a really, really cool accomplishment. Thanks, Dave. And thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Okay. So we have Brent Edwards here live from the train station. Uh, Brent was with us for, I think it was episode 67, uh, panel discussion for the future of hearing health conference way back in April of 2021, um, where we talked a whole lot about kind of what's to come, uh, or back then what was to come and, and some of which has since come to fruition, uh, but wanted to bring you back on here, Brent for episode 100 here. I've always really enjoyed reading a lot of your work and your perspective coming out of the national acoustics lab where you work and, um, just kind of getting a sense from you of, what is on your radar right now? What's getting you excited about the, uh, you know, what's to come here in, in, in all things that you're focused on? Well, uh, thanks so much, David, for the invitation to speak at this momentous uh, episode. And uh, congratulations on the milestone. I really uh, enjoyed the, the episode. and You brought a lot of insight to the community. So, you know, what, what, what's getting me excited right now? Well, so, yeah, I've been uh, pretty vocal for the past, I don't know, 15 years or so, <laughs> that this, uh, this, this number that 70 or 80% of people who need a hearing aid don't have them is a false number. And it's based on a false premise, you know, that the audiogram is the determinant of need. And if you, you know, if you look at need in a different way, you come to different conclusions. But there's one thing that cannot be denied, that there's a lot of people out there who have a need for hearing help that aren't getting it for a lot of different reasons. So what gets me excited is the opportunity for all of us to help people who have hearing difficulty, but aren't getting it through traditional mechanisms. And I'm not just talking about OTC, even though that's one of them. There are also opportunities for clinicians and audiologists to provide different solutions than just traditional hearing aids. And also to diagnose uh, and assess hearing ability differently than just the audiogram. So at, at now, we're working on a lot of different approaches uh, in terms of understanding treatment strategies, but also understanding eligibility. We did a pretty large project for the Department of Health here 
who is the largest provider by far of hearing services and hearing aids in Australia, in order to define new criteria uh, for eligibility for hearing devices and, and hearing help. And I think the, the key theme that's going to be persistent over the next decade is not just new approaches to devices like OTC or AirPods, but new approaches to thinking about hearing ability and measuring hearing need. So either people can service themselves, but also so clinicians can service people who right now are standing on the sidelines and not being helped. Yeah, I like everything that you said there. So when you say that you think, um, you know, you're working with the, the government in Australia and, you know, what are they gravitating toward? What are you presenting them with that is either novel or compelling in their perspective of what, you know, in terms of what's different than what are already exists? Sure. And I'll give you a little bit of context. So they spend, the Department of Health spends about over 800 million a year on hearing aids and hearing services for Australians. And they uh, solicited an independent panel to assess the program and make recommendations for improvements. Now, I talked with them early on, and one of their thinkings was they need to increase the threshold for eligibility of the pure tone audiogram. So right now it's PTA of 23 dB, and they are thinking, well, who recommends 40? So maybe we should increase it to 40. Now imagine how many people would be left out of hearing healthcare if there were a dramatic uh, increase in the level of hearing loss needed to be eligible for hearing services. So I spent, I spent some time talking with them and providing evidence that the audiogram is actually a poor indicator of hearing need and that there are other life aspects. Now, the impact on your lives, you could have a measurable hearing loss, but have no impact on your life. You could have a minimal hearing loss, but be greatly affected by your hearing dysfunction. And, and it's a dysfunction that isn't captured by a pure tone threshold. It's a dysfunction of some other, other thing, possibly measured by a speech and noise task. So they were quite interested in this, this concept because it, it, it fits right, right well with person-centered care. Right. How is hearing loss affecting you as a per person? How is it affecting your quality of life? And quality of life is a very big term in healthcare when assessing treatment strategies and investments. So I think that resonated very well with the panel who consisted of MDs and with department who, again, are thinking more holistically about, you know, the, the needs of all Australians. Do you see the pure tone uh, audiogram as, as sort of being... Uh, something that we'll eventually look back on and, and that will be one piece of the puzzle. But do you think that that's part of the, I guess, the, the renaissance that might be occurring or, or is imminent um, in terms of just diagnostics and, and how we're speaking to hearing loss, broadly speaking? Well, the Pirtona audiogram is useful for a couple of reasons. One, it, it does give an indication of insult to the cochlea and it tells you how to fit a hearing aid if you go down that path. But again, it, it doesn't really, it's not well correlated with need or potential benefit for devices. So we're, we're, we're working on a strategy to, uh, to provide additional tools for clinicians in addition to the audiogram. One of the advantages at NAL is we're associated with Hearing Australia. We're a part of Hearing Australia, which has almost 200 hearing clinics across Australia. So when we test an idea, we can put it in some clinics and see how it works. So we are testing uh, additional metrics for the clinician to use to assess need and seeing if that um, changes 
the outcomes of the people that we're seeing and also actually opens the door for people that we're turning away right now because they don't satisfy the, the audiogram criteria for treatment. Yeah. So fantastic. I do see, uh, yeah. So I, I do see that eventually we will be using more than just the audiogram, not a replacement to the audiogram, but we absolutely need more. And it's been, I think, a, uh, a failure of the hearing researchers, myself included, to not come up with um, a, a better solution than something that, you know, has been around for a hundred years. Fantastic. Well, Brent, thank you so much. I'll let you catch your train, get on with your day there in uh, Australia <laughs> as, as my day sort of ends here. So thank you so much for coming on the uh, 100th episode of the Future Ear Radio Podcast. Appreciate it. All right. Best of luck, David. Thank you. Cheers. All right. So we're joined here by Kat Penno. Kat, you've been on the podcast uh, just as many times, I think, as Andy Bellavia. I think you two are tied for the lead in, in terms of most appearances on the Future Ear Radio podcast. So thank you so cool. much for uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of the, the podcast uh, for the first 100 episodes and for being here for episode 100. So wanted to just bring you on, give you a chance to, uh, you know, introduce yourself and share with us what's on your mind, um, what's kind of on your radar right now uh, in the world of hearing healthcare. Well, first of all, Dave, back on it. Congratulations. A hundred um, podcast episodes is no main feat. So that's huge news to celebrate and I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Look, I really enjoy the conversations you and Andy and I have. I feel like we've all been quite progressive. So these last couple of months, I have not just a couple of months, I should backtrack since since I've um, been in this profession, I have always been quite client centered. So I've jotted down a few notes that I'd like to present today, and this is where I see the holistic future or the broader future of hearing healthcare and then healthcare in general. I think these points will be applicable too. So I think the biggest drive, for change in healthcare is the change in consumer behaviour. So what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. And, and that term can be pretty broadly applied to all healthcare scenarios. But in particular to hearing health, I think we're going to see an increase in individuals wanting personalised data and personalised experiences. The one-size-fits-all approach won't cut it anymore. So how we deliver these services and products uh, cannot be done in a traditional bricks and mortar clinic in silos. And I think that our consumers, once they get to a certain point of self-management, will need the next level up of some sort of coaching, education, guidance. This is where the professional services comes in. I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a moment. So I think that individuals will be able to get to a certain level of healthcare understanding and management themselves, self-fit, self-serve, self-manage, and then they'll want more. And that part of where they will be wanting more is where I've always seen audiologists and hearing healthcare professionals fitting in. I think we've spoken in the past about coaching and what that looks like across every uh, avenue and, and country may vary. Because what we're really looking at, and I talk about this a lot, and I've just done a paper with Sophie and Justin, which will come out in a couple of months, which would be great. We talk about how to motivate behavioural change in our clients. So how do we get them to use and feel empowered to 
to be proactive or preventative in their hearing health and if if they're beyond that stage how to get them to use their healthcare devices like their hearing aids or implants in in a long-term sense and as a result of all this evidence-based practice will be very paramount so i think there's like a fine uh scenario where people will self-fit and self-manage trying all these piece apps on the market and whatever comes out in the next couple of years but um once we get to that, say, glass ceiling of I've done it all myself, I think there are better things available. Where will the professional come in and evidence-based practice again? I think there'll be this big convergence, you know, with other audiologists out there who are starting some really good movements of we've got to practice this certain way. Dr. Cliff Olsen has his, uh, his great niche happening there. I think those sort of practices will really have a ripple effect across um, what we see happening in hearing health. What's up? Um, on top of that, because that's one point, so the change in consumer ha- behaviour, we're already seeing um, people wanting to wear more devices, which lends to another question. We speculate this a lot in our industry at the moment, but what about the mass normalisation of hearables and hearing aids? When is that going to happen? In the next three to five years is where I'm still hypothesising this, but I said that probably a year or two ago with you and Andy. <laughs> I think there will be a mass normalisation of, of a hearable device on ears, but we're certainly not there. So I think, you know, three to five years from now, maybe 2025 plus, I don't know what that looks like. I think everyone's speculating. Everyone's really excited about this OTC Act to a certain degree, but it's a lot harder than we think, you know. Um, I think that hearing technology will continue to converge. We'll see this mass blend and less understanding of consumer versus medical grade so devices will just offer this standard which will be almost medical grade and excellent in terms of audio quality the data it collects the experiences it gives you and then how how those are sold or accessed by the population is is another question so and i think with all these these three main points, so the change in consumer behaviour, the blending or convergence of technologies or the hardwares, where does professional fit in? So I think audiologists and hearing healthcare professionals will be in great demand over time. Um, and so producing good quality, accessible hearing healthcare professionals is something we've got to be thinking of all the time. And... Um, you know, challenging the status quo of how they're educated and the curriculum that is delivered to them uh, wherever they're getting the education. And then I, I, at the same time, Dave, I always think, is there going to be a stagnation or a demise of traditional bricks and mortar clinics? And, um, you know, as consumers have this increase in demand of convenience, how do they access everything I've been talking about to the most effect that they can? those are things that have been on my mind and where where I really see our industry going. So I think it'd be very consumer-led. I think there will be a big change in individuals' behaviours, our consumer behaviour and what they want to engage in. And then I think there'll be a convergence from the professional side. So the traditional clinics will still be there. In fact, I think the acquisition in, in Australia anyway of independence has increased. So I don't think these clinics are going where I've never said they would. I think there's, they serve a purpose for sure. But the way they look and feel and these other services mm. they'll offer will, will increase and expand. So we'll go into these 
healthcare, this healthcare realm of this beautiful user experience, no matter what. So less clinic feel, more I've gone and had this beautiful experience and I want to share it with, uh, with my colleagues and peers and whatnot. I, I just think, think I, I think that's I really like the way that you sum that all up. Um, you came prepared. I like it uh, because I, I I think that you touched on a lot of things there, which is you know the empowerment of the consumer and the consumer sort of driving the change. <clears throat> and I think a lot of that's going to be enabled by this convergence, like you said, of devices. Where you know I think that the big question mark is going to be like, where do you fit in as an audiologist or a hearing professional in a world where um, maybe these self-fit devices are really good? Maybe they can be programmed quite easily. And so maybe your value isn't really in the programming of these devices. And it's more like what you said with coaching and like basically making people feel like they're getting the most out of these things, but also that they have in the same way that you have every other medical professional that you see throughout your life consistently is like the de facto expert for you for that part of your body. Um, and so, you know, when you go and you see the dentist, for example, you're getting your teeth cleaned, but you're also kind of getting checked on and, you know, you have that peace of mind that like all is well, and you can have a conversation with that professional about all the ins and outs of that part of your healthcare. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to think about like, you know, as if, if the market does, like you said, kind of eventually tip and the normalization of wearing these things, where what if we're a lot closer than we think to where maybe as a whole, we just sort of cast off the idea that hearing aids are synonymous with being geriatric and treating your hearing health through devices that look like hearing aids and things that look more like earbuds is, is totally normal. Um, you know, like, will that cascade to broader, uh, usage, more proliferation of these devices, therefore more people that ultimately might need and want that, like you said, you hit the glass ceiling and you're like, I've been able to manage this up until this point, And now I kind of, for whatever reason, I want more, um, that's where the professional, I think, has has a really strong role to play, but I don't know how defined that role is yet because I think that so much of the professional's role is still so rooted in the programming of the devices and the facilitation and the dispensing of the devices. And so again, I just think what happens when that maybe um, becomes less uh, less of a priority in the mind of the consumer because they can do a lot of that themselves, it doesn't necessarily detract from the value of the professional. I think it just shifts the value. And that actually might be a really big positive thing. So I'm right with you on this, that um, I think we're at a really interesting point in hearing healthcare, broadly speaking, where I think um, there's going to be, I think, a little bit of a renaissance in what the professional really does uh, with the bulk of their time. And I love what your podcast represents and um, all the guests you've had in, you've interviewed or you've selected to interview have been 
uh, it blows my mind, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. So you've, you've reached 100 episodes and you've interviewed some <laughs> really amazing healthcare professionals and experts in their areas and thought leaders. I mean, it's, it's already happening from the professional point of view. The way individuals are delivering their services um, is, is fantastic to see. You know, there's um, treble health out there who have their completely online services. Tuned has come into the U.S. market. Uh, recently is it um forgive me i'll I'll forget her name but whoever has started the mobile hearing health services like these ideas is and these um businesses that everybody's starting is what's also going to facilitate the education of consumers to come to audiologists or hearing healthcare professionals as the specialist in this area so you know these are individuals that in America predominantly and I just think gosh this is awesome that everyone's got the tenacity and um, the persistence to try something new because that's the best way we're going to see how things work is to offer these niche services four or five years ago we there was another guest who was doing concierge audiological services and I was like that's awesome Mm -hmm. you know you've got this premium service premium price point accessibility you know, you've, you've targeted that niche, you've thought about your business model and you're making it work. So I think, you know, I can't, um, every, all the guests you've brought on, I can't, um, I can't begin to think that there's no change that's not going to happen in a profession because the desire is certainly there. Um, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. The, the thing with, you know, this podcast has been that it's like, um, the the really interesting and cool thing about it has been that you know there was a time when i wasn't nearly as connected and familiar with who was who and so you you know i did an episode i i really i found you i found andy through twitter um and so i think all of us sort of found each other online and then formed actual relationships with one another and we've had great dialogue and i think that has sort of served as a little bit of a magnet for more people to kind of come into the fold. And, um, a lot of these people, you know, now we're really well aware of. And for me, I couldn't agree more with you that probably the thing that gets me most excited is knowing that there's some really, really smart people that are doing innovative things that are actually going to not only be, I think, really powerful for their own customers, but because we live in these times where we're, kind of like all online and it's pretty transparent and there's this level of collaboration. I feel like what you're doing and what a lot of these other people that are on this episode are doing will very much be, um, I think like, uh, facilitated and fostered in a a larger sense because other people are going to take bits and pieces of others ideas as they embark with their own things. So I think that that's a really encouraging development that's happening, like broadly speaking, is just this whole idea of people um, sort of collaborating and coming up with the future uh, collectively, you know, on and independently, but also sort of collectively and together, which is super fascinating, in my opinion. And to add that before we wrap up, I'm, I'm also, it's really cool to hold these spaces and have these discussions where um, we inspire each other and work together. I think it's awesome. It's also going to be really interesting to see where the big players in this space come from and manoeuvre and go because there's already been a lot of changes and pivots, um, not just from the hearing aid manufacturers, but 
the bigger consumer brands coming into this space. So I, I definitely look forward to doing our annual wrap up with the three <laughs> amigos, you, Andy, and I. Absolutely. And then, um, having a good debrief on that that later. But thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the 100 episodes. That is sensational. Thank you, Kat. I really appreciate all the different uh, chats that we've had, you coming on the podcast all these different times. It's been really, really fun doing this with you. So thank you. Uh, And yes, we will definitely do a Three Amigos chat later on this year. All right. So we got Brett Kinsella here. He is the founder and editor of voicebot.ai, one of the most prolific writers, podcasters, and thinkers of all things voice technology. Um, Brett was with us for episode 50. Really appreciate you coming on for that landmark episode and being here for episode 100 in this landmark episode. So Brett, I wanted to bring you on, just kind of get a sense from you. um, Looking forward, what's on your radar right now? What's on the horizon? What do you think is going to be interesting, you know, kind of as it relates to my world here uh, with hearables and in-the-ear devices and, and all things audio. Well, first of all, I have to say, Dave Kev, congratulations. 100 episodes. That Thank is you. That is persistence, right? I appreciate that. A lot of people launch podcasts. We know that. A lot in 2020, a lot before that. Very few get past 10. <laughs> Very few. You've and gone way past 10. <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. I and I have a special appreciation for this because the VoiceBot podcast is up over 260 episodes. We've been doing That's this amazing. Every week for five years. And uh, and it's great uh, to to have like this opportunity to chat with you. I know you like it because you get to talk to guests. I like it because I get to talk to people when I'm when I'm the host and I learn something every week. And then Absolutely. I like being on with you because I know I'm going to learn something too. So I, I'm the guest, but I might be asking you a few questions <laughs> today. Uh, so what am I interested in, and particularly in your space? And I would say that we've talked about hearables for a while, and I think there's different definitions of hearables. But one of the features that I always include in hearables is this idea of the voice assistant. And so that's not the top requirement of people who are buying hearables, right? Fit, uh, sound quality, price, um, ANC is sort of uh, moving up there a little bit. Uh, voice assistant access is kind of low in terms of what they ask for, but part of it is, you know, now all the hearables have some sort of voice assistant access. But why do I care about that in terms of voice assistant? Because I'm seeing the hearables as a new user interface. And that's the that's the really interesting thing about it to me. Yes, it can deliver audio content to you. And that's increasingly important. As we get into some of the other conversations I think we'll probably have today, whether it be AR or metaverse, audio content is only increasing, right? That's, there was a time when we just looked at our digital services and we read, you know, or we, we viewed images. I mean, you think about Instagram, how amazing that was but it's kind of out of step now. And they're trying to reinvent themselves because TikTok has that full audio visual experience and and Instagram was built on the the visual experience without the audio element. So there's so much audio content. I'm really excited about what's going on in that space, but I'm also particularly interested in hearables is interfaces. And so this idea that we don't have to touch and type all of the time that we can get to things that are very 
difficult or not, you're not able to get to through the existing visual interfaces. And, and assistants have been really great for that. And, and I think that there's a couple of different things we're seeing in that assistant space. First of all, we have these general purpose assistants that are conversational, you can go back and forth. But we're also seeing a lot more activity around the command and control. When you think about this voice user interface, where you're just basically accessing those digital services, like starting a podcast, really simply, like much simpler than picking up a device. And so I am still interested in this in particular. I'm interested in all the other things going on around synthetic media and those types of things. But I, I still think we're on the precipice of hearables being a really interesting new interface. And it hasn't moved much over the last couple of years, but I, it, but it seems to me inevitable that it's going to increase its level of, of necessity for a user. Yeah, I mean, I go back all the way to when I first met you, the whole reason I was in those uh, meetups and I brought myself you know, into the voice community was like the idea that, hey, um, I come from the industry of hearing aids and wouldn't it make sense to have a lot of this functionality eventually move and migrate from the smart speaker to the, you know, the mobile like computing device and what better of a modality than not necessarily just a hearing aid because AirPods were just kind of coming out at the same time. But I think that I've always um, maintained that position and I've always really appreciated the conversations I've had with you because you helped to think through the limitations of why that is and maybe not that feasible. But to your point, I think that as time has gone on, the more simplicity seems to be even, you know, like that seems to reign king, um, whether it's just starting a podcast, like you said, or just some kind of wake one single sentence that you're trying to do something that maybe takes a minute with your phone, not a full minute, maybe 25 seconds you can do within three seconds, but it adds up over the course of the day. The other area that I've uh, really found your take to be very interesting is around kind of the future of media. Um, you had just mentioned synthetic media, but just this idea that the whole web itself is now becoming uh, digestible in different formats. On our phones, it's primarily through, uh, you know, like with TikTok and Instagram, everything's video oriented. But I think that simultaneously, we're seeing this migration toward audio as well um, with podcasts. And uh, you had, there was that, you know, period where social audio, you know, maybe that will kind of come back. That was just like a spike partially due to the pandemic or something like that. But I do find this really interesting of there's totally new ways to consume media and, for me, again, it goes back to this idea of if you're kind of walking around with an all day device that's sort of innocuous, you can't really see it, it's invisible, uh, a la a hearing aid, um, it, it seems like, man, that's a really interesting use case that I think is only gaining steam uh, into the future. And I'd be curious to get your take on how you see more formats of media moving in that direction where you have just different kinds of, uh, of ways in which you can consume media via your ears more or less. Yeah. So let's start with devices because I think it's, there's an interesting thing going on right now. We have this idea of AirPods, for example, jewelry, you know, the, maybe the, well, certainly the top selling hearables out there. And, uh, and there's this idea of, okay, you can see it. Um, and that's, there's some benefit to that maybe, although the reason you can see it 
initially is because there's limitations in terms of what you want to do with the audio quality and some of the you know, battery life and some of those other features. Uh, I, I, one of the things I'm interested in is whether those actually do disappear. There will always be somebody who wants the larger thing to basically do some sort of social signaling. And you think about like Beats headphones, Monster headphones, like even as there were other options, people went to these bigger and bigger headphones because there was some sort of social signal that they were sending off. Uh, I, I do actually think that we're going to get to these more, these situations where it, you can't see it. And, and this is where the hearing aid industry, I think has an opportunity to become a consumer product company as opposed to a medical device company, which is, which is probably not what's going to happen. It's going to be the, the consumer product companies are going to like get into that space of like, you know, smaller and smaller hearables that you can't see. Uh, and then maybe into medical devices, we'll see. Uh, but I think that's that's really interesting because we're just seeing that evolution of the hardware and social acceptance of the hardware, which I, which I think is just as important as what's going on on the other side. So in terms of the media, you know, I think as you, as you will say, it's like, things that were only consumable visually before now are consumed by audio. Like the whole internet is consumed by audio. And we think about this idea of text-to-speech more and more, like how often have your listeners been to a website this last week where they could click a button and it will read the page to them, right? Now, I think in general, those are bad experiences, but it is available now. And that's something that, that didn't happen in the past. And there's no reason why we can't have solutions like GPT-3 and these large language models going through scanning full websites and then doing a synopsis of what's on those and doing that with its own language model to understand to like maintain in context. So think of uh, people in the US and some other places might be familiar with the Cliff Notes versions of books, right? What's the Cliff Notes version of websites? So I think that's really interesting. I, for many years, I've helped people with branding and one of the things I always do if it's a company and branding is like, look at all their competitors. And it's like, how do you figure out what a company is saying on a website? Ultimately, a word cloud turns out to be the best way to do that. So you just say, okay, so what are they focused on? What's their top level messaging? And it's, it's almost impossible to figure that out just looking at them because they all have different layouts. You have to scroll multiple pages. You do a word cloud and you're like, ah, this is what they think is important. And I think there's an opportunity there for some of these other solutions to come up and do this digest version. So not the word cloud, but some sort of audio summary. I also expect that to happen with podcasts. Why is it? I, I have a lot of hour and hour and a half long podcasts, a lot of them, <laughs> hundreds at this point, but not everybody wants to listen to the whole thing. It's a little too much work for me to go through and do some sort of selective editing. We can pull out a couple of short clips. But wouldn't it be great if there were a service that came up and said, hey, I can give you the seven-minute highlights, right? Now, that's a lot of manual effort to do that if, you're, if a human's going to do it. But some of these systems could probably do a reasonable facsimile and to start picking these things up so that I could get a digest version. I think that's that's super fascinating. And then we have all the other things that are going on where we have AI generated media, which is filling in the gaps uh, for 
things that are not being created by humans and are sometimes dynamic in that most of the media we have today is static. It's created beforehand. Then you, you interact with it, but there's no, you, you consume it, but you don't interact with it. Now we have all this thing around interaction. So I hit on a lot of topics there, hardware, dynamic mm -hmm. media, right? So I, I just think we're at the precipice of something that's really interesting. And audio is more important yet again than it was a decade ago. I think as we brought on some of the, the mobile listening, audio became more important. Uh, tools like ANC, voice assistants have made it even more important. But we're entering a period where people aren't going to settle for just visual images or just visual text anymore. They're going to want to have those that full multimedia experience. And audio is the big gap right now. I I, th I love like the two examples you gave there. I, I sometimes struggle with um, like trying to really ground what I'm what I'm uh, referring to with like why I think voice technology is relevant to everything that goes on in my industry. It feels esoteric sometimes, but to your point, that's exactly the way I'm imagining it is think about like pre-Twitter, you know, you had all these independent newspapers. So you could read a newspaper and you could gather your information that way. Now you can get a whole sort of aggregation of all the different publications that you want to read. And you get this, you get your own sort of tailored summary. Some of it's obviously driven by an algorithm that <laughs> might be a little bit questionable, but again, I think like, so you have like that, and then you have everything that you said about, um, you know, podcasting and this idea of, Part of the biggest problem I think with podcasting is you do have a lot of really good material that's out there, but not a really good way of surfacing that. That's why I was so excited about the prospect of everything that um, Audio Burst was doing, because I think that they have the right idea directionally. And so you kind of combine those two things like that's that's what I'm that's the way I'm thinking of it is, again, in a future going to the point you made about hardware is like if we're moving in this future where it's becoming really, really commonplace where people just wear things in their ears for extended periods of time. Um, the question is like, well, what do you do with those things today? It's like, well, you listen to your podcast primarily. And so you're consuming information. So it's like, well, then probably the improvements are going to come from the ways in which you consume the information. And that's where I think that everything that you said, you know, maybe like GPT-3 and uh, all of these new like AI engines will be the successors of like the initial voice assistants where it will be less of like, you know, Hey, blank assistant, do this for me. And more of an engine where you're like, all right, show me the news of the day. And it's going to have a personalized uh, response to that and give you, you know, here is of the last, uh, you know, these are like the 15 podcasts that you listen to. Do you want to listen to one specific episode or do you want a summary of the best of so you get like a dj of sorts that's playing portions of the podcast for you and you're like okay that's interesting seven minutes of you know this episode with mark Andreessen, and then seven minutes of brett interviewing somebody over here somebody in my industry talking about hearing health you know whatever that might be and so i get my little daily dose of all this stuff um and so again like for me that all just culminates to more stuff you can do that's catering to this fact that you're wearing stuff in your ears for extended periods of time. And I think that's going to open the door to just a lot of really interesting ways in which people even think about this whole intersection of like uh, hardware and new forms of media all built around audio. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Twitter because there's this concept of Twitter is filling the spaces in between your day. You're standing in line, you're waiting for a Zoom call to come up. You just check in with Twitter and it's all this bite-sized content that you can consume very quickly. And so it's the type of tool that you don't spend an hour in. You know, it's not like Facebook or Instagram where they're just trying to suck you in for 20, 30 minutes at a time. You're you're there for a few minutes and then you're out. You know, it's, so this idea of the bird flitting in and out, like a perfect analogy. What's the audio corollary to that? And there's not. And we've talked about this idea of audio Twitter for a long time, but I, I'm not sure that people got the right idea for it. They thought, was it a social network? Were you posting short, short pieces? I think that the audio Twitter is not going to look like Twitter, but there is a, there is a need for this. You mentioned audio burst. Audio burst is perfectly positioned to do this. It hasn't been something that they've focused their attention on, uh, but they have the technology for this. And I don't really know of anybody else who can do this like they can. This idea that I could actually just have these little snippets. Now we do this today. So for example, I'm doing this in video today. We've got this new series called 10 minutes on. So it's 10 minutes on topic with person, company, whatever. And it's the idea there is we, we needed something to fit in between like podcast length, which is an hour because people don't have time for that or something that's really short. That's too short to actually fully cover a topic. Right. So we started doing this idea of these 10 minutes on, um, 10 or 10, I should say, we do these 10 minute videos on a single topic. And so what we do basically is we say, okay, interview an expert in that space. We've got a 10 minute thing. Great. People can consume that. Uh, but then we manually go in and we pull out two clips that are less than two minutes. And that helps us because we can put it on Twitter. It fits within their, their restrictions. So those people like that, like, okay, 10 minutes, you can fit it in between a zoom session too. But they're like, oh, I just want to see this clip. And then what it does is it's a teaser, right? And then like, okay, I got that swing thought from whoever that expert guest was, but maybe I want to listen to the whole 10 minutes. And, and I, you know, where is the audio equivalent of that? There's really not unless you're doing self-curation. And so what I'm looking for with all these tools is something to help with the curation. Now, Audio Burst will do that, actually. It'll, it'll pull some things out for you um, and do some segmentation. Uh, but not a lot of people are doing that. We don't have the, it's, I'm not sure that there's the best distribution methods for that today. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it comes down to the tools aren't really, uh, or the distribution methods aren't there, but directionally speaking, I think we're moving in that direction, like where you have, again, you have the audience, you have the media. So it's a matter of now just how do you, how do you basically match the media to the people um, and do it in a way that people really enjoy? Because then I think what you're going to lead to, like one of the biggest things with voice uh, apps and stuff like that has always been like discovery. And how do you even make people aware that these things exist? So it almost seems like you need to have some sort of algorithmic in engine that's matching you to things like that you never even knew yes. had existed. Yeah. So this would be, this would be amazing. And we don't really have the umbrella for this, although maybe one of the social media companies could provide this, but so let's say we did have the shorter bites that are tied to the longer pieces. That would be pretty amazing. And that's exactly like Twitter's so people like they'll do a quote from an article and then they'll do a link. I like the quote. It interests me. I click through, I have the opportunity to look at the full thing. So let's say we did have these shorter 
bite-sized audio nuggets. We don't have the way to link it then as well, right? To say, oh, I want this. Where, where's my hyperlink to see the whole thing? This could easily be done inside of podcast apps, for example, but it's not done. And there's not a, actually, like even the way you load up podcasts, there's not an easy way to do this, right? Uh, it's it's very much of the model of like, you know, I, you know, I think about what we do with a podcast. It's like 1990s technology. <laughs> right. it, well, it is like even the podcast players, there's some of them will do some interesting things below, but um, so let's think about what it is. They're, they're these separate blobs, binary, binary large objects, right? That like, there's no intelligence around it unless I like add tags and things like that. Uh, but what I would really like is why don't we have like the Amazon algorithm, people who bought this, bought that, right? Or people like you yeah, right. are also interested in that. And so I'm listening to a podcast and um, maybe I listen to a section again or something like that. Why doesn't it pop up? Like, oh, this right. topic came up somewhere else. And here's like a two minute clip of that. So maybe we'll never get there. But I do think it's a really interesting application that people would inevitably adopt because if they're consuming audio media and then you just give them, it's, it's like Spotify, like will give you recommendations. That's who I was thinking of is they right? seem like they're sitting on all this data. They, they would know if you went back, they would know if you've shared this with your friend, they already show most shared episodes. So they, they have a lot of this data. And to your point, like maybe, you know, the, a lot of the question is like, well, why would you use Spotify over Apple podcasts? There's, there's not a lot of differences between how you consume a podcast today. So if Spotify has like this really vested interest in um, differentiating themselves on the basis of podcasts, like they initially started with exclusivity, but if it graduates into there's more sophisticated ways in which you can surface new interesting content, again, that might be that might be really advantageous for them and, and people might really respond positively to that. Well, and ultimately they respond positively in terms of just more consumption. Exactly. And I think, the, but the issue is today, the algorithms basically go to these blobs. So full episodes, they're like, yeah. like you listen to this, you know, or you liked this, you might like that because there, there's some sort of tags that are common in the background. It's really rudimentary matching technology. It, and, and the other thing about it is what they're doing is they're saying, you might like this thing. Why don't you spend an hour listening to it to see if you like it? Like, who wants to do that? Right. Why don't they give you something like, you like this, or that you, you're interested in this topic, here's two minutes or three minutes on that. And then it allows me to basically do the dating app version of this. Yeah, yeah. Wiping left or right as opposed to just saying, oh, yes, let's go on a dinner date, right? Because that's, I, I just don't think people have time for that. And what and I've talked to a bunch of people in the podcast industry about this recently, one person in particular, and he's like, people aren't listening to more podcasts. Their, their total time consuming podcasts is flat over the last couple of years at this point. So if you want them to listen to your podcast, they have to displace something. How do you get them to do that? Totally. Right? And and one of the things you do is like, oh, I have an amazing guest, right? Okay, well, I'll listen to that podcast for that guest. And if I really like it, maybe I'll listen to a couple more. Yeah, for sure. But like, that doesn't always work. 
and really what you want is you want like the short snippet. You just listen to something about Harry Styles, right? Or you just, you know, saw this thing with Elon Musk being interviewed. Here's another place, but let me give you the two minute clip or the five minute clip even. Like people would give you five minutes. Maybe they'd give you 10. I'd certainly, they'd give you five. Uh, in the video space, I think two is probably about right. Uh, but in the audio space, I think they'd give you more time. But they, I mean, I personally, and I, maybe I'm not the quintessential user here, but I personally am not like, oh, I want to spend an hour with this thing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I like the host. Is the host a good interviewer? Is, is this going to be something I haven't heard before for this subject that I'm interested in? I don't know. Yeah, all really, really good points. Food for thought. I uh, always appreciate, though, your thinking. Um, I just want to say again, thank you for supporting the podcast, coming on. This is the second time you've been on, but um, really, really great to catch up with you, Brett. Uh, definitely an interesting space to keep an eye on because I do think that we're really at, um, it's it's cliche and easy as a kind of a cop out of just always saying, we're at the beginning of this, right? You know? But in a lot of ways, um, this does feel nascent in a way of, I think just at least we haven't had all these different building blocks assembled at least in the way that they're assembled today. So it's really just cool to hear your thoughts on where this is going and how it's all going to, I think, be in part relevant to all the things I'm focused on with, with my industry. Yeah, absolutely. Really fun, really fun conversation always. And what are you most looking forward to? Oh man, good question. Um, I would say I'm, I'm really excited about the idea that people I think are actually going to want to wear hearing aids. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of facets to that. I think that they're going to get, I think, considerably less expensive. I think that that will help to eliminate the stigma. I think that they're going to probably, it's probably going to have to be generational. So I don't know if it will be necessarily the baby boomers, or maybe it will have to wait until it's more socially acceptable another generation down. So with like the Gen Xers, but I do think that almost as a, um, almost as like kind of a, a secondary beneficiary, um, I think that hearing loss is so pervasive and it's such a, it's a really bad thing. Uh, but it's so hindered by the stigmatization of treating your hearing loss because of the baggage that is associated with wearing a hearing aid. People feel like that just signals I'm old, I'm feeble, whatever that might mean. Um, and so I think that if we can change the narrative around that, because people genuinely want to wear these things, because they're so much more dynamic and multifunctional, um, as a result, I think that we're going to see that people are almost un, unbeknownst to them going to be suited to treat their hearing loss. And, and uh, more and more people will be open to that idea, I think. Absolutely. I, these devices, particularly the ones that you can't see uh, or are you know, essentially invisible, <laughs> unless someone's really looking for it. I, I, I suspect that there's a lot of people who are young who have no hearing issues at all. We'll yeah. start to do it just so they have that surreptitious access to all this new media and this and the other features that you mentioned. And then at the point where their hearing does start to fail, it'll already be there. They'll just be able to turn that feature on. I've, I've said before that um, the ironic thing that could happen that I, to your point that I think is going to happen is what happens when a consumer electronics company makes a form factor that looks like a hearing aid, specifically for all the reasons you cited. You can discreetly consume content all day, every day. I think that there's a market for that. I, absolutely. I, <laughs> people are going to, people like gadgets anyway. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I think we're going to look back at AirPods and we're going to say, 
oh, that was an interesting clunky experience. Right. <laughs> right. right? And so like I, I get the whole jewelry angle, you know, and that's, you know, Apple really played that up, but it was based on constraints. And it, like, yeah. you know, the, you know, there's always going to be this issue, I think, of audio fidelity. Yeah. Even when you get down to a certain size, just because there's there's some physics involved there that are going to be hard to overcome. 100%. But you can get a lot better. And yeah. as long as it's good enough, that's what we found. And we see this like everywhere. Like, so maybe we've talked about this conversation or this situation in the past, but in the 1990s, I was doing some work for AT&T and they could not understand why people would go to mobile is like a primary device because they're like, geez, the audio quality is terrible. The quality of service, which is like how often it gets dropped is terrible. And it really was for those of you who had, who had cell phones in the nineties, like compared to what we have today, like ridiculous, like they weren't really good. Uh, but you know, what turned out is it, it all that stuff was good enough mm -hmm. and it gave them something that they didn't have before, which was totally and they could take a call anywhere. They could make a call anywhere, and then eventually, you know, morphed into these other services. But uh, well, and it was the it was the incentive to the the forcing function of getting better because it was like there's a market for this, even as bad as they were initially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, it was enough to get adoption. Yeah, so it was good enough, and had this other really compelling benefit. And then because they got more people to adopt, they had more money to invest, and they made all those other things a lot better. And I mean, I don't have a landline. Um, right. I haven't had one. I don't. I think for a decade. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, in in and the chairman of Nokia said at the time, he said people don't understand. It's in the '90s. He said people don't understand. And up until this point in history, you've to reach somebody, you've called a place. Going right. forward, you're going to call the person, and that's really important. And so, I think that the audio fidelity piece is significant uh, because we see it. It's like after fit. It's you know either second or third in all the surveys that we do, and totally. so you're not going to quite get there. But if you get to the good enough, and it's it's got the comfort. Comfort is number one, and I still think that some of the hearables we have today are just not comfortable enough. Right. Um, in particular, you get like that. I don't remember what they call it. It's like that T Rex thing where like the the ones with the the really good ones with the earbuds with the ANC and um, and the plugs. Um, you can hear yourself chewing and it's yeah, just like, right. it takes a while to get used to it. And even then it's not as good as like an open ear method. So I think that people will actually start to adopt it. They'll give up a little bit on audio fidelity for the all day media consumption with that open ear form factor. Couldn't agree more with you. This has been great, Brett. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for joining me for episode 100. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so we got Natalie Phillips here. Dr. Natalie Phillips was with us uh, back, I think, like 30 episodes ago. You came on with Angela Alexander, and we talked a lot about like Clubhouse and, and the social app uh, that, you know, social audio app of uh, interacting with patients and other, you know, like-minded individuals using that. And it's always a lot of fun to chat with you and just kind of get a sense of what's going on in your world. I know that a lot's changed in the last year since we've talked. And I'm really curious to hear about, uh, you know, just kind of an update, but just broadly speaking, what's on your radar right now, Natalie, like what's um, top of mind for you in terms of, you know, your practice and the things that you're seeing that might 
make you excited about the future of, of your practice and in, in the profession of broadly speaking? Awesome. Thank you, Dave, for having me back on. And yeah, it's funny to think about Clubhouse. It's been about a year and a half since I've been there. And <laughs> I'm still there, actually. I'm That's still awesome. there hosting some, some morning rooms uh, with an excellent group of mods. And I loved when we had our listen here, like it was with a bunch of audiologists and it was in a club that was called talk nerdy to me and we would come on, but you know, we've all had different things go different ways. And so we don't show up for that room anymore, but you know, what I love still about clubhouse is it taught me as an audiologist, what was important to me. And so I want to start with that first, and then I'll kind of give you maybe a, uh, an update on where we are in our practice. But the one thing that I am super thankful for in networking outside of audiology and still being on Clubhouse is that it taught me that connection is huge and super important to me. And when I mean that, before when somebody would ask me who I was and what did I do, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm an audiologist. You know, I, I test hearing and I fit hearing aids and I work with people that have dizziness problems and balance issues and ringing in the ears, sound sensitivity. And then I would go into, yep, we do this and this and this. And it would just be a list of what I did, right? And, and tests. But because of hanging out in Clubhouse where I don't necessarily want to have to go through all that, like lists of what I do, I've changed my introduction and I really, yes, started at, with audiology, but it really, again, goes back to who I am, which is all about connection. And so when I introduce myself, I say, I am a connector. I enjoy connecting people to each other. And my day job is an audiologist where I connect people back to hearing and back to their loved ones and back to their life. And so that's how I, and I don't say anything else because nobody cares about like, these are the different types of patients we see, and this is what I do. Right. But it is what we do as audiologists is that we connect people back to life and back to their loved ones. Like and that. so I have to thank clubhouse. I th have to thank, you know, just being in different rooms and, and learning how to talk about who I am and simplifying it, but not really even simplifying it, but really focusing on, on, really what we do as audiologists is to connect people back to each other, right? So I wanted to start off with that first because I thought that was kind of cool, especially because I was here talking about Clubhouse and that's totally. really what helped me um, hone in on what's important to me. Um, and then what's new on the horizon is our practice is up and running. So Dr. Galloway, Hannah Galloway and I started our practice um, back. We opened the doors back in November of 2021. And so it has been actually a little over, it's been nine months, I think nine months, you know, um, and it has been wonderful. We love it every day. There's different stressors, um, you know, as far as in the beginning and just kind of getting things credentialed with insurance companies you know, trying to figure out how we were going to see patients doing all that type of thing, but we're up and running and we're getting referrals and um, keeping pretty busy. And we finally, we were laughing because we finally got paid after seven months from insurance companies, which is crazy. Um, but loving every bit, I don't think we would ever have, um, changed our minds at all. And people still ask me, are you still happy? I'm like, yes, very, very, very happy because of the way that things are. Um, 
but yeah, so we've been enjoying our um, our practice just to give uh, people an update on what our practice is, is so we've started our own audiology practice, but working with ear, nose and throat physicians, you know, working with um, surgeons and through pretty much throughout my whole career. And then when Hannah started as well, just kind of being um, with ear, nose and throat physicians, we didn't really want to give up the medical side of our practice and going into private practice, you know, you think, okay, you've got to do hearing aids. You've got to sell hearing aids. Hearing aids are where it's at. And I understand that. But at the same time, it's like, no, we still want to see people for dizziness and balance issues. We still want to see tinnitus and sound sensitivity and doing um, babies and pediatrics and cochlear implants and APD and, and implantable devices. Like we don't want to give up anything. And so we decided, yeah, that's going to be our practice. Even though it's private practice, it might go slower. It might not. Right. I mean, you don't know if diagnostics um, is, is going to make your practice go slower. And so we said, no, we really want to keep um, our referral sources, especially working with one of the best, um, what I feel is the best concussion specialist and brain injury specialist here in town. And so he has been sending us so many patients initially for balance and um, uh, some dizziness, but it morphs into tinnitus, sound sensitivity, hearing aids, APD, um, everything. And so it's been really interesting to be able to stay afloat as a medical practice and just being and loving it. And now, you know, having more and more referrals know that we are still the one-stop shop if you decide to send your patients to us. So I'm loving that part of our medical practice as well. Yeah. I think that it's really cool that um, I like everything that you said there, you really distilled everything nicely in terms of what it means to practice the full scope beyond just the hearing aid. I think the hearing aid is obviously really important, but I think these other things are equally as important. Um, and the diagnostics and being a true, um, you know, be, being, uh, practicing the full scope and, and capturing all of that, I think is essential to the future of the profession of audiology, really. I mean, when we look at what's on the horizon, knowing that, you know, there's, all kinds of threats on the dominant revenue stream being hearing aids, um, whether it be just new avenues of access, the expansion of big box retail, you name it, whatever it might be. And I just think that the leg that audiology will always have to stand on is its degree and the education and the scope. And so I see this emergence or, or, or maybe it's like a rekindling of some of these um, other elements like you, you rattled off that I think are, we're seeing become commercialized in different ways that are really exciting. And I think just finding new ways to implement different types of diagnostics for things that make your services more holistic. Um, you know, concussions are a super interesting one that seems to kind of just be coming into focus now, um, where, you know, that's another, you know, real broadly applicable field that, has a lot of ancillary things that I think the audiologist is really well suited for. And again, it kind of like, I think reprioritizes the question of like, if you have dizziness issues or you have like a concussion or whatever, I think that there's a huge initiative that the audiologist um, can undertake that will be a decades long process of conditioning the public into realizing that the audiologist is the professional that you seek out for these kinds of different things and sort of detaching the connotation that an audiologist is synonymous just with hearing aids, that it's much more holistic than that. And I think that you're 
embodying that with your new practice to the fullest. And it's really exciting to hear um, uh, as somebody that's like kind of been in the field for a little while, but now doing your own thing. And, and, and to hear you say like, this is the emphasis that we're placing feels representative of where the industry I think is kind of moving broadly speaking, specifically the audiology side of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's like you said, you know, if you didn't have access to be able to do some of the diagnostic testing that we're trained to do, you know, a brain concussion specialist can send you their, their patient and you could do a hearing test, but I tell you, like some of the patients that I've seen, total normal hearing after a car accident or, you know, a, a concussion or a sports injury or whatever it is. And then you'd be done if you weren't able to do anything else. Right. And so typically when we do schedule these patients, we interview them on the phone to make sure we know what their symptoms are, uh, you know, and typically set them up for the correct uh, appointments. Most of them do start off with a hearing test and a VEMP and a VNG. And then sometimes we find out that, hey, your hearing test is normal, but you're still struggling. Okay, let's ask a couple more questions. Are you, is it when you're struggling to hear a noise? Okay, it is. Then let's get an APD evaluation done, right? And we can figure out what's going on so that you can get started on some rehab. Or um, maybe it's like, oh, there's some sound sensitivity with now some light sensitivity and headaches, you know, a little bit more. We'll dive you into more of a different type of evaluation. But, you know, just like some of my tinnitus patients that, um, you know, these these brain injury patients and concussions, they don't always get answers. And so to be able to do the tests or the evaluations, sit down and talk to them. You know, you have to be very patient because with a brain injury or a concussion, they don't remember a lot of stuff um, necessarily all the time. And so really breaking up appointments sometimes helps being understanding, you know, if um, they forgot to do instructions, you know, you just reschedule them and, and schedule them up for another day. Um, but when they leave and you're giving them answers, I think that's one of the best feelings is that they've been searching for a long time, you know, thinking that something's wrong with them, but not getting the answers and not knowing. Sometimes the brain injury and concussion specialists might not know. It could be physical therapy. It could be related to the ears. You know, it could be related to the nerves or cardiac related, whatever it is. Um, but the, the Dr. Mystery, who is the um, specialist that we work with, he strongly believes that a high percentage of his patients have to do something got something went wrong in the ears or in within that hearing system um, when they had that head injury. And so he always starts with us first to see if we can help out and if we, we can give them some answers. And most of the times we do. So it's kind of fun to be able to do that. I think it's super interesting too, uh, like what you said there about a lot of people, they you know, they just want to be diagnosed. They just want to have a sense of what's going on. And that, in my opinion, will dovetail into all the commercial offerings. So I think that diagnostics is so important because it it's the impetus to where you can then steer them toward, okay, let's have a conversation around hearing aids because mm -hmm. chances are that's the path that we need to go down. And I've had this conversation a bunch where when, as soon as things start to become more medical, um, and I'm sure you have had a lot of experience with this when, when you were working at an ENT, there's a big difference between somebody coming through your doors because they feel like they are, 
you know, they have, it's like the uh, proverbial, like my wife is telling me that I need to get my hearing tested versus my physician referred me on. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of power to that when people feel like this is more of a diagnosis, this is more of a medical uh, opinion that you need to go and seek these things out. And my broader point is, the more that you can diagnose and practice the full scope, the more opportunities you're going to have to ultimately treat these people in a variety of different ways, which will generate revenue in different ways too. So it, I just feel as if diagnostics and having a really robust set of diagnostics is like really a big priority for, for the uh, profession of audiology right now. Yeah. And I agree. And I mean, it, it, Yes, it's costly to have the equipment, right? Yes, it's, you know, maybe for people who haven't done it for a while, it can be scary to be able to kind of step into that area again. Um, but, you know, we've all learned it. And so it's a matter of just getting there, doing it, doing that repetition that will start to, you know, get it, it's like riding a bike, you guys. And so if you're ever in, you know, thinking of stepping into that world a little bit deeper, um, we all have it as audiologists. And so I just think it's super helpful to be able to do that. Um, now, the other flip side is I get it. If you're not super passionate about it, don't do it. I mean, refer to a colleague that that does have the passion to do it and totally understand that. Um, and just pretty much know what you're comfortable in doing. Or if you're the type of person that um, would love to be able to start that and have that entrepreneurial spirit of like, hey, I want to try something new again and get this going in my practice. Do it. You know, I, I recommend that you do. So it goes either way. It just depends on, on you know, who you are, what you um, feel comfortable doing, and if you're willing to step out of your comfort zone and get that part of your practice again. For sure. I guess, you know, kind of just sticking on the topic of you starting your own thing, which is super admirable. And I'm, uh, you know, tip of the hat to you. That's awesome that you did that. And I'm curious, like, um, where is your head at now in terms of like, okay, the first, uh, like you said, like eight months, you had to get this thing off the ground, but now it feels like it's kind of starting. You got lift off. What's exciting you about like, what is, what will the second year look like now that you sort of have that under you, what are you really looking forward to? And because I think that I would love for someone to take inspiration for this because it's hard enough to take the plunge and, and do this thing. Um, and I think that there are folks like you that can serve as a great resource of I've done it. And I'm just curious of like, you've kind of done the big heavy lifting part of getting this thing off the ground. So now it seems as if maybe the fun part comes and what's, what's exciting you about that? Ooh. That's a good question. So there's a couple of things. There's a simple thing, first of all, that I was thinking of is um, uh, hiring employees. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so yeah, Dr. Galloway and I did this you know, on our own. We kind of sat around and we're answering phones and it's kind of funny and it's fun and, you know, to be on the phone with people and then they're like, hey, am I speaking to Dr. Phillips? I'm like, Yes, that's me, <laughs> you know, and then we um, have business advisors who are like, you need to hire some employees. So in the last couple of months, we did hire a front desk person um, for a couple of days a week. And then, and then in the summer, um, my son uh, started working here as well to get some good people skills and communication skills. And so he's running the front desk and talking to patients, making appointments, you know, following up with that. So um, I'm looking forward to hiring 
um, an employee more full-time. And then also um, students, like we've always done students before. And with the transition into our own practice, like the one that we had had to go back and work on her uh, project, right? Because we just couldn't offer her the patient contact time, especially in the first few months. Yes, it was really cool to see the business side of it, but that's not what she was there for. She was there to get that patient contact. And so we had to come to the decision of um, allowing her to go back to work on her project. And then we haven't had a student. And so, um, you know, we're really looking forward to having a full-time like fourth year student. And that's going to start in, I think, May of 2022. Wait, this is 2223. Yes, May of 2023. Um, and like, Hannah's in charge of all of that. And so she put in, you know, where she placed the ad, I guess, and where, you know, students would be looking. And she said, we're getting a lot of interest for our fourth year placement, um, you know, to, to have them come here for a whole year. And I'm super excited for that because we initially grew, built this practice and this is our temporary holding spot, but we initially did it so that we could actually see patients in three rooms. And so, you know, right now we're kind of, the two of us are between three rooms right now, which is totally fine, but we really wanted to see if we could ramp up again. And that's all part of, you know, a business and, and really growing it. Right. And so I'm really excited to have a student come on board. We will have to pause our year uh, for a short period of time because <laughs> Dr. Galloway is um, going to be on maternity as well. So um, we'll be down to one provider, but um, I think we'll do okay for, for a while. And then we'll kind of ramp up starting in January again when she um, comes back on board after maternity. And then we've got a good solid months before um, we take on our fourth year. So simply speaking, employees and uh, students is what I'm looking forward to in the next year. Um, and then doing some fun marketing things too, I think would be something that, you know, sometimes when you're in a practice that you don't own, it kind of you know, ties your hands from doing the things that you might want to do or doing some new things. If we ever went in under a hospital sort of corporate type of um, uh, system, again, our hands would be tied. And so, you know, with our show, with some different things that we want to do marketing wise, um, it'd be good to have some time to look at it and see if we want to start up something um, interesting. You know us, like we like to be um, cutting edge and try to get some good information out to consumers and to professionals. So I'm looking forward to doing some fun things. I love all that. I think it's just really neat to hear. It's like a, how I built my business and I'm talking to you and it's like year one. And so I can't wait to hear what it's like in a couple of years from now, as you just keep building this thing, it's just really, really neat to hear. And I love what you said too, at the beginning about how you're a connector, you're totally a connector. That is a great way to sum up your personality in a nutshell. And uh, I've just, you know, you've connected me to a number of people. And I just think that you're, um, you're really a, an awesome person to know. And I appreciate all the conversations that we've had both on the podcast, offline, in person, whenever it might be. So I just want to say that I appreciate you coming on and best of luck to you with your practice. Uh, and we'll definitely have to connect and get an update from you down the line. Will do. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. All right, here we are joined by my favorite Irish speaking bloke, 
Jeff Cooling. He's been on the podcast a number of times. Episode 100 would not be complete without him. So wanted to make sure I brought you on, Jeff, to have you be a part of this. And wanted to get um, you know a sense from you of what's on your radar right now, what's interesting to you, uh, what's at the top of Jeff Cooling's mind. That might actually be a loaded question that I don't know if I want the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and the vices don't fight anymore. We just get on now. <laughs> <That's what I'm... laughs> um, I think for me, first of all, thanks, Dave, again, for, for having me on. Uh, I always enjoy our chats. So, um, But I think for me, like, uh, what's been top of my mind, I suppose, for the last probably year or two is, is really OTC, self-fitting, and, and, you know, its possible effects on... Um, the profession globally, like, um, and I know it's played a big part in a lot of people's thoughts, but there's a couple of things that have happened, I suppose, in the recent past that kind of, you know, have, have made me even think more. I, you know, I've said all along, or I feel that the the way for uh, the profession to continue to be relevant to consumers is actually to engage them in the way that they want. Um and offer services that make sense to them. Uh, and that would include, like, you know, services around OTC products and, uh, you know, the retail of OTC products, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's been a couple of kind of, I suppose, war well, you know, what I feel is kind of watershed moments in the last while that have, that are, are starting to indicate how things are shaping up. I think the first one, or, or a most recent one, and I, I wrote an article about it, was um, the introduction of uh, GN Jabra self-fit hearing aid stroke earbuds, right? Um, and that's a really interesting product coming from, again, from a, from a major manufacturer. Uh, Hello Go uh, from Sonova, and their product, again, uh, they've kind of relaunched that product and they're moving forward with it. I'd assume that they're probably going to launch it in the States pretty soon, pretty much as soon as they can. Um, and again, that's another, it, it, it was kind of a decent indication of, of how the manufacturers feel about kind of OTC products or, or DTC. Um, and both of those manufacturers have kind of decided that or it seems to me that they've kind of decided that a blended model approach is the way forward. Um, Hello Go are doing it slightly different, kind of like in, in Oz uh, at the moment. You can buy a Hello Go hearing aids online. They, they're relatively expensive, but in the context of hearing aid prices in Australia, they're actually not that expensive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Australia seems to be the last place in the world that gets 10 grand for a set of hearing aids. Like, you know, it's mad. <laughs> crazy um but uh they're relatively expensive um but what they're doing is they're kind of saying well listen you know these are the products great products blah, 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 but you can have a better experience if you go to such and such and they're they're kind of uh edging people towards their own captured retail in australia for a service package um and that makes a whole lot of sense to me because these manufacturers have captured retail, so they can't cut their own throat. 
Uh, and I think for the profession in a, in a wider sense, and I know that, you know, lots of professionals will be out well, there fucking selling this and fucking cutting our throats. And, <laughs> and, you know, some people might feel that, you know, getting involved with that, you know, is, is you know, on a team to them. But I think it's the way forward. I think that our involvement in this kind of blended model will, will continue to keep us relevant when those people move on to what we recognize as more traditional high technology here next. Um, so that, you know, and I wrote actually a letter to GM told them they're fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, we know them. Because <laughs> basically, the GM product is slightly different and, and you know, and it's priced slightly differently again. And they're forcing people to go to professionals to purchase this product. And, you know, I don't, to be, with all the, the best will in the world, I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's a good strategy for either GM or for consumers. And, and you know, while I am a professional, I suppose I've kind of become known as a consumer advocate, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so so I think that's not a good strategy for them. I think that, in fact, and I said that I that quite possibly the product would fail because of their retail strategy or because of the distribution strategy. It probably wouldn't fail because of the product. The product is actually pretty pretty damn good. I use the Jabra products on a regular basis. Uh, listen to music, bopping along. <laughs> And also, when people speak to me, I can actually understand what the fuck they're saying. So that's generally handy enough, you know. Um, so yeah, they're they're real good products. Um, but if if you're trying to touch people who who don't really feel that they want to go to a profession, uh, why the fuck would you get them to purchase it off a professional? It doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, I'll stop because they only got irritated. Um, so that was kind of those those watershed moments that kind of form my thinking. The other thing is, is I've spoken about Lexi Heron in the past, um, and Lexi Heron have really, really impressed me. Uh, and I think that the whole industry could learn from Lexi Heron. Um, their customer journey, how they manage their customers, um, how they drive them forward uh, is outstanding. Like it's it's really outstanding. Um, but and I think a lot of people focus on the hearing aids they sell. And originally they were intercom hearing aids. Recently, as we know now, they're selling both hearing aids, uh, which is another fascinating thing that I'll come back to in a moment. Right, but. People focused on the hearing aids and, you know, they weren't great hearing aids. Um, they're okay. Don't get me wrong. They were okay. They weren't great, right? Uh, but it, it, it wasn't, that wasn't what struck me about it. What struck me about Lexi here and Herex's, you know, drive and their strategy is that Lexi here and the innovation is really in the, in the model and the system that they have to to connect with their customers. That's really where the innovation is. Innovation isn't the hearing aids. You could 
Lexi Heron, and I've said it, I said it in the article, could sell any hearings. You know, in in a couple of years' time, Lexi Heron could be selling Phonak hearings or GN hearings. It's it's not the product really that, that fascinates me about Lexi and is why I think Lexi will be successful or continue to be successful. It's really about the systems that they have in place and the innovation that they have in their customer journey and customer communication. And like, I think that the profession could learn a lot from that, you know, uh, and the industry. The industry could certainly learn a lot from that, you know, especially when they're forcing people to go to the local fucking friend, the audiologist that I want to fucking go to to buy a product. (laughs) 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 You know? So, you know, again, again, quickly coming back to, you know, this introduction of the Bose hearing to the to Lexi's portfolio, for want of a a better term. You know, again, that's particularly interesting um, because, as I said, I already felt, I don't know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever it was, that... Lexi could really be the vehicle for any hearing aid product. Um, and, you know, the, that introduction of the Bose hearing aids, I think, kind of backs that up. You know, Bose kind of announced that they were they were finished selling hearing aids and people kind of uh, thought it was quite funny. You know, it just seems like, you know, maybe they are that quite finished. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe they've decided that actually they don't have the learning or the skills or the systems needed um, to really maximize uh, their penetration, but they have the brand. Lexi have the skills, the experience, and the system, I would say, to maximize that brand and, or maximize their penetration whilst using that brand. Um. So yeah, no, I think that's that's really, uh, you know, it is quite recent. It's really fascinating. I think. What about you? What do you? What's your thoughts? Well, I was going to ask you what what is it? Because I I think you're actually onto something that's pretty interesting here, which is uh, OTC serving as a catalyst, not necessarily just for the innovation around the devices themselves, but around the overall experience. And I do think that. This is a, it's a really interesting um, way in which they onboard, you know, Lexi hearing onboards the, the uh, customer, the patient, whatever you want to call them from the start and the way that the app engages you, you know, there's things like it will reward you for usage, you know, so it's starting to solve some of these longstanding issues that have always sort of plagued, I think, the, the overall adoption of, of hearing aids is like, you know, how do you prevent people from buying them and then sticking them in a drawer? And part of that is you need to make sure that they get like that full acclimation period to where they get comfortable with it. So maybe you can incentivize them. And that's where it's really interesting to see this combination of like a software-based device that's feeding a lot of that data back into an app. And then the app is what's really sort, sort of taking that and, and generating 
um, new uh, ways in which you can engage the patient. So, okay, we've noticed that over the past month, you've worn your hearing aids consistently over the course of 30 days. And so as a reward, we're going to send you your next set of batteries or uh, these different accessories or whatever it might be, a subscription that you can use your hearing aids with. Um, it, the list goes down the line, but you know, I, I just think that this point that you're making, and I'm curious to kind of throw it back at you and just get a sense of what really stood out to you about the overall um, user experience that resonated, because I agree that that seems to be another area that's very, very ripe for innovation, that maybe that will be a more visible byproduct, um, at least an, immediately from the OTC hearing aid stuff. Yeah, like the, is the, I wrote an article years ago, and one of the things I talk about quite a lot in relation to the profession is what I call, you know, strategic communication. There's tactical communication and then long-term strategical communication with consumers or patients. And, you know, one of the things I've always spoken about is, you know, a, you know, a weekly email, so, you know, seven days after they purchased, a follow-up with cleaning instructions or, you know, changing your wax card or a question in relation to a question and answer in relation to survey in relation to how they're doing, have they changed their batteries, do they need to change their wax card, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, you build on this communication um, in order to, you know, ensure that the sale remains a sale. So there's no cancellation. Also, that the customer is getting the best possible service and the best possible experience moving forward. Uh, and as well as that, you get early notification of fucking problems because if you have an early notification of the problem, you can deal with it straight away. And it and again doesn't turn into a cancellation. So, like I've all, I've talked about this for a long time, and and um you know, written a couple of articles about I had conversations and and then Lexi came along and I went through the this the system with, with the Lexi here and I was like, these fuckers are reading my mind. It's like fucking hell <laughs> walking around the house like it's her. <laughs> uh, like <laughs> You know, they, they've they've generated this <laughs> onboarding experience that's that's excellent. Like that that deals with in a step by step way that deals with all of these, uh, you know, things that we're all aware of. Like it's it's not you know it's not fucking rocket science. Like we, you know, we know they have issues cleaning their tubes, a tin tube device, Lexi, or at least the original one. So. We know they have problems cleaning their tubes. We know, like, with other aids, they have problems with their wax guards. We know sometimes they put the batteries in the wrong fucking way. Like, it's not, it, it's not rocket science. So, so what, what are you trying to do? You design a system of communication that addresses all of these things before they happen. And that's the beauty of it. When you address it before it fucking happens, it's like, oh, yeah, they said that happened. If you address it after it happens, oh, I had a fucking problem. Mm -hmm. Oh, you solved it for me. You know, so <laughs> Lexi really, 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 you know, considered that, thought about that, and set out a, a really outstanding strategy. The, the beauty of it is that they have a captured consumer, so it's all done through the app. So it's notifications through the app. So the consumer looks at it 
You know what I mean? Like, so you've got this captured consumer, you've got this captured there, you've captured their attention with push notifications. Like, so they see it, they have the experience, they understand what's happening. And then on top of that, that onboarding experience, and, and as well, they've thought about the long-term experience. It's not just about the first month or the for six months, they've thought about the onboard, the onboarding and the long-term experience of every consumer and the communications that they need. But also, as you said, they gamified wearing fucking mayonnaise. That's that's what they did. It's like it's fucking genius. Um <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> you know, so you know, they're encouraging people to wear hearing aids to get rewards, and it's a game, and you get your points, and you know, oh, building up my points, you know, yeah, and um, like it's it's really outstanding system, and that's where the innovation is. Like I said it originally in the in in the original article about Lexi. Lexi could be selling any hearing aids, any hearing aids, you know, and I assume that their mid to long term strategy is to do that. In essence, you know, they will be I don't know, like yeah, they will be a, a a beast that doesn't fucking exist. Um because they won't be a, like an online retailer in the sense of, you know, most of the online retailers that are available or, or that offer, you know, hearing aid products. Something globally. Something I'm, you know, like that's coming to mind here as you're talking is that, um, you know, think about how this might cascade from the OTC market. You know, that's kind of the impetus where this all sort of begins. And then it kind of moves as it becomes uh, it, the market responds positively to this. But what do you think the major manufacturers are going to do with their premium or medical device offerings? Uh, I think that they're going to follow suit. And, and then cascade that down to the providers where I think they'll look at this and that's actually a really net positive where you have, you know, you can alleviate all of the, like you said, you can preempt some of the more frequently asked questions around, you know, notifications of like, be sure to change your batteries, be sure to change your wax guards. Here's like a quick 30 second video on your phone that shows you exactly how to change your wax guard. Um, and so I, I just think that a lot of this stuff that's ultimately going to probably be born in the consumer market very well will probably make its way to the broader offering. And so I think that a lot of the innovation that we might see across the board very well may derive from the consumer market. And I think that's going to be, it's going to be things like this where you're more effectively um, reducing the amount of trivial interactions, I guess is the way to put it, between patient and provider, uh, freeing the provider up more and ultimately creating a better experience. Like again, to your point, a lot of the frustration and the poor user experience might be able to be headed off at the pass if you just preempt it and you have these things that are like, look, mo we know that uh, around 20 days or whatever, around 14 days, you got to change that first wax guard. And that is actually a giant hindrance of adoption because a lot of people just assume this thing's a piece of crap and I'm going to throw it in the drawer. So you get in front of these things early and you just kind of like start to layer on these new forms of communication. And I just, I, I really think that these kinds of things are, they're likely to 
became like widely proliferated and, and standardized, I think, and as the market responds favorably to it um, in the consumer side of the portion of the market. Yeah, like I think that the, the reason why, I think the reason why this doesn't exist in the Phonak app or the Unitron app or the Widex app or whatever, right? The reason why these, these things don't necessarily exist is because most of the manufacturers are, are still in the mindset where they're a B2B company, right? And, and it's only, I think, in the in the, in the recent past and in, in the last few years that many of the manufacturers have started to realize, well, actually, they're a B2B to C company. Right. Um, and, you know, I think it's been difficult. I think it's difficult for the manufacturers as well because, you know, they're trying not to piss off the profession, right? Um sometimes successfully, sometimes not. So. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so so I think that, that that's kind of blinkered their thinking. And and again, I think the, the GM thing that we spoke about there with the with the Jabra earbud stroke earnings is really a case in point there, you know, where a manufacturer has realized that uh, consumers want something different, okay? But in introducing that something different, they also have to be very cognizant of the profession who have been their customers. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, um, to a certain extent, I think that they feel that they're shackled slightly in what they can do and what they can't do. But yeah, like I, I think you're you're dead right in relation to this innovation is happening really in the consumer facing area, and manufacturers aren't fucking stupid. They didn't become multi-million companies by being, yeah, multi-billion companies by being stupid. So yeah, like I think that, but again, I think that the manufacturers, it's coming to a stage where, um, the manufacturers will have to do something you know because uh they they can't they can they, it, it will become a time where they can no longer ignore the elephant in the room um you know especially say say to fucking apple uh you know introduces a new set of earbuds pro that have not just you know live speech processing but outstanding noise reduction and directional microphones, you know, for 300 quid a pop. Or, you know, Google's Alphabet's um, Pixel earbuds are upgraded to be basically the, exactly the same as, you know, the, the Jabra earbud stroke hearing aids. And, and you know that's not far. You know that's not far away. Those guys are thinking about that, and it's and it's obvious that they are because they see um, they see it. Not they don't just see it as you know a possible way in into the health industry or or whatever. Like they, but they see it as opening access to their products to people. You know to everybody. You know what I mean. So. Uh, I think you know it'll be a, you'll see that it will be a strong driver for them moving forward. Like customized audio has exploded in the last few years, right? I mean, exploded in the last few years. Yeah. You can you can fucking tune your fucking telly to your hearing now, you know. <laughs> so like 
Yeah. <laughs> like you know, it's um, it's just a, it's just a, a, a you know, ext- an extension of that. A, you know, an evolution of that, an evolution that makes sense for these businesses, not because they want to focus on the here aid market, but because it makes sense to them to serve their consumers um, and their wider consumer. So, so yeah, like when, when those things happen uh, and, you know, I I think they will, I mean, hearing aid manufacturers are going to have to be able to turn on a dime in relation to what they offer, the consumer experience that they offer. They'll have to realize once and for all and embrace that, the people who buy the fucking hearing aids are their customers. And I don't mean the professionals. But you know, yeah. the end user is their customer. Um, and, and realistically, you know, the end user kind of is their customer. Um, even though up to now it's, it's, you know, they've never acknowledged that or they try their best not to acknowledge that. Uh, like they will have to deal with that. Like if you, you think about it, you go to fucking you know, Best Buy or whatever the fuck you have over there <laughs> and buy and buy a Samsung TV, right? And fourteen months later, it breaks down. Do Do you ring Best Buy with your Samsung TV that's out of warranty two months? No, you know, do you ring Samsung? You know, you, you got the Samsung Technical Sport, right? Samsung Technical Sport tell you what they can fix or can't fix. They charge you, they don't charge you, whatever. Like, but you, you don't go back to Best Buy, you know, to, to deal with your problem. Um, and it's it kind of, it's obvious, and it strikes many of our customers as kind of odd that they can't ring phone or resell or they can't get online with Unitron or Starkey or whatever and deal with them for technical support if there's a failure or whatever. You know, uh, and then we explain to them, no, no, this is just you know how we do it, how we manage it, bloody bad. We'll send it to the um, manufacturer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they just kind of accept it moving forward. But it's not the for them as a consumer, uh, an inexperienced here night consumer, it's not what they expect because their consumer experiences up to now have been with, I suppose, what we call mainstream electronics uh, retailers and mainstream electronics producers. So, so yeah, no, to answer your question, I think that, yeah, you, you're going to see this cascade right across. It'll make sense. I think for the profession, it would be very useful if the manufacturers uh, built the system to customize in some way. Uh, you know, uh, say for instance, um, uh, the professional could do a video with the wax cards, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be inserted in or whatever, you know, uh, that type of thing. Um, also, maybe the professional would be able to send some push notifications or something like that and relate say you know a happy birthday notification yeah. or whatever right um because it's 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 more it's more personalized it's a personal way forward it's also one of the big things i think that 
you know, more and more consumers are looking for it, look for a personalized service um, and a personal relationship, very much so in healthcare. Uh, so I think that that would be very useful for professionals. The only thing it would be, I think that, you, you know, you'd have to convince manufacturers that the profession would actually fucking use it. Because, <laughs> hey, you know, it costs money to build this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's money and time. And, like, I know I know when my Wydex, the my Wydex team, they were really fucking excited about this. Like, because, uh, you know, they felt that, you know, really, really would help with uh, onboarding. It would help with, you know, kind of personal communication. Um and all of those things, right? But like, and then just nobody fucking used it. No, but maybe I'm just a nerd. Maybe I just get fucking excited with shit like that. But <laughs> for me, I think it just makes sense. <laughs> so yeah. I'll stop now. <laughs> well, I no, I think those are. I I agree with you that I think that there's um going to be a lot of areas of innovation that occur. Uh, that that aren't necessarily just tied to the uh, the device itself, um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the whole delivery model of this uh, of of hearing aids more or less changes in time. Because I do think that the building blocks are there now for a more direct exchange of goods, and I think that kind of begs the question of what's the professional's role in this uh, kind of changing equation. So. Jeff, this has been fantastic. Thanks again for uh, for coming on. Any closing thoughts? No, it's been a pleasure. You know, I think you're, the only thing I'd say is I echo what you said. I think that you know we're heading. You know, eventually we're heading towards a DTC world, like a yeah. direct to consumer world. Um, however, I don't think that's the end for the profession, and I think that the profession can can in fact have a have a place in that world that makes sense to the profession. But totally. but again, only if only if we're willing to innovate and offer services that make sense to the consumer. Yeah. Um because the consumer is king. Can you know I've been saying this for years. Fucking lots of people before me have been saying this for years. The consumer will actually decide what's going to happen. We won't. Right. Um now we can stand and throw our fucking ties out of the pram and get red faced and shout at each other but it's not going to make shit a difference yeah and you know uh for us to remain relevant to the consumer we have to make sure that we're fucking relevant to the consumer <laughs> so, well said well said that's it that's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you uh, being a part of the first 100 episodes. And, you know, as soon as I resume the podcast, I'm sure I'll bring you back on here to talk more about everything going on in this world. Yeah, well, listen, good luck on your coming event. Uh, <laughs> as I said, I will pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Take care, man. All right, so we have Ryan Crodel here. Ryan, thanks for being a part of episode 100. You've been on the podcast a number of times. Um, you know, always kind of like the uh, 
the resident biometrics and, and uh, wearable data expert um, that I've had on, uh, you know, just talking through what's possible from a data collection standpoint with wearable devices. Um, we've had a, just a number of great discussions uh, talking about the ins and outs of how this all works and what's possible with that data, particularly around the data science side of things. So I wanted to bring you on and just kind of get your take of the, you know, what you're seeing and what you're observing from from your vantage and, and how you're interpreting um, kind of what's on the horizon, what should we be thinking about as it relates to all things wearables, data, and the data science that resides behind it? Well, first off, Dave, congrats on uh, episode 100. That's amazing. Um, great work. And uh, congratulations on that. Um, honored to be back on the podcast and um, happy to discuss all things wearables and data and how we apply those things to um, health and wellness. Um, a lot going on, obviously. It's, a, it's a, an extremely dynamic market and, um, and there's, there's always a ton of, uh, of new innovations coming and we're starting to see those um, come to fruition here, certainly in the last uh, few years since we've been talking about this. Um, and it just in general, some of the things that I'm most excited about are um, uh, I, when we first started talking about this, I, I think I mentioned that uh, we're in a situation where the, the hardware capabilities were well ahead of the software and the data science capabilities. And um, what's exciting is um, there's still innovations going on the hardware side, uh, but the the breakthrough innovations that you'll see on the on the hardware side are going to be another few years before those come into the market. But you have seen the software and the user experience and the data science side of things um, catching up with uh, with the hardware and starting to. Um, apply the um, the raw biometric data coming off of these hundreds of millions, depending on whose numbers you look at, close to a billion wearables in the field today. Um, and taking that data and applying data science, applying machine learning techniques to generate insights that we've never seen before and that have not been possible before. And so um, we're still, despite years of progress on this, we're still in the very early stages of seeing um, the, the, um, the, the real capabilities of uh, wearables at scale, collecting real-time biometric data off of people as they go about their daily lives and applying um, data science and machine learning to surface insights uh, from that data and, and really it's been talked about to the point where it's almost a cliche at this point, but establishing a, a personal health baseline an individualized baseline of personal health, and then uh, providing insights when there's deviations from that baseline. And there's, uh, there's a bunch of different ways to apply that, that type of methodology. And we can jump into um, different examples there, but um, overall, I'm, I'm still very bullish, very excited about um, the insights that will be generated and, and the different areas of life and healthcare and uh, overall just helping people live longer, healthier lives is 
um, is, is something that um, I'm excited to see how this plays out. Yeah. I mean, going back to, like you said, when we first started talking about this, like back when this was Oak tree TV before it was the future of your podcast. So that was probably four or five years ago. It was like, we could kind of see these things off in the distance. And uh, that's how I met you was just being really interested in this. And at the time, I know you were at Valencell working on the actual sensors that are embedded into these wearables um, that are performing a lot of that data capture. And, and so it's always been, I've always looked to you to understand, like, how does this actually work? What's possible? Like, what's holding things back? And as you mentioned, you know, you uh, I think it was episode, um, it was like 45 or something like that when you came on. Uh, so it was all the way back in 2020. And at the time, I remember, um, because it was kind of right as the pandemic, uh, it was about a year into the pandemic, if you will. Um, one of the really interesting things that I think was coming out at the time was that you had all of these sort of anecdotal examples of people that were tweeting out their aura ring data or their whoop data that were showing um, spikes in their the longitudinal health data set that you just described there, basically deviations from their baseline. And then two days later, they tested positive for COVID. And for me, that's when this started to kind of really materialize in my mind of how this graduates, because for a long time, uh, you know, you think about this portion of the wearable offering and you go back to, you know, basically the first Fitbits being glorified pedometers, you know, step counters, and then, you know, you give it time to percolate. And I, again, going off of a lot of the conversations we've had, knowing that it's not as much that there's been a whole bunch of breakthroughs in how you capture the data. It's how you actually use machine learning and all the different data science methods to make sense of that data. And that's what we're really uh, underway with right now is generating real insights into this data. And I think that that is that things are starting to really get interesting at the wrist level. And I think that the wrist is just such a precursor for what's to come with the ear. We know that you now have two hearing aid manufacturers that have this as an offering to have these biometric sensors embedded. You have uh, the Starkey uh, Livio line, and then Phonak has their new line that has the PPG sensor baked into it. So it seems like we're sort of at this really early onset of a totally new set of use cases that are already sort of becoming realized at the, you know, on the, at the cousin of the ear uh, hearables with what's going on at the wrist. And so I just want to kind of get your thoughts of how you see the next few years unfolding uh, based on what you're observing in terms of like, what are the next breakthroughs that we should probably be looking out for? Yeah. So um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, I think you'll continue to see the proliferation of uh, biometric sensors in all kinds of different wearables and hearables. So um, the um, collection of that biometric data coming from a variety of different sources and feeding into a common repository. We'll come back to that in a moment. But um, uh, so things uh, at the wrist, certainly people love to wear, thing, wear things on their wrist, but it's a pretty um, difficult place to measure biometrics with most of the sensor technology. Uh, the ear is a great place to measure, as we've talked about before, uh, biometric uh, signals. And especially in the case of something like hearing aids, when the primary use case uh, requires the, the wearing of that device 
uh, pretty much all day, every day, certainly in waking hours. And um, and that platform provides a, um, a a unique value proposition from a biometric standpoint to collect data at one of the best places on the body to measure biometrics and feed that data into um, into an analytics platform that can surface insights, especially in a in a user population. Uh, that um, generally has um, uh, some health concerns or it generally has a, a trajectory towards some, um, uh, some uh, higher prevalence of, uh, of health concerns, if not uh, multiple comorbidities. And so, um, so the insights that can be generated from those types of platforms in that patient population are, um, uh, provide a much larger opportunity. Um, so you, you start to see this proliferation of devices that are collecting data and feeding that data into, um, uh, unfortunately, a bunch of different repositories right now. And that leads to the next question of uh, this, this next phase of value that wearables and hearables will drive is, is really around um, surfacing insights from the data collected from those devices that has never been possible before because we haven't um, applied data science and machine learning to large populations at scale of this data coming in. And so we're gonna see um, insights that have not been seen before. And that's both a blessing and a curse in that um, you don't necessarily know what you're looking for, but, um, and you, you there's not necessarily clinical value. So, you get back to what is the use case for this? Is it a more of a consumer-based use case where you're trying to just um, you know, uh, improve your fitness levels or increase your energy levels or get better sleep or something along those lines that, um, that falls into the general wellness category in the, in the consumer sector? Or uh, do you get more into the medical claims that can really help people live longer, healthier lives and help address very real health and medical concerns. The challenge there, of course, is that um, anything that is a medical claim requires FDA clearance in the US and uh, other regulatory um, clearances in other locations in the world. And, and that requires um, clinical research and validation of outcomes that can be proven with peer-reviewed uh, clinical science that takes a lot of resources, a lot of time. And in many cases, the companies that aren't um, uh, in that world of medical devices or uh, in, in the regulated environment, um, in many cases don't have the, the resources or the appetite or the interest in going down those paths. So, um, not to say that, that there aren't companies that that um, don't do that and don't want to do that. Um, it's just it, there's that generally requires at a at a company level requires a very different skill set, very different risk profile, and um, and certainly um, is resource intensive. Yeah, because I know that um, you know one of the things that I think makes this whole thing either feasible or not is is there a place where all of this data resides uh, more or less? Because I think that to your point, you know, 
I've actually been really surprised at how uh, actionable, I guess is the right word for, you know, how, how the, the insights that are generated by like whoop, for example, I think is a really good example of like what's possible even with a limited amount of data. So if you just have your heart rate variability and you have, you know, the sleep score and you have these different things, it kind of what they've done and, and where a lot of the kind of innovation seems to be is on, like you said, you know, it's not really on the hardware as much as it's on the way that you take the information and you make sense of it in some compelling way. And I think they've done a really good job with that, with creating these different scores. And so you have, you know, through these com combinations of things, you kind of get a sense of, you know, like what's going on uh, with all of these different metrics when you combine them. And so again, that's just in one set of data. So I kind of think about like, okay, who's best positioned for a, a more broad repository. And to me, the most likely example is Apple. Um, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this in terms of does Apple, is this in Apple's future, you think of kind of being home to lots of different inputs of data, whether it be wearable data, but also your electronic medical records, things like your medical history, vaccinations, your audiogram that you upload into there, right? Like, and, and that's where it's like, wow, if you had the ability to, you know, combine all of these different things, like the kind of insights that you could generate from that, that's, that seems to be a really compelling set of use cases. And honestly, maybe motivation for people to want wearables in the sense of, I want more inputs into my repository for even more robust insights. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're right in that um, Apple is um, the is ahead of the game there with Apple Health, and they've obviously been at that for years. But um, I don't think people realize how much data they have coming into Apple Health, and that also they are making available via APIs to other applications in other other use cases. Um, certainly they've, they've added in the, the EMR data. They've obviously got the wearables data. They'll pull in, um, nutrition data from, uh, from nutrition apps. They'll pull in environmental data from, uh, environmental sensors. So you can see the, the collection of, uh, a variety of different contextual data, um, that has the potential at least to be extremely valuable. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they end up doing with that because um, Apple is still very much a hardware company. And so far they have used Apple Health as a way to, to make their hardware uh, ecosystem stickier and, and, um, and get more people uh, to either come into the ecosystem or stay in the ecosystem. Um, and so if they were to try to monetize that data in, in any way, they would um, uh, they would need to to be very thoughtful about how that is brought to market and um, uh, what that means in terms of their user base and their user experience and um, and how they would actually um, utilize that data to again back to the use case thing what are they what are they going to enable um, for the the use cases in their users to help them solve uh, a problem or multiple problems um, uh, in their lives. So um, they, you can also see though that their um, their focus on privacy 
is um, is a big uh, would will be a big factor in whatever they end up doing with with Apple Health and and um, in monetizing that data in in some way or another. Um, I think you they will they will end up monetizing it somehow. Um, it's just uh, just a question of how if they if they choose to monetize that within the ecosystem or if they if they go uh, beyond that. Yeah, because there's so many different ways they could potentially monetize it. I mean, you look at what they're doing with Apple Fitness Plus. So, you know, it's, again, it's one of these things where what I think they're trying to do is incentivize users to have all the peripheral devices, because then you get you get to use these additional services. So like you can see, it's kind of like a Peloton type workout where you can see on your Apple TV or whatever screen you're connected to, you can actually see your rings being closed in real time. Kind of a trivial thing, but again, I think it speaks to a broader question, which is, is Apple going to potentially hinder itself by focusing too much on the first party experiences or are they better suited to be more agnostic? Um, and they're kind of straddling the fence right now because they're, um, you know, the, it'll, the Apple Health allows for you to port in all of your Whoop data or your Aura data. So they are playing nice with these third-party wearables. And again, like I think the relevance there is that we're probably moving faster than we think toward a future where as hearing aids become outfit with sensors, they will be another option that you can feed into Apple Health. I mean, that maybe that's the primary mechanism of how you're capturing your heart rate data or something like that into the future. And, and then that becomes a really important cog in the outputs that you're trying to get from inside of there. And, and again, like this stuff, it's like, wow, that seems like a nice to have. That would be a cool feature. But think about, again, you had mentioned it earlier, um, think about both the kind of device that you're wearing. So it's an all day device that has a high level of compliance, just sort of inherently banked into it. And then in addition, you have a patient demographic who's uniquely suited for, I think a lot of these preventative health applications, especially as they mature and graduate into higher levels of sophistication over the next call it 10 years or so. So you very well could see, at least in my mind, this is how I think of it is you could see scenarios in the future where you have a cardiologist telling you, you need to be wearing a, a heart rate sensor and monitoring this and you get an option of things. And one of those very well could be a hearing aid into the future. And so again, you think about this as like, well, where is this data stored and what are the advantages of, uh, you know, one ecosystem where everything is, there's a lot of advantages there, but there might also be some downsides. Like, are we as a society comfortable with all that sensitive data sitting with one company that has access to all that? Or is that a privacy nightmare? And are we better off with siloed portions of data? But then you're kind of back to square one because then you can't combine all these data sets congruently and generate the insights that can be packaged together from these things. So it's a total, uh, I think it's a, it's kind of a big dilemma that um, Apple's faced with, but they are so uniquely suited as a, the, you know, the iOS being the, the mobile operating system that is so dominant here in the U.S. at least, um, it just seems like they have a lot of options that they can go with. And this is going to be a really, really big part of the next 10 years or so of Apple. Yeah. 
It, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out because you you touched on a really important point, which is the the market dynamics of, uh, in theory, uh, the ideal solution is a common repository that everyone can pull from and everyone can feed into. And, and I would say everyone, I mean, not individuals, but devices and um, services and um, other uh, other platforms along those lines. And um, but as soon as the and, and that's that's effectively what Apple's tried to do with Apple Health. But as soon as they try to monetize that, then the, the competitive dynamic changes of all of those inputs that are coming into Apple Health. They're also trying to make money. And so if they're feeding a potential competitor with um, with data that um, they're trying to monetize as well, there's an inherent conflict there that is. Um, uh, presenting presenting challenges just uh, in the in the overall market structure, um, but then you also have the 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 piece of it that if you're stuck with a bunch of different silos, then um, each of those silos is trying to build up and, and uh, repeat what uh, it already exists in some of the other silos, and so um, it um, I. I won't claim to to know how this is going to play out because uh it, it, there's there's just there's so many moving parts and it, it's such a multifactorial challenge of um how this market's going to play out but it, it um i think what you will continue to see is there's the 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 wearables market has has long been a top heavy market with um the top call it three or four companies driving the, the majority of the value there. I think in terms of the, the usage of the data, there's, um, there's the opportunity for, and I think you'll likely see this play out of this, it will be a much more fragmented market, um, more uh, segmented by use case um, than any individual device. You know, most of the, the wearables market is typically, um, broken down by smartwatches and fitness bands and hearables and um, and relatively clean um, clean lines uh, among those uh, among those devices. But as you get into what's done with that data, I think you're going to see it massively fragment by the the use case, even within the consumer realm, but then even more so within the health and medical realm as you get into specific, disease states or different conditions where specific data can be uh, can be valuable and, and applicable there. And um, you just look at a company like an AliveCore that's been laser focused on uh, atrial fibrillation detection for many, many years and done a phenomenal job with their hardware, but also their, um, their user experience, their clinical research and the validation of that technology that um, that and that they've seen the the subsequent market adoption and market traction that that follows by uh, starting with that that very um, uh, very specific niche within the healthcare market and um, and growing their business from there. I think you're going to start to see more and more companies like that uh, proliferate with the usage of uh, this uh, this wearable data. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree with you there. I mean, I think that uh, the other big part of this whole thing that needs to be understood, and I think just um, 
will be really interesting to see how this sort of evolves is with the actual clinician and, and the way they perceive all this. I mean, we were talking before we started recording and I, I was saying that, you know, it's kind of crazy that, you know, usually it's, you're challenged by getting enough adoption by the users, but because these are such consumer devices, like the Apple watch is, it's a watch that just so happens to do a whole bunch of other things. And as you kind of like graduate into each new version of it, it can do a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you're ultimately left with a population of people that are wearing things that can kind of directionally do some diagnostics, but that's where I think things are going to get interesting is like, you know, I'm not sure if clinicians will be fully on board with the idea that these things are diagnostic tools. And so how can we, like, how do these things sort of still exist and, and maintain relevance in, you know, broadly speaking in, uh, from a medical standpoint without being full-blown diagnostic pieces of equipment. And mm. that's sort of another one of these major questions that I have with wearables is like, how far can you really go without crossing into the diagnostics territory while yeah. still sort of gradually becoming more and more valuable in what you can do again, even going back to the COVID example of it's not necessarily that I think people are looking for something that says you have COVID, although that would be great, but even just, just kind of having that check engine light, if you will, that says there's something going on with your data, you need to at least probably get tested and it seems like there's a lot of different examples like that of, you know, just having a semblance of what's going on is better than having no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think you're spot on there. And, uh, one of, um, if there are any silver linings to COVID, one of them has been to really shine a spotlight on the wearables and the capabilities, even with today's technology and, and of wearables to be able to, identify, uh, again, a change in that personal baseline. And you saw that with Aura and Whoop and others who um, who retrospectively were able to see changes in their data that indicated something was going on. Their body was, uh, the, those individuals' body was fighting off some, some form of illness or was under some form of stress that it was not normal. And so, to your point around check engine lights, we're there. That the, the capabilities of existing wearables are there today to be able to just with resting heart rate and heart rate variability and maybe a temperature sensor, the ability to show, okay, something is going on. Your your body's fighting some kind of uh, illness or or disease, and um, and you should go get uh, get checked. I think we. Uh, we are, we're certainly within that realm and I think we're going to be there for a while. I think we're a long way away from, um, any devices and services on top of these devices, getting to the level of diagnostics. That's extremely difficult to do at scale, um, without human intervention at this point with the current state of the technology, um, so I think there's there's always going to be, uh, or certainly for the foreseeable future, um, the there's always going to be a need for further diagnostic testing and um, some kind of clinician intervention. Um, one of the uh, one of the areas that will be interesting to see also is um, is clinicians are um, are historically very slow to adopt new technology and change, just 
they're, uh, you know, you go back to the Hippocratic Oath of first do no harm. So the, their their default is to uh, is to continue to do what they've always done. And so it takes not just a lot of clinical evidence and certainly regulatory clearances, but it takes a lot of uh, time and effort and um, personal experience with these devices and with the data that they can produce to, to really convince clinicians at scale of even one single use case, uh, one single example that will go back to a live pour. They've spent years convincing clinicians that this device that is, well, now they have one that's the size of a credit card. Uh, it's an incredible device, um, is uh, just as good as any uh, of their in-clinic EKGs. And the data has been there for a long time, but um, the the clinical adoption has been slow. And that's that's just the, the nature of um, the clinical market. So you're you're going to um, start to see that hopefully change over time as um, as more and more clinicians come into the workforce that are much more comfortable with this technology and with um, just consumer generated health data more broadly. Um, but it's uh, it's going to take time and uh, a lot of resources to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great as always, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your thoughts on kind of where we're heading. This has always been one of my favorite uh, topics to discuss uh, with you, just because I think, you know, it's it's like when we first started talking about it, it felt real far out on the horizon, but you could kind of start to see it take shape. And now here we are, and it's just really exciting to see hearing aids starting to take on this uh, this new feature and functionality. It's going to be a long trek, you know. It's not like this is going to just suddenly happen overnight. But I think that we're moving in uh, a pretty cool direction where there's about to be a new set of use cases unlocked by these kinds of sensors moving up to the ear. And I'm just really looking forward to having more conversations with you in the future about you know, how this all con continues to evolve. So thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, episode 100. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here and congrats again. All right. So here we are with Jill Davis. Jill, thank you so much for joining me for episode 100. And thank you for being a part of the podcast. I had an awesome conversation with you. I can't remember which episode it was. It was like 10 or 15 ago, a few months back. Um, and that one just, it really resonated with me because I think that it was uh, just a testament of like the way in which I think audiology is trending and some of the new exciting avenues and opportunities that are starting to kind of manifest. And I know in that one, we talked a lot about like cognitive screenings, um, but wanted to bring you on as part of episode 100 to just kind of get a sense of, uh, from you of like, what's top of mind, what's interesting to you, what's on your radar, just kind of in general, um, what's going through Jill Davis's head right now as it relates to this field of audiology. Well, first of all, congratulations on 100, and I can't wait for the next 100. <laughs> Thank you so much. Me. Appreciate it. Um, well, there's a shift happening in audiology. Can you feel it? Like there's definitely this change going from the device-driven retail 
dispensing model into the service-oriented medical audiology, and that's what I'm most excited about. I think it took over-the-counter to kind of give us the kick to look at the value that we're bringing to our patients, and, um, you know, we're, we're implementing more services, so, you know, private practice can do cochlear implants, we can do tinnitus testing treatments, we're doing auditory training, auditory processing, like all of the other things that we've been trained to do and to practice to the top of our license. That's what's going to separate us and, and put us into that kind of medical community. Um, and that's what I'm most excited about. So um, we are working right now to create best practices for referrals with a neurologist behavior neurologist, primary care doctor, because audiologists are going to be in the front lines. We're going to have a seat at the table with those other medical communities. And, you know, we need to know uh, best practices of how to work with these patients because um, they're going through a lot and it's up to us to kind of identify and send them the right place. And so that's what we're working on right now. It's really exciting. Yeah, I love that. And I agree with you. I think that there's a uh you can feel it. It's like palpable. Um, it feels like we're in like a little bit of a renaissance in audiology right now. I mean, I've only been in this industry for like six years, but it definitely feels like whether it's OTC or just maybe like this underlying frustration of like uh, the status quo. And it's, it seems like there's a, a pretty seismic shift happening. And it's interesting because it's not just like in one um like specific direction. It's kind of like you said, kind of more of this like broad movement more toward medical. And I think that it's super interesting, like as I've learned through the podcast, through osmosis, learning from people like you of like, as time's gone on, I've realized that it's much bigger than just a handful of different things. Like <clears throat> it's so many different, it's just like rethinking everything. Like, it's like how, the patient interaction, um, and this is something that we talked a lot about on the last time we talked, was like just really getting to the root of why they're in there the first place and not making assumptions based on a handful of clues that you can gather from a pure tone audiometry test. Um, I just am so excited by this because I think, to your point, it it really elevates the audiologist, um, I think, in some new exciting directions and provides, like you said, kind of like that seat at the table. And it's cool to hear that like neuro neurology specifically is something I keep hearing more and more. And like, again, that's part of this shift where even like a year or two ago, I don't think I ever really heard anyone mention neurology in the same breath as audiology. And now I hear it more and more. And it makes a lot of sense that these are kind of like the um, tertiary, you know, adjacent medical fields that we're working closer with, which I think is just going to lead to some really, really exciting opportunities. But to your, what you were saying is like, one of the first things you got to do is kind of establish that connection. So I think it's really neat. Can you build a little bit more on like what this uh, referral network looks like and how it works? And I'm just curious to learn more about this. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not going to be hard to change what we're already doing. It's asking just a few more questions with our patients. You know, we're already talking with them, getting the history, like asking a little bit more about what else is going on with them is going to open the door to get to communicate with the other physicians about 
diabetes, hypertension, polypharmacy, risk of falls, all of this other, the cancer treatments, things that our patients are going through, we need to start thinking that the ears are just one piece of the puzzle, just one small part of the equation. And in our world, it's the biggest piece, but our patients are going through a whole lot of other things as well. There's comorbidities involved. And when we can just ask those questions, that gets the conversation started with those physicians. And so, um, you know, hopefully we can get this MASA go, going through where we have direct access to our Medicare patients. We get that practitioner status because our patients are trying to come to us and we are going to be the ones that can start asking a few more questions. And once we have a little bit more information, we know, do we get primary care involved? Do we get cardiology involved? Do we get neurology involved? And so what we're working with right now, because primary care is are a little too busy to implement a whole lot of preventative stuff. Um, we're gonna bring to the table what we can provide and show them you know, the screenings that we're doing and what we're looking for. Um, and that way they can tell us next steps to neurology or to them and just kind of creating this triangle of trust of who gets the patient after the audiologist identifies some of these comorbidities. Um, and so it's gonna be something we, we get to train primary care, we get to train neurology. And so um, it'll be exciting. We're doing a beta in Austin to start. And, and this might be like a national initiative just to kind of show people how easy it could be to just ask a few more questions and get the patient taken care of a lot sooner than later. I really like what you said about the physician's pretty busy. And it almost seems it's like serendipitous that, um, you know, kind of like part of this macro narrative of what's happening in this industry right now is this, uh, the writing seems to be on the wall that like maybe some of the time that was previously allocated around the programming and the fitting of a hearing aid is going to kind of diminish. So the question is like, well, what do you do with that time? And what's it's kind of fortuitous that it's like, you have some of these new things that are presenting themselves where audiology makes a lot of sense because of the bandwidth and, and it's sort of naturally like, uh, conducive to the conversations that are already being had where you can do things like those cognitive screenings, but also a lot of the follow-up questions and gathering that information. And so again, like that's so exciting to my opinion is that it allows for you to then build inroads with all these other medical professionals. And I think that like, that's where you're going to just see kind of like a flywheel effect where just like like referrals lead to more business leads to more word of mouth marketing. And it's like a really positive effect that seems to be kind of like bubbling up right now. Wow. It's so exciting. And yes, you know, we keep talking about adding value and showing the patient our worth and, you know, doing the extra step to show the value that we bring to programming devices and all of that. Um, and what I'm finding is that cognitive screening piece tells you kind of what you're doing with the patient as far as their ears are concerned. And so you don't have to go into as much detail with them of what you're doing and why you're doing it, because based on evidence, you kind of know best practices to fit them. So you can spend that time, like you said, it opens up some of the time to talk about other things. So where we want the patient to talk to their friends and their doctors about how we were different than Costco and we were different than, you know, someone down the street because we added value. Well, they are because they're saying she asked about a concussion that I had. She was curious about the list of medications that I was on. You know, she really looked at me as a whole and not just focused on this device and how I was programming it. And so I think 
think that's also a way that we separate ourselves is that holistic picture that we're, we're bringing. Couldn't agree more with that. I think that that's, that's so uh, exciting. And I just think that there's a lot more like sustainability and longevity going in that direction than the commoditization that's seemingly kind of underway right now with the devices themselves. So it's like, it doesn't mean that you as a private practitioner or something like that, that like the opportunity to dispense and sell hearing aids is going to go away. It's just to your point, you have to figure out a way that is uh, tangibly different than what all of these other new avenues of, of distribution are. And I think that you need to lean into the fact that like, especially if you're an audiologist, like lean into that. You, you have a real strong point of differentiation right there. But I think that speaks to kind of the, like this status quo of like, well, you know, for a long time, that's, there's only been one way in which you can get hearing aids. It's through your hearing healthcare professional and your dispensing um, professional. And so now it's like, as that sort of gets reduced, it's like, now is where the rubber meets the road, where I think that this is like, we're going to have to figure out ways to kind of repackage that value. And I think that it is very much tied to this whole idea of like, like you said, like treating the patient holistically. And that is just really exciting for a number of different reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. Those physicians are what's going to get us through this, you know, <laughs> they're the ones the patients ask their doctor, what do I need? Well, you need to go see Dr. Davis and, <laughs> you know, we'll take it from there. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Jill, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your thoughts about what's, uh, on the top of your mind and, and how things are changing. I really appreciate you being part of episode 100 and for helping me out with uh, the podcast to get to the to this point. So thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Congratulations again. Take care. Okay, so we're joined here by Carl Strom. Carl, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the first 100 episodes and for being here for episode 100. You and I talked on the podcast a while ago, it feels like. <laughs> but anyway, wanted to bring you on and kind of get a sense from you of what's on your radar. Um, you know, big tip of the hat to you and a shout out for the the move. I know that you were at the editor-in-chief over at the hearing review for a long time and you've just recently made the switch over to hearing tracker, which kind of, I think frames what we can talk about today, which is kind of like the shifting focus of, you know, just from looking at it from an industry perspective and now with OTC and everything that's happening, kind of framing it more of what's going on with the consumer too. So I feel like this is all kind of timed nicely, but wanted to get your thoughts about what's on your mind right now. Thanks, Dave, um, and thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I always enjoy uh, this this podcast, and uh, um, I've I've gained a lot from it. Um, it yeah, it, you know, I mean, it has been a uh, arduous journey from uh, hearing review. I was there for twenty eight years, and um, and very much enjoyed it. And my life's work is on there, and um, and we parted amicably, and it was it, it's it's all good. Um, I, you know, I, I really like the idea of having a challenge where, um, you know, I'm, I'm in, uh, here in Cracker is a, is a consumer resource for um, people who are looking for hearing solutions. And we've got some really cool things going on there. Um, it, you know, we've got Steve to die uh, uh, doing, um, he's an audiologist who has set up, a, um, who's an, 
who's also an audio engineer who set up a lab that's going to be testing and is testing um, hearing aids and and uh, hearables and things like that. And we've got um, Matthew Alsop, uh, in, uh, who's a clinician in London, um, an audiologist in London, and um, he's doing videos for us and reviewing uh, reviewing things from an audiology side. And of course, um, Abram Bailey, who is the CEO and founder of Hearing Tracker, um, who is a uh, has been, uh, you know, very closely following pretty much everything in in this arena. So um, it's it's a it's a great crew, and it's um, it's been a, a really uh, fun uh, getting on the consumer side. And there's just so, as you know, there's so much going on. We're recording this um, on August twelfth, and um, so the the OTC hearing aid regulations haven't hit yet, but um, we're both Dave and I were talking beforehand, and we agree that it's you know real imminent within days that um, that we would expect it. The OMB released it on um, Wednesday, I think. Uh, so it's in it's back into the uh, FDA's court. But you know, watching all of all of these things from more of a consumer side, it's um it, it I think. I think it's even more exciting. And I think, you know, I think the industry is excited about it in, in a, in a sense in that, um, you know, it should really provide a, a great bridge for consumers to get quality, you know, hopefully to get quality hearing care. If FD, you know, if the FDA gets the regulations, right. Um, and I'm hoping they do it. And, you know, I, I think the, the proposed uh, regulations are, most likely going to be mostly intact and particularly in terms of even though there's fights about you know the output limits and some of these things um you know i think the big the, the big questions for me are going to be you know surrounding things like returns for credit what they're going to do about that um and then the state you know the individual state laws and like and how that affects licensure and some of some of those things will be really interesting to see how it all plays out but I think it'll be all very positive if if the good hearables and the good and the good uh, options for amplification uh, end up prevailing. I think it's going to be a terrific thing for consumers. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that it's <clears throat> it's funny because it's like when I joined this industry, more or less the PCAST thing, you know, from Obama had just come out um, and you know, so it's like for the entire time that I've been working in this industry full time, um, this has been sort of happening in the background. And here we are quite literally probably days away from, you know, all of this time and all of the the paperwork and the legality and figuring out what these FDA guidelines would ultimately look like OTCs here. Right. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, I think initially there was a little bit of like wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, and, and you know, kind of feeling like there was some sort of doom and gloom that was surrounding this. And I think over time, most people have come to the realization that, you know, I, I'm not even sure that this portion of the market that the OTC um, devices are intended to cater to have ever really been served, um, sure. at least not in a meaningful way. So in my mind, I always kind of think of this as like a secondary market. Um, and I think that actually presents a really awesome, it, 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 I think almost undeniably presents a bull case that like more people are going to have access to better solutions. And I think there's a virtuous 
flywheel effect that happens with that, where the better devices, the kind of the cream will rise at the top. There's more incentive to make a better device. And so I think these devices will be good. I'm not sure what that sort of like definitive line of what is self-serve, do-it-yourself, OTC, and then what's going to be in the medical side of things. And I think the big question that I have is, what is the role of the professional for these, um, what would be perceived to be kind of like not full-blown medical grade devices that the consumer though might still have an interest in um, some kind of premium service, the demand for audiological care more or less. And I think that's a kind of a big toss up of like, what is that going to look like and, and what, uh, you know, so like, how do you make money off that? And um, how do you fit this into your day to day? Well, and I, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a really huge issue right now is, you know, where, where do we fit in? You know, I think uh, there, you know, once you get to a certain level of hearing loss and most uh, the, the vast majority of people who come into a hearing care um, office have determined that, gee, I've got, you know, I've got some sort of problem. They're not there to waste your time or to, or to drop, you know, a couple thousand dollars just for nothing. It's, a, you know, they view it as, a, you know, we talked about it. It's a, it's, a, it's a medical problem. It is a medical problem. It's a medical condition, chronic hearing loss. And, um, but we we definitely need a play we definitely need that bridge to get people into that into that system and to your point dave you know how professional care can insert itself into that process and become an integral part of bringing these people along um you know i think that's that's the big challenge for um for hearing healthcare right now uh you know, being that intermediary, being that authority, being that coach for getting getting people through that process is is really important, and getting them onto the, you know, it, it um, you know, we're always talking about how, you know, technology is like one third of what what the value of a hearing aid is, and the service is two thirds, and why we should have best practices and all of that, right? But when we're talking about this this uh, this kind of nascent um, population of professionals uh, or, you know, that will be seen by professionals, um, you know, you, we have to have different care models for that. Um, obviously, you have to make money on it. I mean, you have to charge money for your time. And um, so I think that's the, that's where uh, the big, the, the big challenge for audiology is right now. Yeah, because I think that, you know, if you look at the sort of the status quo and the um, traditional way in which, you know, you as a provider, the revenue generation opportunity tends to be around device sales, but in OTC world with this nascent market, like you just described, the question is like, well, if you sort of completely remove a lot of the margin and the opportunity on the device sales side, that then basically begs the question of like, does this then mean you provide a service care package? And this is what I think will will really emerge and materialize over the next few years is I think it's gonna be, you know, chances are it will probably go one of like two or three different ways. Like 
One is the market ultimately determines that there's not a role for the professional within this market. It's truly do it yourself. And there is a well-defined line of when people constitute the care of a professional. I think the next alternative would be that, that there is some sort of role. And I think that it's a matter then of how do you commercialize that and how do you effectively implement and integrate that into your practice? So it could be that these are 30 minute consultations that are much more around where you are at within your overall like health profile from a, you know, your audiological uh, status and, you know, making them aware of here are tips and here are strategies to cope with whatever loss that you currently have, how to preserve it. So it's that consultative type thing. Um, and, and I think that like, if that's the case, uh, which I, I, personally believe that will be that will ultimately win out i think it will take time for this to manifest and for professionals to figure out within a 40 hour work week you know how does how do you triage these kinds of people how do you schedule them i think that's where a lot of the um work's going to be done is working out those kind of details but right. i do think that it's ultimately going to come down to the consumer. And I think that the industry and the professionals have, I think, a real opportunity here to present themselves as a premium offering, if you will, within this space. Because I think most consumers are going to look at this and let's call a spade a spade. Like we know that the self-fitting software and algorithms, they're probably, they're already pretty good and they're probably going to get increasingly better. And so a lot of this is self-serve. And I think that it's like, you know, will there still be a demand from people to say, I still want some type of handholding or I want to go through an expert for this? And that's for me, that's, it's a gray area, but you can see how this is going to kind of take shape. At least that's the way I'm thinking of it. And, you know, I mean, you've talked a lot about the, um, you know, the, uh, War, what is it? The war dividends of the uh, of of the uh, of the cell of the, the, the peace wars. the peace dividends of the uh, smartphone wars. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I totally believe that. that you know, I mean, these are the um, these are the gains that that we're seeing from from all of this. You know, this kind of technology that's all kind of siloed and all come together in our cell phones, and uh, um, and it's getting better and better. The you know, uh, the one big component to that is tele, you know, I, I mean, telecare and um, how telecare is integrated into um, hearing healthcare offices and, and practices and, and networks, I think is, is going to be crucial for whether or not um, we're players in that, you know, that the, the professionals are players in that if, if it makes sense for them to be players in that, you know, I mean, it, it, you've mm -hmm. talked about this too. I mean, hearables, if you look at, you know, the Apple iPod pros and, you know, some of that, um, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty impressive. And up until a certain hearing loss, in my belief, anyway, they're, you know, some of you could, you can easily see some of that stuff being very helpful and they don't, you know, they don't even build. They don't have to build themselves as as being necessarily for uh, hearing loss. They're they're helpful hearing features, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so so that that begs another question of, of where things are going. But to get back to that that point, you know, I mean, there at some point people 
are going to struggle with different situations at the workplace or the, you know, or family gatherings and that kind of thing. And their hearing, in my opinion, is going to, to deteriorate to a point where they just have to get professional care. They won't be able to do any, you know, they won't be able to treat it through a, a hearable or, or um, you know, what, what we view as even a, what will be an OTC hearing device. Um, I don't, you know, for those types of, for those types of losses, uh, again, to the, to the previous point, you know, I, the, once you get to that more severe level, you've got a medical problem mm -hmm. before that you've got a nascent medical problem, right? right. And, um, and, you know, how, how much, uh, interplay between the professional and those people are, uh, in those milder losses, I think is, is a, is a real good question. My personal opinion is that we should, that professionals should be in, interjecting whenever they can, when, whenever it makes sense and, and to pay for your, you know, to have people pay for your services. Yeah, I mean, I think about like, you know, you we've seen that pyramid before the adoption pyramid where you see, you know, up at the top triangle, you have the highest levels of uh, severity, you know, profound hearing loss, severe hearing loss, and you have a high uh, adoption rate along with that because obviously it's a more severe medical issue that you're going to seek treatment. And then you go one tier down and it's like 50-50. And then you go down and it's, a, you know, according to the data, it suggests that, you know, like 90% of the people that fall in that mild threshold, about 10% of them are seen uh, professional or they're being fit with hearing aids. And again, that comes back to this point of like, um, I don't think that we're really even as an industry servicing these people to begin with. And that's why I do think these are kind of two separate markets. Right. And so we have years and decades of how you go ahead and you treat the people that have the medical, you know, moderate and upward levels of severity, like who constitutes a hearing aid patient today. Right. And what I think we don't have clearly defined is the, these people that they might not even be ready for a hearing aid. And so now you have all these new alternative devices that are coming out. You know, I had Jeff Cooling on this uh, 100th episode, and he said something that really stood out to me, which is like, Apple isn't going to be looking, you know, the way that they're thinking about this and the, their um, framing is not, we're going to go after the hearing aid market. I don't think that there's probably any internal discussions that are being had like that. I think rather what they're saying is we want to serve the AirPod population with more advanced features. So they're right. just looking at their own pay, uh, user set and they're probably thinking, well, if hearing healthcare features and augmentations and sound enhancements are something that the our consumer base is responding positively for, we're going to continue to build things for them. And so I think that's how we need to be thinking about this is that these consumer technology products and these companies that reside behind them are looking at this, I think, more around, I don't know if their uh, calculus is like, how do we solve hearing loss? I think it's more of how do we continually cater to our existing pay, uh, customer base and increasingly up the ante of sophistication of features. And some of those features very well could be hearing health augmentation type things that, you know, their, their motivation though, isn't really like, I think in our eyes, we, we see everything through this proxy of like, 
it's all about solving hearing loss and, and treating hearing loss. And for them, that's not really what it is. You're, ab you're absolutely right. They, you know, I mean, they, they, uh, what they want to do is sell is sell their widgets. Right. And, and if if it's a if it's it, it has to do with um, if it goes in, it slightly it enters into our realm, they don't care that they're selling widgets. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so so um, yeah, and but some of them are are you know, I mean. It, I'm always now I'm always monitoring, you know, what's coming out. And I, I saw Samsung just came out with a with a new one, uh, you know, and, but they a lot of them have the two microphones on the two external microphones and and, a, yep. and an internal microphone. And they're talking about transparency modes and and um, and uh, ANC uh, uh, automatic noise uh, cancellation and all of that stuff and um, you know it, it's what it's whatever sells but it certainly goes into our realm and and yeah. it can be applicable for people who have mild hearing loss well good for them <laughs> right right I mean in many ways these are building blocks like I think a lot of what Apple's building are you know you could see these as being foundational building blocks of what developers might ultimately build. I mean, if they kind of like start to open these things up and they're already doing that, like the uh, inertial sensors within the AirPods are now um, kind of like, you, you know, third parties can access that. That's how the now uh, defunct Nupal, um, what they were doing was they were tapping into the accelerometer data. And it was actually an amazing use case because wherever you were looking, it was doing like beamforming. And so it was doing like a directional microphone kind of thing. And so that's carrying over to some, to some of the new technology that we're seeing now, right? Exactly. And so I think like you got Apple, you got Samsung, like all of these consumer technology companies, trust me, they're not looking at this and saying, how do we compete with Sonova? Right. <laughs> they're saying, how right. do we compete with each other and, right. and maintain our dominance in, in our market share there? And it just so happens that, the battlefield might just kind of bleed on over into our peripheral industry over here, which I think is a huge net positive because the way I see everything right now in terms of how do you increase adoption? Well, one of the ways that you can increase adoption is making people aware of these features in the first place. I think that like one of the most telling pieces of data that I've ever come across that really sticks out in my mind is like hearing aid satisfaction rates are actually pretty high, but penetration rates have historically been plagued in like just mired in like 30% land. Right. And so it's like, people like these things, but yet we can't get anybody to really seemingly wear them. But then, but then again, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. you know, Brent, Brent Edwards did an article for us at many, many, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and Brent's with NAL. And, uh, um, uh, but he pointed out that, you know, what you're talking about with that triangle, Dave, mm -hmm. you know, you've got all those people down there, but they're not really, hearing aid customers right you know, and, and it goes again <clears throat> to what excuse me what what we were talking about that's not our market it wasn't our market right We've, certainly companies within hearing healthcare have taken aim or tilted at the windmill of that market and i'll just say it they failed miserably because because our distribution model basically isn't set up for it yeah exactly it's a medical distribution model that's trying to appeal to consumer set Right. So it's a, so again, going all the way back to our, to, to the beginning of our conversation is it's not our market. They're two separate markets and, um, and whatever we, but however we can interject and get people from that market educated 
and and moving toward a professional hearing care model when they get there, when mm-hmm. they need it, um, the better off we're all going to be, the better off they're going to be. Yeah, I, I think that like the best way to kind of tie a bow on this whole thing is exactly like you said there, which is the question isn't like, will OTC be a thing? Will it be viable? Like the consumers will ultimately answer that question. The market will respond to that. And it might not have anything to do with like the, it's not really in the control of the hearing industry and the professionals. However, the big thing that I think continues to be up for grabs is what will that role look like if we are going to interject ourselves? And I think there's going to have to be a massive rethink because you can't fit a square peg in a round hole and just say, well, we have this medical uh, model of, of access and distribution, you got to come and see a provider, you know, in a sense, they're a gatekeeper. It very well ha- might have to be something that is very much online, remote care, you know, these things that we just have to think differently in terms of what's going to appeal to the customer. Will it be convenience is king? And so don't you dare suggest that you need to bring people into a clinic because that's going to be a huge detractor and a non-starter. And will it be something that is more like, almost like an Uber, but for hearing care, just on-demand thing, like next person available, I want to speak to an expert. Or might, might something develop where we have a common plat- a common programming platform, similar mm-hmm. to a like, high pro type of thing for, for um, over-the-counter and hearables that, totally. that somebody could, could tune into. And given that, might there be, um, you know, and I'm just speculating, but, you know, could, might there be a technician in, you know, uh, you know, literally a tech a hearing aid technician or, or when you recall that in your back office, who handles those type, those types of things for a fee. I mean, exactly. I think just look at the way that business is conducted. Now you, you, you see it in all different walks of life. Like, uh, you know, just look at the way that the pandemic just kind of altered people's minds in terms of, delivering groceries and food. And so you have like mom and pop restaurants now that have to have it, you know, they were really tasked with like, you have to come up with a way that's conducive to the new habits of, of the buyer. And so you got to create a solid pickup system and you, you know, maybe you got to use these like DoorDash and Grubhub and these different things. And, and so I think that like, we're probably not going to be immune to the the same sorts of changes within this industry, which could be a big net positive. I mean, it, it really could be that for this secondary market. And I think it's important to just continually emphasize this is a new market. Um, what are you going to have to do to interject yourself? And are you willing to do that? Like right. a lot of people I mean, might look at it and that. say, no. Right. right. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> Well, Carl, thank you so much. I think this has been really great. I always appreciate your insight. You've uh, you've been covering this industry for a long time, and it's really cool to hear, you know, your perspective kind of start to shift a little bit from just looking at it from an industry standpoint, which obviously always had consumer undertones, but to now really see you focusing on that with Hearing Tracker and uh, just a total shout out to to the whole team because you guys are doing amazing work. I just it feels like you just continually increase the quality of the stuff that you guys are producing from the videos to the to the you know writing content and all that so good on you it's uh it's really cool to see great thank you for having me dave and i appreciate all that you do for the industry cheers
Okay, so last but not least, we have Dr. Grace Sturdivant um, with us here for episode 100. Thank you so much for partaking in the Future Ear Radio podcast up until this point. You were on episode 93 back in May, which was a fantastic conversation, really delving into the business of hearing conservation and your OtoPro Technologies business. Um, so wanted to bring you on uh, as the closer here to maybe give some <laughs> final thoughts about this whole theme of like, what's on your mind? What's on your radar, what excites you about the hearing healthcare space here in August of 2022? Thank you so much. It's really an honor. I didn't know I was the closer. <laughs> yep. <That's the laughs> I, last. Hope, I hope this can be uh, interesting and entertaining and motivating, but um, I, I was so excited to get your email um, that you were going to be doing this and asking, you know, what we're most excited about for the future of, of our field. And I am very optimistic about the future. And I'm optimistic for a number of reasons. Uh, the audiology field, um, there, I feel like we're in a, a time of uncertainty for a lot of providers. However, I, I am, I'm very optimistic. Like I say, Odo Pro, as we talked about on the other podcast, was born out of a passion project to get out in front of the problem and to prevent and delay the problems before they start before intervention with hearing aids is needed. And what I'm finding is that younger and younger generations of people who are involved in high-risk noisy activities are motivated and interested in protection and preventative care. And the stigma is minimizing as my clients get younger and younger. And I have, um, you know, I'm thinking of a guy who saved up and is working his first job and he's working with a railroad and he was willing to sacrifice and put money aside for quality hearing protection because he sees it as that important. And, and I'm very thankful that with Odo Pro and with our growth, it's given us a voice to be able to reach more and more people in the public where they are before they would have ever sought audiology care in the beginning. And we are able to make referrals to local points of care for those clients for the future so that they will they will seek intervention with hearing aids much sooner than they would have otherwise because i want to start people with that local point of care before the problem comes about so to prevent and delay but then to intervene early and so that's truly what has me the most excited is that i believe that audiologists can and will be the gatekeepers to hearing healthcare. And I believe that in supporting each other and referring to each other for our own specialties, we can all rise together in the public perception and be the experts and be the people that, that the consumer wants to consult with before they make any sort of a purchase, whether it's protection, personal audio, or hearing technology. Yeah, that's just really, really well said. And I like every aspect of that, you know, from we can do more from a hearing care perspective, you know, like there's a lot more opportunity around these semi quasi relegated areas of the scope, um, mm -hmm. like hearing conservation that I think it's not as if it hasn't really been present. It's just not been prioritized. And I right. think that, you know, what's been a very like big revelation for me is with this podcast, what I've really learned is how you can actually commercialize some of these additional um, aspects of audiology. And mm -hmm. with you specifically, it's the business of hearing conservation. And, and I just think that like, it speaks to 
what makes me so excited about like this, uh, what's trending right now in this industry, which is, I think it's this, um, reawakening of like, we need to practice the entirety of the scope. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if you're a private practice owner that you need to do all the things that we've talked about on this episode from, you know, auditory processing disorder or balance or, you know, tinnitus, uh, hearing conservation. I think that the fact is, is that there's a lot of other ways you can um, position your value uh, and you can take bits and pieces of it. So you don't have to have a whole practice that's entirely devoted to hearing conservation. It can just be one element of it, or you partner with a specialist like yourself so that you're mutually re- like there's reciprocity. It's like, I'm right. sending you people, um, and you're sending people through my door. So I just, right. It, it speaks to just this theme of like practicing audiology fully and understanding how to make money doing all these other things, knowing that definitely it's going to come back around in a way. I think that like hearing aids will still very much be a thing, but right. as soon as you elevate the other things, I actually think it makes the hearing aids sale that much easier. Oh, hands down. Absolutely. Yes. Um, we as audiologists have rightfully so become very wary of anything that even looks or smells like a third party. Um, and, and we've become so driven by what the hearing aid manufacturers are handing to us. And um, I have nothing, you know, hearing aids, there's such a value to those practices. And we know that that is a growing industry and there's going to need to be more and more people who are focused on being the experts in hearing aid technology, knowing what's the latest, greatest, and then how to work that particular software. Um, While I want to encourage every young audiologist to become fully trained in the full scope of practice, I also encourage audiologists to find their niche, to find what they, what they love and what they're best at. Maybe it's a number of different things. Maybe you do have a multifaceted practice where you can focus on hearing protection and hearing aids or vestibular and electrophysiology monitoring. Um, there's, there's so many things we can do in this awesome field that we're in. And so um, I don't think everybody needs to do everything. Um, one thing that I'm trying to do with OdoPro is just send quality referrals. We are in no way a third party program. We don't want anything to do with your hearing aid sales. We simply want to start a local point of care and, and get people into proper hearing protection and then set them up with a trusted referral to this is going to be your go-to audiologist in your own backyard going forward. And in that way, we support each other and we raise each other up. It also takes the pressure off of those practices to be the experts in hearing protection. You know, if, if you're focused on hearing aids, um, you know, what I'm trying to do with OdoPro is be like this marketing arm that gets out in front of the problem and sends people to your practice. And then we take the time and energy to research all the, the products and tech specs and figure out exactly what this hunter needs according to how he hunts, what he hunts, what gun he shoots. I mean, that's a lot to try to take on if you're trying to run a hearing aid practice. So um, all that to say, whether it's the hearing protection specialty or whether it's tinnitus or balance or auditory processing, let's, let's eliminate the sense of competition, refer to one another and build each other's practices up. And in doing so, we elevate the public perception of the audiologist in the community as the experts in our given field. And, and then we all, we all rise together. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, 
I'll use a personal example here of, of how you and I have worked together now. Um, yeah. a, a friend of mine, he was down shooting and he wasn't wearing ear protection. And long story short, he basically gave himself uh, tinnitus and um, a little bit of a, a temporary hearing loss. And so he comes to me and he's like, hey, I know you do a podcast and I think you're in the like the hearing care industry or whatever. And he's like, do you have an ear doctor that I can um, go to about this stuff? And yeah. so I contacted you. I was like, do you have anyone within your Odo Pro network in the St. Louis area? Sure enough, you did. You sent me to, uh, you, you basically uh, connected me with this group. So I sent my friend there. And I think that's such a testament of like, first of all, now he knows like he has an audiologist in uh -huh. the St. Louis area, which is huge because he knows that for life. He wasn't aware of, um, that there were like various degrees of hearing protection that you can get okay. custom uh, ear molds. And, you know, it's like, he, it wasn't like there was any objection to it. It was truly ignorant. So you okay. just created another candidate of somebody that might be interested in this. And then last, it's like, you know, this, I think is the opportunity is that symbiotic relationship of like, you know, you help to drive people into the clinic. They establish that patient for life. They can do tests on him. They can, mm -hmm. uh, provide the impression. Like there's billable things right off the bat, not to mention the long lasting relationship that you can establish. And so I look at this and I see, okay, so this is just a very specific isolated example of hearing conservation, but you yeah. can see the exact same pattern playing out where it's for vestibular, you know, it's like, right. I need somebody within the St. Louis network that does balance. And and for cognition, like down the line, APD, tinnitus. And so I think that that's what's so um, cool about this is that like, you're gonna, I think, see a lot of opportunities for audiologists to work collaboratively with themselves to identify mm -hmm. who is a specialist within this geography. Right. Because we know that more and more of the patient acquisition, I think is going to happen online. It's going to be finding you through Instagram, finding you through YouTube, finding you through whatever. And so it's a matter of like, how do you connect them to local care? And that right. is like, that to me is where there's tremendous opportunity that we, I think are at day one of tapping into because it's this beautiful combination of social influence mixed with networks that you can connect mm -hmm. one provider to another. And that gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. And, you know, as you know, that example that you gave, you know, I don't necessarily stand to gain anything from that referral. It's just the fact that I appreciate and respect what this practice in your area is doing. And I'm more than happy to send that patient to them, whether or not that patient knows my name at the end of the day or not. And I think that a lot of times what I've run into with some clinics is this sense of competition of, are you going to try to steal my sale or are they going to try to circumvent? And it's all just silly at the end of the day. You know, we all got into this profession, I dare say, because we wanted to help people with their hearing. We wanted to help people with the ability to connect with the world and with people through hearing. We wanted to help people restore that. And it, it's like we need to get back to the basics. I know it sounds kind of Pollyanna, but truly, if we are in the business of of helping and 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 bringing hearing health care to people, 
then it, it there should be less of a focus on who gets the sale, more of a focus of building that equity and trust with each other so that we can send those referrals back and forth. Because you know what? That practice that we sent that referral to, I, I'm just a firm believer of what goes around comes around. And I know that they will in the future be willing and, and I'll be more at the front of mind for these great referrals that they'll be telling patients, hey, you need to talk with with Grace, with Odo Pro, because she might be able to build out something special for you for hearing protection in this unique situation. You know, eliminate the competition, build each other up. The public is eager for what we have to offer. And if if we can if we can get out in front of it, then we will have a highly sustainable long term field of experts in hearing care. Again, like just think about the example that I described. He didn't know what an audiologist was. He thought it right. was like an ear doctor. And you know, so it's like I think a lot of I think we um, shortchange just the sheer magnitude of the amount of people that need these services but mm -hmm. don't know where to go. And right. I think that this is why I think it's really important that you have really visible people that are the face of these kind of like different tangents of audiology. And mm -hmm. I've had a bunch of these people on the podcast like you, where it's like, I think that you yourself are doing a, a tremendous job of bringing awareness to the importance of hearing conservation, what goes into that, how it all works, what kinds of offerings are available to people. Mm -hmm. And to your point, you know, we, I think need to take the long-term view here. Like I look at this and I think what you did there throughout this thing is you, you know, so you basically established a, a really good local person that I could send people to. Mm -hmm. So my one friend, he's going to now know, okay, this is a great ear doctor. And right. He's going to be able to speak to that, to his whole network of people. And so you mm -hmm. have no idea the amount of residual business that's going right. to come from this. And it's, it, it, I, I guarantee that it will, the, that a single sale you know, will pale in He had that issue because of an episode when he was shooting guns, right? Mm -hmm. Well, odds are he shoots guns with other people who shoot guns right. recreationally. Yeah. And, and that whole community of people who likely doesn't know what an audiologist is or where to turn for these issues, um, just like what you're, it is exponential. And those are all people who will need hearing aids and who we don't want to wait the average of seven to 10 years from the time they're really feeling the hit of a problem to when they walk through the doors of a, of a clinic. So um, if, if we work together, we can change that. And if we focus on our expertise and the education that we can provide to the consumer, the sales will come. I'm just, a, I'm a firm believer, education, expertise first, and then you are going to be the trusted source for the, for the sale of the products that are going to pay your bills. And, and think about the way that it expands and diversifies the patient demographic. You know, mm -hmm. as soon as you start to move out from under just being pigeonholed is as a hearing aid um, dispenser, salesperson, whatever you're perceived as the, by the public, you know, you start to move out of that. Suddenly, like this is something that feels a lot more approachable and suitable for a young person who mm -hmm. might be the only reason they would come to you is from a preventative standpoint. They want to just better right. understand this. They want to get fitted with custom earplugs. So what does that do? Again, it's all right. about like this aspect of building a network of, of 
patients for today and then patients for tomorrow, knowing that there's so much residual um, patient acquisition that's going to come along with that just simply by word of mouth within their market. So I just feel like this is, we're at a really good and interesting time right now where I think the the industry as a whole is recognizing that we can be so much more. Um, And again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if as this is all happening, like simultaneously that like the hearing aid sales have never been stronger because mm-hmm. I don't think it detracts from hearing aids in any way. I think it no. simply is re-elevating everything else to a similar playing field so that right. we're prioritizing everything. Right. Yeah. And and there's, there's a general distrust, at least um, with my own little sample size of people that I speak to about hearing aids, there's a distrust of the hearing aid industry. And um, for for whatever reason you you want to buy into, but I think that's all the more compelling evidence as to why we as audiologists have to value and charge for our services and not strictly rely on those products. Um, we have expertise that people are willing to pay for, and there is a significant value with that. And 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 unbundling those services. I'm I'm such a strong proponent of because let's bring that sticker shock price tag down. Let's demand it from the manufacturers and then let's separate and, and recoup some of our expenses through billing for our services. Um, totally. it, it it's, there's got to be a shift and I do think the shift is coming. And, and I think that when audiologists are really brave enough, it's scary to think of, of separating that out. And, and trying to tell someone, you know, we're not trained as salespeople. <laughs> we're trained to be hearing care experts. But if you're not willing to sell and you're not willing to value your services and your expertise, then you're, you're left just with raising the prices on the hearing aids. That doesn't do anybody any favors. Like, I, I feel like uh, a good example of this is for a long time, um, it's been common to provide a hearing test free of charge which mm-hmm. I think on the surface, it's like feels altruistic and all that. But I think mm-hmm. that part of the issue is that the bait and switch in the public's mind tends to come from this feeling of like, I came in, I got tested. And then now you're saying that I have to, my only solution is this, you know, X amount of device. And right. I think that, you know, what audiology I think could and should do is be really upfront about the expectation to say that, mm-hmm. that you know, you are going to be charged for my time, for my services. But the reason being is I'm going to give you a medical evaluation. It might transcend just the single pure tone audiometry test. And it might really get into all of the other things that you can glean in that initial patient visit. And so I think that it, it goes back to what you're saying, which is like, how do you properly monetize your time? Well, it starts with setting the expectation up front and saying, I'm different than right. the other place that provides this for free. I know that that's, you know, if that's what you want, then that exists. And like, by all means, that's great. But the reason that I'm charging for this is in, in lay that out. And I think that mm-hmm. that's so much of it is just expectation setting. Well, and then, and then maybe what's best for the patient is not a traditional hearing aid from one of the top manufacturers, you know, one thing, um, I don't know if you've had Heather on with Tuniversity, but yeah. and what she's doing. I, I love what they're doing with Tuniversity. 
and the fact that they're providing education for audiologists to be able to expand their practice beyond the traditional hearing aid with other products that may meet the client's needs better and at a better price point that suits them. You know, it it pained me to see patients when I was in the medical setting who were scraping together all the money they could to try to get into an entry-level hearing aid pair. And we are seeing more and more options that are coming in at lower price points that are not your traditional hearing aid. And I don't think we need to be afraid of those. I think that with the proper counseling and the proper education for the patient, some of those products can be used very responsibly to meet the basic needs of patients who simply cannot afford traditional hearing aids. And we need to have more to offer than just that. Couldn't agree more. And I think that it it's really just like, uh, does your business model line up with that? Where, you know, if the, the um, traditional business model is you make a profit margin on the device sale itself. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're probably pretty conditioned to high profit margins. And I think that, you know, with these OTC devices and these things that are coming down the pike, there might not be much profit at all. And so the, it kind of begs the question of like, should you even be charging? Like, would it make more sense mm-hmm. to sell these things at cost, but make it very clear and say, you are going to pay me for my time and my services and just right. make them aware that like, look, you can go your own way and you can do this yourself by all means, or mm-hmm. you can, you know, you, you know, basically just set that boundary of like, this is right. what my expertise costs. And I, it doesn't have to be exorbitant or anything like right. that, but I think it, it's this idea of just like kind of reclaiming your value and yeah. saying, yes, especially as an audiologist who has the AUD, who's gone through all the time and effort to get the to get that credential, you know, you want to make sure that that thing's valued. And right, I'm not saying to just artificially jack up the prices of people coming to see you, but it's understanding what's your breakthrough break even rate and right. what, what, what level of profitability do you want to make? And it, does it have to necessarily even come from the device sales? Right. I, and I, I don't think it does. You know, I, I was on the phone just yesterday with a practice in Palm Beach, California, um, looking to refer a patient for ear mold impressions. Now, this is a patient that is in the U.S. for one week. He lives in Australia and was trying to avoid all the international shipping fees and hassle. And so while he's in the States just this week, I'm trying to get him an appointment to get his ear mold impressions made. So this is not a potential long-term client for this practice. They know that. I was very transparent about that. And I said, so what would you charge for a visit to strictly make the ear mold impressions and hand them to him at the conclusion of the visit. And, and um, I'm hesitant as to whether I should say the amount or not, but I respect it. It was, it was, it was a, a hefty amount. And they said that is the minimum price of a visit of an appointment on our schedule. It's going to carry this minimum price. And it's a heck of a lot more than what all the other 250 practices currently are charging for ear mold impression services only. Uh, but honestly, I respect it. And I said, I will pass this along to the client. And if it's a deal breaker, you know, just know that this is, this is a lot more. Um, But I respect that that is what you need for that appointment slot. And, and I honestly think more of us need to be doing the same. Yep. I couldn't agree more with that. I think it, again, it's just a matter of figuring out what does your, I think it's just kind of like putting pen to paper and figuring out, right. doing the calculations and figuring out, you know, looking at your profit and, you know, your P&L and, and kind of just looking at the 
the guts of your business and figuring right. out what do I need to make in order to be profitable. And I think that what what I think is one of my big takeaways from this whole episode 100 is like on a you know on a 40 a 40 hour work week there's more and more types of blocks that you can set on your calendar and that to me is really exciting and i think that what we're going to have to figure out over the next few years that has really i think we've made giant strides already is figuring out how do you properly monetize all of those new blocks and right. and i think that's going to be that's the devil in the detail that we're going to have to figure out is like, I think as an industry, it's becoming really apparent that there are some really exciting new services that you can provide or existing services that you can elevate. Um, right. But it's, I think now a matter of figuring out, well, how do you properly monetize all this in a way that it's not egregious? It's just simply, right. this is what my fair market value is. Well, and there's also a big challenge that comes with that. If you're going to charge a premium for your services, you have to be committed to the continual study and your own commit and your own continual education and adherence to best practices and more. Um, if you're going to charge for those services, you can't just do down 10, up five, SRT, and then hit automatic program on those hearing aids. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to actually bring the value and take the extra steps and provide the expertise that's worthy of that dollar amount. And that is something that you know, when I was, I was so appreciative of my time working in the academic medical center where I had fourth year externs working with me. And it was always um, interesting to, to ask them, how were you just taught how to do this? What speech and noise measurements um, were you doing in your program? What outcome measures were you taught? And learning from each other. And so if you have an opportunity to bring students into your practice, um, it, it's a great opportunity for you to uh, ask them questions and for it to be very symbiotic um, where you have the, the experience to convey to them and the tri your tried and true methods. But then it's also very worthwhile to hear about what these, what these students are learning uh, and, and then bring, try to bring some of that into your own practice. Um, and, and in doing so, it challenged me to stay on top of things because when that student said, why are you doing it that way? I had to be able to answer it. Yeah. And, and that's something that takes a lot of work and we're busy and we're trying to make ends meet and we're trying to get the charting done. And we're, it's, it's, it's very mm -hmm. laborious, but, um, but I do challenge all of us as audiologists to stay at the top of our game and continue to learn. You can't stop learning and you can't take the easy way out. There's an easy way to fit hearing aids and there's a right way to fit hearing aids. It's very different. I love it. That's a, that's like a mic drop moment right there. Perfect way to kind of wrap up episode 100, always be learning, um, you know, keep, keep challenging yourself, I think to, to just kind of figure out how do you innovate a little bit? How do you incrementally improve your, you know, w whatever setting you're working in? Mm -hmm. um, because I think that the thing I've really taken away from these first 100 episodes is like, the opportunity exists and it exists in a variety of different ways, but ultimately it kind of boils down to, are you willing to uh, pursue those things? And it usually right. involves getting out of your comfort zone because you're going to be uncomfortable because you're probably learning a lot. And it takes, uh, you know, the ability to kind of shake away the complacency and be like, as comfortable as I might feel right now, chances are I need to be pushing myself a little bit so that 
in a couple of years from now, I feel just as secure as I might feel today because I've right. basically future-proofed myself in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> awesome, Grace. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on episode 100. And that concludes this mega episode of Future Ear Radio for, I guess, the first season of the podcast. That's awesome. You're doing great work. And I, I appreciate you doing this podcast. I am an, I am um, a fan, a listener myself. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate it. It's an honor to that you had me today. Thank awesome, you. Awesome, Grace. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for everybody tuned in here to the end. We'll chat with you next time. Cheers. Cheers.